Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello all you teddy guys and girls out there. Oh, welcome to the Tweenie Chart Countdown. Today you're going to hear all the Tweenie's favourite songs. And first on stage is Young Milo. He's chosen this number as his favourite song because he likes to move and dance. Tease man, and they're just tempt man, so I can get my satisfaction. Bait man, and agitate man, until I get my satisfaction, satisfaction. I get very excited. Wow, naughty lady. An awful lot I'd like to say about Legs and Co. I'm afraid uh, they'll probably bleep me out if I do. Jump up and shake your bits off So I can get my satisfaction Bend down and shove your drums off Until I get my satisfaction 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 here are some young ladies I've admired many times in my little armchair at home. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and by my side today are Simon Price. Hello. And Sarah B. Hello. Oh, it's been a wild chap, so why don't I just lie on the floor and allow you to spill all that Pop and interesting stuff all <laughs> over there. Um, well, well, the rules do allow us to do that now. So, uh, yes. the rules allow us to do anything we want. Yeah. What I want to do is 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 none of that if it involves being near other people. Been a while since you've been on, Sarah. About seven months. You must have loads to talk about. Loads and loads. Go on then. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck all, mate. Absolutely. Oh, bugger all. You're hibernating still. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been out, but I haven't like done stuff. Yeah. All restrictions lifted. You can do anything you fucking want. It's your world, baby. Mm. And um, 
taste that freedom. So, yeah. AKA, we're on our fucking own. Yes. Yeah, society yes. has at this point been ceded to uh, the most robust twats. Mm. People who break into uh, football games and, you know, stick flares up their asses in, <laughs> in Leicester <laughs> yes. Square. Um, and, you know, and also people who don't have any choice but to go out and deal with those people. Yeah. You have to try and claw back some kind of positivity from somewhere and you know i've just been on a bus this morning and um you know most people were still wearing masks even though they don't have to yeah. but yeah it doesn't really work like that like oh just be careful use your common sense a lot of people don't have any common sense they no. just don't they're just missing it and <laughs> some things have to come from the top and they have to filter down like that and it would have been so easy to just say Oh, you can do what you want, but let's keep the masks on. We've all got them now. Let's get our money's worth. Yeah. And, you know, um, you can get fun ones with leopard print on and, you know, but uh, there you go. That's yeah. the government that we have, unfortunately. The only one positive thing about all of this is that we finally got a generation gap back again, haven't we? Yeah. Which is nice. <laughs> back in the day when you wanted to alienate and scare the older generation, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to go some lengths. You'd have to have a Mohican or a, a swastika T-shirt or something. Nowadays, you just get on a bus out a mask <laughs> last night i was in central london for reasons i'm going to come on to Ooh, very pop and very yes. interesting oh, yeah, reasons yeah. as well I but must um say. Uh, having done the pop and interesting thing that i'll come on to my wife and i decided to go for uh, a little late night drink a quiet late night drink we thought a little nightcap in uh, the soho arts club on frith street in soho which 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 we love Ooh. and i suppose i should have seen the warning signs when the security guy made us wait outside for other people to leave but i thought no they're just being sensible they've obviously only got about 12 people in there yeah you know they're still distancing i thought fine fine we'll wait so we walked down the <laughs> stairs and there's this sort of big soundproof door at the bottom you push your way through and suddenly we're in this fucking sweating seething mayhem of a disco of like oh. loads of very young Shit. people going nuts, hugging each other, leaping around, dancing to Earth, Wind and Fire and the Eurythmics, just old music, basically stuff that to them is hilarious because mm. it's so old, you know. Yeah. Um, and I got really freaked out, partly because I wasn't psyched up. Yeah. I wasn't psyched up for it. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm going to have to psych myself up for being in a disco pretty soon anyway, because my... Here's the plug. Alternative 80s night Spellbound in Brighton is, is relaunching. Nature is healing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But just to sort of walk down these steps in Soho for what we thought was going to be a nice little rum and coke before bed. And now, boom, suddenly it's fucking Studio 54 in there, you know, and it's just fucking... <laughs> I really freaked out. And also, yeah, I mean, I've never felt quite such an old man among a bunch of young people because it's, it's been a while since I've been in that kind of environment. Yeah. I couldn't handle it. And I ended up just sort of not drinking our drink and I just had to sort of say, look, I'm sorry, but we've got to go. Mm. I was surprised at how freaked out I was I thought oh come on I'm going to be fine with this the thing is we've we've jacked up our brains to into survival mode and it's not easy to step that down again a lot of anxiety it's like you can drill down and recognize that it's not based in anything Mm. and you can you know let it dissipate but you can't with this because like you can't if, if you're anything like me like I I can't afford to get long covid i just can't my health is on its ass already i just can't afford to Mm. if you are an anxious person to begin with then this just jacks it right right up and like i've tried to you know um i i wanted to go to the seaside for a couple of days and i couldn't do it because i did a little dry run and i went on the overground and i went to barnard castle for half an hour (laughs) i had a little (laughs) i tested my brain by going to yeah but i just i i couldn't hack it after i i was okay for a bit my energy bar was was full when i left the house and then by the time 
time I was three stops from home on the way back, I was just like, nope, 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 nope. And yeah. you feel a bit foolish about it. But it's like, no, that's kind of normal. And it, it, it is weird to me, like how many people are fine with like being in crowds and stuff and being mm. out and about. And it's like, I just... I, I mean, good for them. And I'm not saying they are all yeah. the robust twats that I was talking about. But if you're sort of physically, mentally or, or emotionally kind of not that tough, yeah. you're going to start sort of f- falling behind in a certain way. You know. Yeah. I ended up talking to one of the, uh, the the younger generation the other night about this. And she says, oh, you know, I've been to clubs and all that kind of stuff. And I go, you're fucking mad. Mm. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> she says, oh, I've had, I've had one jab. And I said, oh, well, that's like us having sex and me saying, no, don't worry, I'm going to put on half a Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really need to work on my chat-up lines. It's been too long. <laughs> how, how would that work? <laughs> yeah, is, is it half long ways or, you know, width ways? And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, which way would a dog wear trousers? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, pop things, yes, interesting yes. things. Yes, yes. Well, now then, um, yeah, I spent some of yesterday evening socialising, rubbing shoulders with some pop stars uh, who we've talked about at considerable length on a previous chart music. B.A. Robertson, eh? (laughs) Sparks. Ooh! Yeah, Yeah, I know. Um, It was very exciting. Basically, um, I did my first bit of DJing for 18 months uh, last night. Um, It was the West End premiere of the amazing documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Mm. I've I've done quite a bit of work with Sparks over the years, interviewing them and stuff like that, writing biogs and booklets. The flint to their Sparks, if you Yes, exactly. That's how I like to think of myself, very much. Mm. And I've done a bit of work with Edgar Wright, the director of the film, in terms of uh, writing the production notes um, that get sent to all the sort of people who go to Sundance and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I've, I've kind of been on the outskirts of this whole project. Mm. But yeah, I was I was asked to DJ the premiere uh, in the West End last night. Cool. Yeah, I was DJing in this sort of pop-up thing in the cinema bar run by Spiritland, who are this sort of audiophile collective who have a fancy bar in King's Cross and another one in the Royal Festival Hall. And they're they're good people Mm. and, you know, they put on good events. And I was honoured to be asked. But the whole experience of getting a vinyl crate, because it was a vinyl-only set, and packing it and, you know, get my set list ideas together and all that, it was quite nerve-tingling after such a long time. Not necessarily for sort of COVID reasons, but just the adrenaline rush of, is it going to go okay? Am I going to play the right songs? Will, Will I have a technical breakdown and all that kind of shit? And also, I'm out of practice of playing vinyl anyway mm. in, in dj terms um i've you know been using laptops for quite a while but yeah it, it wasn't a proper red carpet premiere as such there was only one paparazzo outside that I saw. <laughs> um but um tv's katie puckrick and radio's katie puckrick i should say as well was there and she came over to say hi oh. and i met the director edgar wright hadn't actually met him before who's um, work i'm a big fan of you know spaced and hot furs and Shaun of the dead baby driver all of that mm-hmm. so it was great to meet him but then ron and russell mail themselves came along um Ooh. Just as I was playing Looks, 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 uh, which is, if you don't know, it's a prohibition jazz number from their album Indiscreet. It's brilliant. And uh, and Ron just said, what's this old crap? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put some fucking Oasis on. <laughs> and Russell goes, retro rubbish. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was great. And, and we talked about shoes and we talked about the Cannes Film Festival, as you do. And they yeah. posed for a photo with me and the missus. Um, and I, oh, I just love those guys so much. I unfortunately uh, wasn't able to get them to say bummer no Uh, i know i know but i thought about it i i'm pretty sure the words bummer and dog exist in their oeuvre and we can just edit it together somehow um but yeah um some of my dj selections were a little mischievous um i followed 
this town it big enough for both of us with Sugar Baby Love by the Rubettes, which is the record which prevented Sparks from reaching number one. And they're still a little bitter about it to this day. The shut up of your face to their Vienna. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I played some Pet Shop Boys, right, who get a bit of needle in the film for never acknowledging their debt to Sparks. It's quite funny. Uh. They obviously wouldn't be interviewed for it, uh, but somebody else talks about a time they did sort of mention Sparks to PSBs and uh, Neil Tennant just said, you're very naughty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was my pop and interesting fun last night in in Soho. That's pretty good. Nothing's happened from this end, just just usual shit. Stop doing pub quizzes again. Oh, how's that been going? Weird, weird. I've I've got two on the go at the minute. One's in uh, Kimbler on the outskirts of town in a local pub and the other one's in bit near the centre of town and people from all over knots usually come to that one the one in Kimbler is absolutely fine people are turning up it's all good one in town no fuckers turning up because oh. mm. it's town people staying away from town because it's, really? it's full of bellends without masks on and everything yeah. mm. Central Brighton has been pretty fucking wild ever since unlocking mm. and Central London last night you know what before I ventured into London last night which by the way is my first visit to London for you know nearly two years which is kind of weird Jesus in yeah um, but I, I had been wondering how this whole thing would have affected the nightclub sector and I put myself in the place of I mean, obviously, I'm a nightclub promoter, but I'm not a venue owner. And I mm. thought venue owners would be absolutely shitting it that a whole generation would have come through and broken the habit. They haven't got that sort of yeah. um, rite of passage of, you know, you hit 18 or, let's be honest, probably 17, and off you go to a nightclub. And that, that maybe that, you know, just, you know, nightclubs might might be for the dumper. Uh, but do you know what? Last night, Thursday no. night, it, uh, it was, as uh, recording this on a Friday, central London was absolutely just fucking heaving with mm. young people, I guess sort of student-age people. Yeah. Because midweek nights in London are, you know, where venues traditionally put on cheapo nights for, for students. It's fucking... Yeah. You, you wouldn't think there'd ever been a pandemic and that, you know, just from, you know, nature is healing from the point of view of uh, the nightclub economy, which mm. I suppose is kind of reassuring and good luck to them. Mm. But yeah. People that age always want to get pissed after chucking out time and try and cop off with each other. Yeah, but I thought that they'd found different ways of doing it now, whether it's, you know, having a massive illegal rave in a field or just going to somebody's house. But if there is a group of people I'd like to rub up against at the moment, it's the brand new batch of Pulp Craig's Patreons who have shoved some money down our G-string this month. And that list includes, in the $5 section, Sarah McVeigh, Jeffrey S. Dixon, Andy Hollis, Justin Davis, Mark Symes, Mark Boyle, Owen Marriott, Joe O'Donnell, Matthew Grenham, William Wright, Jim Prentice, Mark Harrison, Lizzie, David Gilhule, Michelle Stevens, Steve Mishkin, and Louise Duke. Thank you, babies. Legends, a lot of I want to lick and touch you all. (laughs) And in the $3 section, we have Burkles, Aidan Taylor, Peter Hammerson, Nicholas McCardle, and Edinburgh Castle rock expert, (laughs) Tony C. (laughs) And Matt Varel, thank you so much, because you whacked it up just a little bit more didn't you Mm. bless you and of course as well as getting episodes of chart music in full without adverts ages before the rest of you the pop craze patron people have been a friggin and a rigging this week's chart music top 10 shall we chaps please hit the fuck 
fucking music! We've said goodbye to Tandoori Elephant, Jesus Price, Nolan Tentacle Porn, CFAX Data Blast, and Taylor Parks' has 20 Romantic Moments, which means one up, four down, four new entries, and one re-entry. A drop of nine places from number two to number ten for fuck's biz. <laughs> First new entry in at number nine, the pig people of Charlesmore. Another new entry this time at number eight, Friar David. Yes. Down one place from number six to number seven, rock expert David Stubbs. <laughs> And it's a two-place drop from number four to number six. For here comes Jism. Yes, keep on in there. Into the top five and thrusting his way back into the charts, Jeff Sachs. Come on, Jeff. Last week's number five. This week's number four. Bummer dog. Into the top three and last week's number one has finally fallen. The bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Straight in at number two, sharks piss fire, which means... This week's highest new entry and the brand new chart music number one, the Cupertino Kid. Fucking hell. Oh, what a chart. The thing with Jesus Price is he will rise again. It is foretold. It is foretold in the scripture. Yeah, around about March, April time, yeah? So this week's new entries, well, the the pig people of Charlesmore, but new metal, I think. You reckon? I thought they might be one of those sort of um, self-consciously quirky indie bands like Bombay Bicycle Club or Mystery Jets or something like that. Could be. Yeah, they sound quite winsome. Yeah. Because I got it into my head that they're like Slipknot, (laughs) but they've got on masks that look like the corpse faces of people like Larry Grayson, Hyacinth Bouquet, Pete Waterman, and other famous people from Coventry and surrounding area. I do like that, yeah. Oh, that's it then. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, Friar David, well, goes without saying. Yeah, French monk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, proving that the Catholic Church can move with the times. Yeah. I think there's a bit of Judy Zook satin tour jackets going on with uh, rock expert David Stubbs being in there. Oh, really? Well, yeah, because I think he's, I think he's getting unfairly hyped into the charts, given that he, <laughs> you know, this kind of this cross-platform promotion of him having his own YouTube show. Which I'm sure all the uh, PCYs are watching avidly. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it's it's like you know the kids from Fame uh, bumping up Irene Cara's record sales. It's yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's fix. Shocks piss fire. What what are they all about? What's their stitch? Ooh, what do you think, Sarah? Three piece garage. Yeah, yeah. Not bad. Forgettable, but you know, bit of lead in the pencil. <laughs> <laughs> and the Cupertino kid, well, that's obviously shaking Weller. Yeah. Like Nicholas Lindhurst when he sang My Generation with Michael Barrymore in some jam shoes and a parka. Or, or me in 1983 failing week after week to be Paul Weller. One day we'll have to share um, the mock-up poster I made of The Jam, yes. the movie, which actually has Nicholas Lindhurst in the yes. role as Weller. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> who, who else was in it? Uh, Martin Short, yeah, and uh, Dennis Waterman. Of course, Dennis Waterman. <laughs> so if you want to join those lovely people, get yourself on that there info net. Slap them fingers on your keyboard. Hammer out patreon.com slash chart music. Step up to the pay window and slip some coin next to this here groin. <laughs> Oh, and if you have subscribed and I've still not read your name out, that's because I'm a disorganised bellend and I need to be told about it. So don't be shy. Come and shout at me. Call me a knobend or whatever. He loves it, really. I just want to do right by the pop-crazed youngsters. Mm. Yeah. They deserve it. It's all I live for nowadays. <laughs> so this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to July the 25th, 2003. I nearly said 19 there, just stopped myself in time. Because yes, this is another excursion to this unwiped arse of a century. Um, I can't lie to you, Pop Craze Youngsters. Uh, looking at episodes from the arse at the top of the pops just fills me with dread. <laughs> Can you hear this? Listen to this. What? That was my arm after it's been twisted by these two here (laughs) to do an episode from 2003. I didn't want to do it. They forced me to. It was the big boys and girls that egged me on, sir. It's for your own good, Al. And you know what, Pop Craze Youngsters? They were right to twist my arm so hard because if you are setting yourself up as an authority on top of the pops, it can't all be billowy Saxons and flags and balloons and all that good stuff. To ignore Top of the Pops' declining years is like an episode of The World at War where Lawrence Olivier says, well, D-Day happened and that was the Nazis pretty much fucked. (laughs) The end. Exactly, yeah. We've got to... To cover the grim death march of Top of the Pops in the early part of the noughties. And I think this is a distinct era that we've not looked at, isn't it? The particular Very much so. regime. The nearest we've thing. come is 2000, me, Sarah and Neil. Yeah. It is a period we have to talk about because this episode we're going to cover comes from a time when it seems like the music business is in decline, traditional media appears to be in decline, and Top of the Pops is a show in terminal decline. I mean, nobody knows it yet, but after the episode we're going to cover is in the books, there are only exactly 100 episodes left before Sir Jingle Nonso BE turns out the lights. Fucking hell, yeah. So where to start with this, chaps? If I were to say to you, the music of 2003, what's springing to mind? Well, I honestly believe that the noughties were the last great golden age of pop. Mm. And a lot of it, I would say, was driven by the creative rivalry between producers at that time on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so in the US, it was Timberland versus the Neptunes, Pharrell, you know. And um, in the UK, it was Richard X versus Xenomania. And these producers all had various kind of puppet acts that they were working with. So mm. Britney and Justin, you know, Sugar Babes and Girls Aloud and so on. Um, often these producers working on, on the same act at the same time, but just different songs. So, for example, Justin Timberlake's album Justified, which is huge around this time, mm. had some tracks by Timberland and some by the Neptunes. And Sugar Babes had hits with songs produced by Xenomania and others produced by Richard X, notably right. Freak Like Me, which was you know essentially a re-recording of a mashup he'd made under the alias Girls on Top. So he had all these elements of kind of the avant-garde leaning end of R&B Mm. and mashup culture and electro clash as well all feeding into mainstream pop and for my money making it amazing mm. electro clash was 
very much my thing at the time. I, I was into, you know, Peaches and Fisher Spooner and Lady Tron and Goldfrap and all that. Um, so, yeah. and let's not fuck around here. It was basically Romo under a different name, right? <laughs> uh, like when Enemy finally deemed it okay to, you know, uh, embrace synthesizers and posing about. You're saying it's Robo Romo. Yeah, exactly. Turbo yeah. Romo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You were just too ahead of your time. I mean, you knew that. Yeah. yeah. You could have reinvented yourself, Simon, at this time as Romocop. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you have 20 seconds to like Orlando. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but also, I mean, there's so much else around this time. I, I was hugely into the White Stripes yeah. and, yeah. Um, and and the Hives and the Rapture and Harmar Superstar and British Sea Power and the Dresden mm. Dolls and LCD Sound System. LCD Sound System, right, were both a product of and a satire of the hipster movement, which was emerging. It, so this was the time of the Hoxton Finn, you know, that hairstyle yes. where you sweep all your hair into a ridge in the middle. Like, you know, like new parents do when they're bathing their babies <laughs> and they think it's hilarious to yeah, that, soak that kind their of hair up. That in to... 2002, didn't it, with Beckham? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know what? I, I was in the orbit of that hipster scene. I mean, I was way too old at 35 to be one, right? But I was going to the club trash or anywhere else Errol Alcan was DJing and also nag 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 mm. but in hindsight now that hipsters have all grown beards and opened cereal cafes instead <laughs> I do think that loads of amazing music came out of that slightly wanky scene yeah. I, I even tried launching a naughty's nostalgia night a couple of years ago called yeah. destroy rock and roll I don't think people were ready for it yet because it was only the decade after the decade that you're nostalging about and I think people need sort of two decades sort of gap um but so i might try again soon in that case mm. yeah i i do think that and other people who know more about these things than me have said that electro clash is overdue a revival now by about two years you know like how there are people who like trend forecasts and everything and then there are people who predict when you know society is going to collapse and whatnot and it's like <laughs> before the collapse of society which apparently we are on schedule for according to the um they they've, they've dredged up a, a report from the 70s about uh like what's you know how how things are going to crumble and it's like we're right we're right on track for that so yeah. if we can have an electroclash revival before that then i'll be quite happy because <laughs> it was yeah it was great i went to trash a few times i was not i wasn't cool enough basically i went anyway it was slightly snooty and slightly you know but i knew that there was there was something in it and i yeah and i really loved the music and it's absolutely it was a great time for for pop mm. just so much inventiveness coming into like what you would have thought would be quite standard safe fare before like ex-boy bands or new girl bands or whatever and it's like no the they're coming out uh, justified what an album i just oh, rinsed yes. that this entire year and you know revisited it since and it, it still it sounds of its time but it still holds up it's it, it, it's incredible absolutely amazing what a joy and you know yeah. christina had her fourth album loads of people have their fourth album out this year weirdly so christina was doing strip to this point so christina had thrown off all her clothes and embraced <laughs> sex oh, i love her it's always fun when somebody does that and i love that i know people really laid into her at the time but i thought it's fucking great um kylie had her ninth album out which was Jesus, this was kylie's yeah. e album body language mm. which the main single of which was um slow which is one of her bestie bests britney had her fourth album out as well britney was doing really well missy had her fifth album out uh, i think every member of the woo put out an album this year yeah probably. each one yeah <laughs> And, and a few of their mates. Dizzy Rascal's first album as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Get that out. was, you know, 18-year-old Dizzy Rascal um, just 
blasting onto the scene. And Outcast as well, Speaker Box and The Love Below. Oh, yes. Yes, yes please. All these good things. And they were starting to be that sort of healthy cross-pollination and kind of mingling and, you know, of... of uh, a lot of different things that was starting to break down genre, really, which is what you have now, where the genre has, has never been less of a thing. Um, and mm. yeah, the, and then like the whole bunch of like cool American garagey art rocky stuff that you were saying, the kills yeah. and the AAS. And yeah, the White Stripes were just great, weren't they? It was so, it was such mm. a huge thing. They were quite a, a music journal thing. But it was also, you know, people loved them and they were they were amazing. Yeah, I think they were kind of quite avant-garde in their way, even though they're very retro as well, drawing upon sort of classic blues and stuff. Just the fact they were so minimal mm. and the fact they had this very clear aesthetic. They had this, you know, that, that whole sort of red, white and black um, design scheme and everything. And mm. Everything yeah, is I, three, I thought, the, the whole kind of Jack White's thing of yeah. like threes. Yeah, yeah. I think that people have got them wrong a little bit when they think it's just sort of throwback band. I, I think no, there's something weirdly modern about them. But they were just really fun as well. They were just really fun and they made a big racket. And it was incredible how much sound they they produce oh god seeing them at dingwalls when they were just sort of breaking through over here was just phenomenal wow. just you know two people making that kind of physically exciting music mm. oh yeah, yeah. yeah and they had this yeah. and it was great the sort of energy of the two of them because uh, jack white was this slightly kind of there's a slight mania and this kind of wild wildness about him and then meg who was so serene yeah and just had this little kind of mona lisa smile on was just there crashing away in the background it was you know yeah and there was that whole conceit of them pretending to be brother and sister when they were actually ex-husbands and ex-wives. That's so funny that. how people couldn't figure that yeah. out for ages. It's like, that's a blues <laughs> thing. They're doing the blues thing. Going, oh, my brother, oh, my sister. And it's like, that's just kind of, you know. But it was great because it added this kind of subtext to it, to the sort of sexual chemistry on stage. And it, yeah, it was, <laughs> it, it, it was all part of it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You all two have just demonstrated that there's a fuck ton going on on the music scene of 2003. But round about this time, everyone's talking about pop being in decline when what they actually meant was the music business was in decline. I mean, as far yeah. as the charts went, it had got to the point where if you sold 20,000 copies of your new single, you could get to number one. Yeah, well, I think what happened was that around the turn of the millennium, um, the music industry tried to squash the internet, tried to stamp on it, things like Napster mm. and all of that. Yes. Um, and by this point, sort of three years into the century, they start to realise they've got it horribly wrong. Yes, and that really they should have fucking embraced it from the beginning. Yes. And that they're sort of playing catch-up, really, trying to figure out how they could do that. Everybody points the finger at the internet for all of this. You know, mm. by 2003, the internet stopped being CB radio for spods. Mm. But it's still not that all-conquering yet, is it? No. You know, this is pre-social media, pre-YouTube, pre-pretty much anything bar file sharing and forums. Yeah, and sharing a file, downloading a song might take all night. I can remember setting, yes. setting my, my old steam-powered fucking first-generation iMac, those fruit-coloured ones, to download oh. um, a Michael Jackson track um, at the start of a night out. And when I came home, like pretty much the next morning, it would just about <laughs> finish downloading. Killing music slowly, I was, it was the first little cut, <laughs> little, first little jab there. Yeah, um, I just couldn't find that track anywhere else. Like I could not, literally could not pay for yes. it. Yeah, you'd go to nightclubs and people would not have phones. They might have their phone in their pocket to fucking call a taxi to get them home, but they weren't staring yeah. at the screen all night. What would happen was you'd go out to a club, you'd live, you'd have the night out, you'd do stuff. Then maybe at 3am you'd come home and very drunk sort of fire up 
MSN Messenger or MySpace or something <laughs> and talk to people on there about what had happened. But it wouldn't be the focus of your whole fucking night. And I, you know, you sound like no. a right old cunt saying that. But I think there was this kind of sweet spot where technology um, enabled people to sort of reach out and uh, make contact with each other and, 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 and befriend each other. But it wasn't everything. Yeah, it wasn't everything. Mm. Let's get stuck in. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Mr. P here. And the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of two Mr. P's in a podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips, and get ready for the lesson. Radio One News. In the news, the body of the scientist and biological weapons expert David Kelly has been found at Harrow Downhill in Oxfordshire. Saddam Hussein's sons have been killed by coalition forces in Mosul. Jeffrey Archer has been released from prison after serving two years of a four-year sentence for being a lying bastard. <laughs> Idi Amin has fallen into a coma in a Saudi hospital where he's been in exile since 1980 and will die in a fortnight. The British Grand Prix at Silverstone is interrupted when Neil Horan, a defrocked Catholic priest, runs onto the track in a kilt, brandishing a placard which reads, Read the Bible, the Bible is always right. He would go on to attempt to run onto the track at the 2004 Epsom Derby before being restrained by police, push over the Brazilian marathon runner Vandalay de Lima while he was leading in the marathon at that Summer Olympics, found not guilty of indecent assault while claiming he only ever wore one pair of green satin pants, which he never washed because he, quote, needed them at all times, and then pulled them out of his pockets and waved them at the jury. Got arrested in Berlin after planning to do a piece jig outside the stadium before the World Cup final while holding a banner which read Adolf Hitler was a good leader who was following the word of Christ and get through to the first round of Britain's Got Talent in 2009. He was later imprisoned for 12 counts of indecent assault and was last seen dancing outside Southwark Crown Court in support of Rolf Harris. The last British living participant in World War I has died at the age of 108. 
Bob Hope has died at the age of 100 in California of pneumonia, but the big news this week is that Mobert has announced on his website that he's honoured to learn that his name is being used in salons as a description of a tuppenny all-off round the fanny. <laughs> on the cover of Melody Maker this week, nothing, because it shut down three years ago. Yeah. On the cover of Smash Hits, D-Side. The number one LP in the UK is Dangerously in Love by Beyonce. Over in America, the number one single is Crazy in Love by Beyonce. And the number one LP is Chapter 2 by Ashante. So, me dears, what were we doing in July of 2003? Well, uh, I had uh, already burned out and uh, fucked off out of London by this point. Uh, Probably this month, actually. I went to live in Lancaster and tried to live a normal life because I was so fucking tired. Yeah, I remember this, yeah. Yeah, and just kind of really disillusioned with things. And, and my uncle was renting out his old house, which I knew from when I was a kid. And uh, he agreed to rent it to me. Um, not for, like, you know, because people are like, oh, you get a peppercorn rent? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to pay proper money, but, you know, it still wasn't very much. It was a little teeny tiny terrace house in Lancaster. And I, I just tried to have normal jobs with um, varying degrees of success <laughs> and uh, got a dog because I volunteered at a shelter and then inevitably ended up just falling in love with one of the dogs and bringing mm. him home, even though he was huge and impossible and impractical and hated all other dogs with a searing passion. But other than that, he was the best. I was uh, just attempting to do something different because I had been in London since '99. Uh, and I felt like I was done with it and it was done with me. And of course, I would move back again within uh, a couple of years. But um, I really, really needed the time off. Mm. But, uh, one of the last things I did, along with uh, Bang Magazine, was I, I was an extra in Shaun of the Dead. Oh, my no. God. Oh, yes. I was. Uh, yeah, we did, I, I had filmed um, several bits in early summer 2003. Right. I wasn't like a massive space fan, but I did actually know Edgar a bit. Yeah. He had made a pop video and I had to go and cover it. And so we became friendly. Which video? Um, uh, it was a Blue Tones video. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it was in like Hackney Empire. Yeah. So I, I sort of got to know him through that. So he told me that this was happening and I kind of hopped onto the list of you know because most of the extras were spaced fans and it was uh sort of there was a shout out on a forum and um so i had to you know i went and auditioned and um there was a girl who could put her leg all the way like backwards which was great and i've realized (laughs) since that because i was so impressed with her doing it i didn't realize that my kind of collagen is so shot that i can do that as well oh my god (laughs) so i should have you know but i at the time this was a talent that had gone unrealised. So, yeah, um, uh, I did like four or five bits, I think. Wow. I was very, very sort of deep background, so it's hard to spot me in the thing. But there's a blob that is me. <gasps> the bit where um, they finally realise that the zombie apocalypse is happening and they're in the car and they're driving through London. They look left and right and they see yeah. the body bag spilling out of the back of an ambulance with a body writhing around in it. No. And they look to the right and there's a kind of uh, there's a park there's a bit of uh, kind of covered reservoir. And I'm one of them in the way, Uh, way in the distance, coming ominously towards the camera. Is this when um, Mr. Mental by 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster is playing? I seem Um, to remember it was when they're in that car drive. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bit, oh, yeah, all the the, the 80s Matchbox bits are so brilliant. They were extras in it as well. Mm. There's a bit 
towards the like right at the end where there's a little compilation of what happened next yeah. and it's like there's like zombie game shows and stuff i was in the audience for oh. the kind of zombie opportunity knocks bit <laughs> so i wasn't actually a zombie in that bit uh, there's a bit i can't even remember what the context is for this but there's a bit where there's some zombies chained up in the back of a truck and it's the 80s matchbox disaster and me and a couple of other people. Fucking hell. Brilliant fun. I remember seeing a picture of you on the internet all zombied up. Yeah, so yeah that, that that's be- from that day where yeah. I had a bit of zombie makeup on because it was it was so far in the distance that, you yeah. know, I didn't need a whole lot. But yeah, that was my profile picture on Friendster. <laughs> Friendster. <laughs> yeah. I loved Friendster. I miss that. That's a very early noughties thing. It really is, yeah. It was great. And the nice thing about that was is you, you it was like there was a section for you to say nice things about your friends, wasn't there? Yeah. It was like you could review your mates and go, they're really great. They're my mates. And mate. you sort of introduce people to other people and it just all seemed like a nice little club rather yeah. than what social yeah. media became. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, oh. there's a whole long read about why friends to failed, yeah. which uh, which is out there somewhere. Um, and it is, it's quite sad. But um, yeah, I, there was, sadly, I don't have a picture of the day when I did the pub scene. Um, what, the Winchester? I was at the Winchester, yeah. yeah. So there are some hands, when, when there's kind of the hands banging on the window, some yeah. of those hands oh, are mine. Yes. And then I also uh, got to go in the pub and, and watch the uh, the kind of the pool cue fight. Yeah, oh my God. The, Don't yeah, stop me yeah. now. Witness to history. Yeah, really. Because oh, we were in, we were sort of crammed in the, uh, the little um, hallway as well. And uh, uh, what's his name? Peter Serafinovitz, who is who is there just wearing yeah. a small pair of pants and body <laughs> makeup and looking very tall and sinister. <laughs> he was lovely. He was really great. Um, and yeah, the Zombage, as we were called by the uh, by the assistant director, um, where, like you knew when you were being t- spoken to, would say Zombage over here, please. <laughs> and so we had to stand in the in the hallway of the pub set and with the pork scratchings and everything. There turned out to be loads of people that I know um, in that film in the in the Zombage. So. Um, <laughs> Tim Chipping, the singer from the band Orlando, is a mate of mine, yes. um, is, right. was one of them, because he was mates with Edgar. And Lauren Laverne is in there, isn't she? Really? Is La- she? Yeah, she's, uh, there's, there's a scene in somebody's back garden where I, th- I think it's when they realise that the zombie apocalypse isn't just localised, it's really spread. And yeah, just Lauren right there. And she was obviously oh. already quite famous at this point. <laughs> Oh, I don't, can't. Um, But yeah, Tim is actually on the, Tim, who's a mate of mine also, and who wrote for Bang, wait until the bitter end. He's on the poster as well. He's properly immortalised. And it was very funny. It was quite an insight into, because there were a lot of kind of, um, you know, very far background extras who were just there for a laugh and everything. And it is, it's kind of hard work. It's very repetitive and you have to do the same thing over and over. And it was, you know, obviously it's British weather and you're standing outside in the freezing cold, even though it's supposed to be summer. And your flesh is dropping off your bones as well. That's exactly, it's like, you know, (laughs) but um, yeah. And I, you know, I made new friends and had a a lovely time. And yeah, that was when we were in the pub and they, uh, they, you know, they set the bar on fire at one point. So that happened over and over again. And every single time they, they had the fire department on hand to put it out. Hmm. Every single time we all cheered. Yeah. <laughs> like, it never got old. It was just, hey, firemen. Proud uh, to have been a part of it. Yeah. Very, very, very small part. God, it's funny hearing you read through the news stories there. And uh, yeah. the story about Dr. David Kelly just sort of reminds you with a, a shiver of the kind of dark shadows behind the 
gleaming, beaming smiles of Tony Blair and New Labour. Yeah. One thing I, I do remember is that I was quite blissfully apolitical at this time, by, by my usual standards, let's say. And yeah. I think a lot of people were, you know, because the Tories had gone and didn't look yeah. like they'd ever be coming back, ever, you know. <laughs> and as long as you didn't have the misfortune to live in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else that George W. Bush was using for bombing practice to help prop up America's erectile dysfunctional sense of imperial dominance, you could afford to drift away from yeah. worrying about politics too much. Um, Blair was two years into his second term. Britain had just joined the US-led coalition invading Iraq, using fake dossiers about weapons of mass destruction, of course, as the no. pretext. Um, I was part of that largest march in history in London that February, trying to prevent that happening, to oh, yeah, no yeah, avail. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Everyone we knew. Yeah, yeah absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's easier to list people who weren't, yeah. Um, but, you know, thanks to Blair's starry-eyed Atlanticism and his eagerness to be George W. Bush's pet poodle, you know, yo Blair and all that. Yeah. But, you know, nevertheless, I was, I was still able to call myself a Labour person by default, not least because my local MP was so anti-war, um, an obscure backbencher called Jeremy Corbyn, um, <laughs> who lived a few doors down from me on the same street, it turns out. Oh. I was living um, in the same basement flat off Holloway Road in North London that I was living in during the Britpop years that we talked about uh, with Neil that time, Shed yeah. 7 and all that. And I was doing three jobs at once. This this was insane this year. It was just so fucking intense and overloaded and, and really vivid as well. I think um, I earned the most money I to date that I've ever earned in one calendar year, but also fucked myself up so much that the sensible thing would probably to do what Sarah did and go and live somewhere hundreds of miles away. <laughs> I was doing one newspaper column, one editorial job on a magazine, and running a club night. So I, I wasn't just burning the candle at both ends. I was holding a cigarette lighter under the middle of the candle as well and <laughs> me melting the wax off it, leaving it looking like a waxy nunchuck, you know. Which you then threw into a fire. Yes, exactly. I know we always end up talking about clothes and hair, so I should mention my look at this time, <laughs> right? I wasn't a goth as such by this point. I'd had a couple of circuit breakers from that, um, identity-wise. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, since being a proper goth, I'd had not one but two hip-hop phases and the Romo thing in between. And, um, and by now, I created this kind of hybrid non-tribal image for myself which was crowned by a twin set of elaborate plastic antlers uh, which you may remember oh, yes. woven into my real hair courtesy of peppies who were this um, really amazing cyberpunk hairdressers at camden lock um it was a, a high maintenance look uh, but i liked it and um oh it used to really piss me off by the way right um uh, I'm going to vent now. When people <laughs> shouted, and to this day do shout, "Twisted Firestarter" at me in the street, right? Oh. Because I wasn't copying Keith. Um, if anything, I was copying Sue Catwoman from the seventies. Yes, um, I, I met her once, and she was really nice. And I, I apologised to her for nicking her hairstyle, but she said, "At least you're doing it well," which was really sweet of her. <laughs> um, so yeah, work-wise, after leaving Melody Maker, I'd taken a couple of years off from the front line of music journalism, if you like, to write my Manix book and and the book was very successful uh, yeah. I'm going to blow my own trumpet here it was the fastest selling rock biography of all time in the UK um, 
Book of the Year in NME and Rock Book of the Decade in The Guardian. So it was a useful calling card career-wise. And um, mm. it was off the back of that that I got a job with The Independent on Sunday um, right. as their chief rock and pop critic, um, which is a high-profile job. You know, there's only yeah. so many of those jobs going around. You know, only so many national newspapers. And it's a bit like sort of the managerial merry-go-round of Premier League managers or something like that, that, that when, when you're in situ, when you've got one of these jobs, you sort of cling on to it. So, yeah, I had my own column every Sunday with a little photo of my face at the top, you know, sort of thing little like like a cameo brooch um and uh one version of that photo cropped my horns out i was so pissed off i, I complained I, I complained and they reinstated them um but one of the good things about working for the independent at that time was that they refused to allow record companies or or pr companies to pay for anything yeah. so the paper would cover all my travel costs and hotels and all that oh. so it was a matter of principle that the paper shouldn't feel indebted to or influenced by anyone, you know, literally independent. Mm. And there was also the fact that the paper as a whole didn't stand or fall on music advertising coming into my section, unlike, you know, Q or NME, who completely relied on that. So I had a real kind of carte blanche to say whatever I wanted. And um, this was at the exact time that music journalism as a whole was becoming very timid and diplomatic uh, due to a number mm. of factors, and, and which we talked about in previous episodes, and, and the role of the critic was turning into that of a cheerleader. And you know, meanwhile, I've got this job where I was able to keep it old school, and I was writing pretty vicious takedowns of major stars, um, yeah. including Elton John, of course, which came back to bite me on the arse, as I mentioned in a previous episode, because <laughs> he's got some influential friends. Um, so, as well as bigging up the things I believed in, of course, because it wasn't just entirely negative, you know. I'm not that guy, even people think I was. Yeah. And this freedom that I had there, it worked out really well for me. I ended up winning awards for it, um, Live Reviews Writer of the Year three times in a row, and I really must put my trumpet down now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, you, you often say, so what were you doing at this time? I can say exactly what I was doing, because I've found my Independent on Sunday column ne- nearest to this date. Um, so I had been to see the world's greatest entertainer, the hardest working man in show business, soul brother number one, the amazing Mr. Please, 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 the godfather of soul, James oh. Brown at oh, the Royal Lord. Albert Hall. Yes. With his magician. <laughs> it was amazing. It was, it was a memorable and eventful show in a lot of ways. I remember his band wore these white naval suits with gold brocade, a bit like in the Navy. Um, right. I, I compared them to the crew of the Love Boat and also to Glenn Ponder and Lazarus. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he did his famous knee trembling dance you know and um, mm. he did that thing where he pretends to collapse and his minions rush over and bring him his cape and all that and uh, he randomly brought a Janis Joplin impersonator on stage I can never figure out what that was for what? he bottled out of you know in I got you I feel good there's the big I feel yeah. he bottled out of that which um, you know I guess he's getting on a bit but saying that he made the bizarre claim on the mic that he was 59 years old. Now, all biographical material available had him down as at least 10 years older than that at the time. Yeah. And yet, yet thing, he told us, you all need to eat more fish and chips. I've had mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, some of it was fucking amazing. Obviously, it's James Brown, you know, and he had a well-drilled band, famously. It's a man's, man's, man's world, like, utterly slayed the place, right? Papa's yeah. got a brand new bag fucking amazing here's what right i've got a bit here's what i wrote about pab scott brand new bag at the time james brown has as he reminds us several times been coming to the royal albert hall for 30 years since papa's bag really was brand new it's not often in pop history that you can pinpoint exactly one artist and even one song 
which changed everything. If you're looking for the moment where the various strands of black music, blues, jazz, gospel, soul, suddenly ignited into funk, you can't go far wrong if you pick James Brown, and specifically, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Lean, Mm. stripped down, brutally propulsive. It was aimed at nothing other than the hips and the feet. Truly a revolutionary record. And I do believe that. And here's how I ended the review. For a person so famed for laying down the law, James Brown sure spends a lot of time asking for the green light. Permission to take to the bridge is requested and unanimously granted. (laughs) That's it. Did he say anything about mushy peas? (laughs) You need to know, yeah. Like, uh, Mm. where does he stand on the sort of north-south divide uh, in in ship accompaniments? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, what about the bits? Yeah, we'll never know now. What a shame. Well, I'd also left London this year. I moved back to Nottingham in March and I'm fucking loving it here. I think the last thing I did in London was go on that march. Yeah. And I'd just had enough of London. I honestly believe that everyone should spend time in their own capital city. But as soon as you hit your 30s, you just start to think, well, what what the fuck am I doing? I'm spending three hours commuting yeah. every day. You know, my mates had all got to that point where they were all settling down. And as soon as they wanted to move on with their life, either, you know, buy a house or get married or have kids, the first thing they'd do is get the fuck out of London because they couldn't afford to do it there. Yeah. And so I was pretty much the last man standing and just not up for, for trying to find a new circle of friends there because it, it was just costing me too much. And, you know, I just came to the realisation that I'm not going to create a new family here, so I might as well go back to Nottingham and, and link up with my old one. My sister had just had a kid, and I really wanted to be part of his life. Yeah. And within months of me moving back and getting to know him, my sister fucks off to Shropshire. So, yeah, thanks, Trey. <laughs> by this time, I was a freelance magazine writer and was assured by the people I was working for at the time, oh, you're moving out of London? Great, we need more provincial writers. So there was a lot of work being dangled mm. in front of me, which mysteriously evaporated as right. soon as I wasn't in London anymore. Yeah. You know, commissioning editors, they want good writers, but they also want good writers they can go out and have a drink with. Yes. By this time, I'm pretty much a sexpert, which <laughs> I'd been for quite a few years. People always used to ask me what that meant, and I just said, well, I have sex than a spurt. Fuck's sake. But I was writing for Cosmo, I was writing for Scarlet, I was writing for Marie Claire. Yeah. I got a sex column in the Daily Mirror. Fucking hell. I used to write a lot for M, the the, the women's magazine, which was fucking brilliant. They'd, yeah. they'd send me out doing all manner of shit. And like you, Simon, I got a photo at the top of my column. Uh, it was a, a sort of a sideways shot with my oh, mouth yeah. up and an old smile at and, and for some reason, they'd done it in a demi-silhouette. And it made me look like the fucking happy man's perverted uncle who just spotted some pants in a bush. I look fucking awful. They should have put fucking horns on me. I would have looked better. I should have asked. So I demanded that they bring me down to London for another photo shoot to get something remotely decent. And, you know, fair play to them, they did. Well, I guess you had to be semi-anonymous so you don't get recognised um, among your um, sexploits. Well, not only that, but, you know, it would have been nice for them to have had a male sex columnist who actually looked like someone that at least some of the audience would have wanted <laughs> sex with, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, as they say, when one's tired of London, one's tired of being shit on, so I fucked off out of it. And it's always weird when you decide to leave London, isn't it? Because you you do feel like you're crossing a line, or at least drawing a line in the sand of your life. Feels like an admission of defeat sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. 
Because most of the time I was there, I felt like I was just clinging on to London by my fucking fingernails. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And there was this sort of vacuum sucking me back towards Wales and like the undertow in the sea, you know? And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just just clinging on to London was the thing. I didn't have any life plan. I didn't know what I was going to be doing when I was 37, 38. It was just like fucking getting through the next few months is as far as you ever look, really. Within four years, I was out of there as well. Um, Not back home to Wales, but down to Brighton. But yeah, I just felt a similar thing to you, Al, that the city just felt more and more brutal and hostile and callous and like it was just fucking rinsing me dry just sucking every last penny out of me and yeah. i couldn't even enjoy the stuff that you're meant to enjoy about london exactly because i was paying too much just to fucking exist in london yeah so yeah you come to realization at some point and um yeah for me it was getting down to brighton but yeah i, I completely understand why why you went back mm, which is really funny sam because right about this time me and you got to know each other on the when saturday comes forum yeah by having some egg goes at each other for me disliking <laughs> london and you accusing me of being alan partridge <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it now yes <laughs> london is you know it's kind of a cliche really but it's tough it's a tough place because mm. you think that your whole identity is 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 really sort of predicated yeah. on it, you know and it's like what it is like failure to leave mm. but then it's like oh okay i won't actually crumble to dust if i cross the north circular you know yeah. and i'm kind of going through that again now because what's been happening over the the last 18 months and i have felt like my flat which i love very much has just turned into a little sort of space pod mm. i just want to uproot my flat and take it somewhere else yeah. but also like because technology now just about allows you to work from anywhere and i think people have finally finally belatedly got their heads yeah. around the idea yeah. that that's doable and i think in a way that people didn't in 2003 because it was like out of sight, out of mind, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't expect at all to get any work in music journalism or whatever if I moved out of London because, you know, I just didn't. Mm. But I, I went back two and a half years later because I had some work for the satirical newsletter, The Friday Thing, right. which was a paid-for email newsletter. I've probably mentioned this before, that actually, like, made money and stuff. Fuck. Yeah, that was a cool wow. thing, which inevitably died on its ass. Yeah. Music-wise, for me, I'm pretty much in the same position I was in the mid-'80s, where I'm turning my back on the modern stuff and, and burrowing into the old stuff. I'm hoovering up all the tunes I've been looking for for ages, on Napster I just stopped being 50 pound man right I just got sick to death of wanting one track and having to spend 17 pound at Tower Records for a CD compilation from America and uh, it it being the wrong version of it so I just thought fuck this you're not giving me what I want I'm going to have to get it for myself yeah I am spree killing music at the moment you're a 50 megabyte man yeah yes (laughs) and uh, you know as far as Top of the Pops goes Fuck it, it's on Friday night. Friday night is either getting ready to go out or being in the pub straight from work. Top of the Pops is dead to me. Yeah, I wasn't watching it either. Probably four or five nights a week, I was out seeing gigs, either to review them or just for pleasure. And then there's a good chance that the other two nights I was doing club stuff. So, you know, no no fucking way on a Friday evening am I sitting watching that, even if my favourite bands are on it. No. Obviously, it never recovered from the move to Friday nights. And and it was up against Corrie and all that. But there's lots of, like, logical reasons for why that was a, a bad idea. But less logically, I think it's that... It belonged on Thursday. Yeah. That was just Top of the Pops night. 
Like you can't. It, something <laughs> pops with Christmas. It wasn't Easter. You can't just move it. The other thing I was doing that was keeping me in London was um, working full time for a magazine, and uh, both of you were involved in this whole thing mm. to varying degrees. So you know what I'm talking about. But um, I'd, I'd been approached the previous year by these two drongos who called themselves the Gloom <laughs> Brothers. Right? Right. They were these two posh blokes, one big, one small, like Batman and Robin. They previously held some sort of non-specified role in the music business, but they had a sideline in very high-concept graphics-led DIY zines, very big on poster art and stuff like that. Mm. And um, these two, absolute chances and charlatans, they'd somehow managed to persuade a major publisher, Future Publishing, which was the home of Metal Hammer, among other things, yeah. to give just give them a magazine, a new magazine called Bang! Exclamation mark. It was Bang! All caps, wasn't Yeah, well, it? all of it was caps, yeah, yeah. Got into trouble yeah. if you uh, yeah, didn't cap it all. Um, it was meant to cash in on, on the noughties wave, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit already, of, of guitar music, which came along in the way of the strokes and yeah. and and the idea was i guess from a market strategy point of view to attack the existing glossy monthlies like q and mojo mm. from a more left field kind of young invert commas edgy position if you know what i mean i, I talk about bands that are actually still going yeah yeah right exactly and they brought me in um as features editor now obviously brandy mag we needed writers and my most recent experience of working among other really good writers was at Melody Maker. Mm. So I decided to get the old gang back together for one last heist, you know. <laughs> um, so the idea being that we'd um, have that kind of um, uh, freedom of writing things, absolutely say what you want and express yourself in the pages that we used to have at Melody Maker. Yeah. Um, in, in, in my time at Melody Maker, let's say at least. And um, so that, you know, the people I... I Try to bring in to create this team, uh, included Neil Kukani and Taylor Parks, of mm. course, and also Sarah. Even though our times at uh, Melty Maker did not overlap, we knew each other, and I, I knew you were a good writer. And um, and and when I finish my rant now, I, I'd love to hear Sarah's memories of all this. But um, also, <laughs> oh, yeah, don't worry, <laughs> uh, um, Maria Jeffries, who um, I knew from Melty Maker, was already on board as the picture editor. So you know, and. Um, I even got you to do something, didn't I, Al? I, yes. think, I remember there's a thing about Suicide Girls. Yeah, the, yeah I did uh, the thing about Suicide Girls. The alternative porn website, because, as you as you say, you were Mr. Sex, you know, you were exactly porn not. expert, yes, I'll, I'll need him, you yes, know. I, I was, uh, yes, I was, I was starting to call myself Nottingham's Mr. Sex. Yeah, exactly. And people used to ask me why, and I'd say, oh, well, because I come from Nottingham. You know, if I called myself Darby's <laughs> Mr. Sex, I'd be lying to folk. Oh, right, I like it, yeah. I'm yeah. all about the honesty. <laughs> so um you know uh, i i was i was trying to build a strong team there and um but from the very start there was a friction between the people i wanted to bring in and the gloom brothers so mm. for example i tried to get stephen wells r.i.p uh, involved yes. but uh, when he came to the pub and and sarah knew swells really well and she'll know what i'm talking about yeah. swells was so abrasive in his usual kind <laughs> of take no prisoners motor mouth style that the gloom brothers just didn't want to work with him um, <laughs> and uh, and it didn't help when taylor parks came to the pub and said that the trouble with music magazines these days is that they're always run by someone called crispin right? <laughs> and one of one of the gloom brothers was literally called crispin oh. <laughs> for fuck's sake uh, anyway anyway oh. we we got the first issue out with the flaming lips on the cover and the piece was written by me i, I was interviewing wayne Coyne in vienna and uh, we held a swanky launch party with the darkness playing live um, ah. i'm going to talk about the darkness in a bit um Issue 
too was a misfire. We put a band called Hot Hot Heat on the front in the belief they were going to be the next Strokes, and clue, they weren't. Um, Issue three was a complete self-indulgence from the Gloom Brothers. We had the polyphonic spree on the front, right? That utopian cult-like choir Mm. uh, in a special elongated cover that folded out because the band had so many members, including (laughs) including the Gloom Brothers themselves as temporary honorary members in red cassocks, which was never going to shift copies, right? (laughs) They had terrible instincts. Um, The the cover I wanted to do was vetoed, and this was... um, Peaches and Iggy Pop together. They made a single together. Oh, I thought no. Peaches and Iggy Pop would have been an amazing front cover mm. and would totally have embodied the ethos that the magazine purported to hold. And it's something that um, Q would never have done. Mojo would never have done. It's like, you know, it would be really sort of staking our claim for our territory. Yeah. And they, you know, nah, they weren't having it. And they literally laughed at Franz Ferdinand when the first record came in, right? This is a band who we should have been all over. And the, the rest of us were like, what are you fucking talking about? This is brilliant. Mm. Um by issue four, any pretense of being edgy had gone out the window. They stuck Radiohead on the front in desperation, and it wasn't long before Coldplay and Blur were on the front. So it might as well, uh, at that point, it might as well have been Q Magazine. In fact... Um, melody Maker. Oh, fuck me, yeah. Um, in <laughs> fact, the, the Gloom Brothers, right, they used to troll us in the office by playing Coldplay really loud. Oh. While we, we had to sit there silently resenting them. It was a total power play, because, you know, they were in charge. We had to sit there while they're, they're playing the fucking Scientist by Coldplay, full volume on CD player. Um, some of the things I was obliged to do were fucking humiliating. They'd come up with this really gross, insensitive item called dead fashion, right? Right. Where famous rock star deaths, such as Jeff Buckley and Mark Bolan, were restaged as fashion shoots. Oh, no! Yes, with a bit of pretentious prose to go along with it. And I had... As features editor, this was imposed on me to sort of make this happen. I had to make the phone call to clear it with Roland Bolan. Oh, and I no! Felt, I felt such a cunt telling Fuck him, hell. telling him it would be tasteful, right? <laughs> I, I fucking, I hated myself in that moment because I knew it was going to be horrible and it was fucking horrible. Also, the glooms kept over-commissioning and spiking articles, which, you know, you, as, as journalists, we, we oh, know yeah. how fucking annoying that is. Um, it's, it's hugely unprofessional. There was this, this series of city guides they were doing, and I, I went to Liverpool to do one with Lady Tron, which was fucking great. They, you know, you know, really showed me amazing stuff around Liverpool. And, you know, Bang just never ran it, which is such a waste of everyone's time and mm. very embarrassing for me, you know. Yeah. But... I would say, you know, despite all of that, despite the editor's constant interference and dicking around, right, we, we, we did manage to sneak out a few great things in, in the mag. There's there's some work, mine and by other people, that I'm proud of. Um, I'd say probably the best thing that came of it for me, though, was that I was sat next to this lugubrious northern guy called John Doran, um, yeah. who was the reviews editor, and we became really close mates. And he's now, for those who don't know, one of the editors of The Quietus yeah. and, and a brilliant author. And I probably never met him if it wasn't for Bang. But um, anyway, after, after I'd been there for six months, um, the Gloom Brothers called me in for this sort of appraisal meeting. You know, you get sort of HR kind of thing. And um, they totally gaslit me. It was an obvious case of workplace bullying. What they did was they marked me out of five on various aspects of my work. You know, quality, communication, timekeeping, creativity, whatever. And they gave me naught out of five for the first one. Then naught out of five on the second one, and then naught out of five on all of them one by one. Fuck. And at first, I was stunned 
I was stunned, but I quickly realised exactly what they were doing. They sat and looked me in the face and did that, even though we all knew it was bullshit. And what it was really about was that I was a challenge to their authority because I knew about magazines and they knew nothing, right? Yeah. So it amounted to constructive dismissal, really. Yeah. And I remember going down to Wales when we weekend and getting a call from John Doran, bless him, um, telling me that the Gloom Brothers were going to get rid of me. So I had to jump before I was pushed and right. I, I handed in my resignation on, on the Monday and... and and here's the thing, I mean, I'm so fucking glad I didn't quit my column with The Independent. I, I yeah. nearly did, because I, I had this seemingly cushy new editorial job at Bang. Mm. But I, I kept both the jobs going just in case, even if it meant working a full day at the office and then dashing up to Nottingham or Birmingham to review a gig for the Indy. Mm. And um, by the end of the year, Bang had gone out with a whimper anyway. He was down the fucking toilets. I'd have been fucked if yeah. I'd quit my job. So, yeah, that that was my uh, view of it. Um, so, yes, yeah, Sarah, what do you remember about all this? We were so hyped about it, like, wasn't it? Like, a just kind of, yes, we're going to get to do what we fucking want. Because I was frustrated. I got there at five minutes to midnight for the maker, obviously, as, as, as uh, you know, podcasts pass him. Um, and I really thought that I'd missed my chance to kind of become a good writer mm. and and be among the people who, who were my mates who had been the maker kind of front line before and this was like oh i've just got this one last kind of chance to do a thing so i was really flattered and pleased to be asked obviously and it's like yeah this is you know you can you can write in the first person everything i was like don't let me do that i'll go (laughs) mad with power but um i thought oh you know this is this is great but i wasn't completely naive you know the the maker had fallen down around my ears and i i had taken all of that in and i knew what was what and i knew that the the landscape was very treacherous you know Mm. but it was like yeah no this is going to be good and swells was on board and obviously i adored swells and we were really good friends the first editorial meeting which was like standing room only everyone crammed into this little and i swaggered down there i felt so confident that this was a great thing and i was in on the ground and it was and i did say to myself at the start like this is my last shot and if this doesn't work then i'm done and, uh, you know, and so it came to pass, really. I could have eked it out more, but I really lost heart. Yeah. I mean, I did, speaking of, like, sp- spiking features, I did a feature with the Canadian content crew, or was it Collective, one or the other, which was basically Peaches, Gonzalez, Feist, mm. Mocky, and a few other kind of assorted eccentrics. And it was great. And they played at the LA2, and I interviewed all of them. So this was, like, 20 minutes or half an hour or something with, like eight different artists and I had to crunch all of that down including like writing about the gig as well and then it got spiked just because they the Gloom Brothers changed their mind and just didn't want it anymore it's like that's not a good reason to do this but um fortunately Tommy Udo um also may he rest he was on he was on board he was news editor wasn't he yeah this is a man who once apparently held a server hostage to get them to to pay him (laughs) Yeah, he like walked in with his mate and and walked out with the server and like and they had to go around oh with ransom. They had to go uh. out and pay cash to get it back. <laughs> it was that and realizing that they were completely out of tune with all of us and just seeing how they treated people and seeing how it was going and I just kind of went, "Nah." Mm. I just lost wood completely for it. You could see from those early issues like how it could have been maybe. I mean, it's all quite scrappy and, you know, because it hadn't quite got its identity in order and maybe it could have done, but what would have had to be different? Everything, really. Mm. It became as well like a kind of expensive failure that Mm. nervous industry people could point to and go, you can't put money into magazines because look at that. It became like a cautionary tale, I think. And and we'd had thought it would be 
daring and brilliant and, and freeing and uh, oh well would a new music magazine in 2003 ever worked out because it's it's getting to the point now where traditional media is just doesn't know what the fuck to do with itself yeah. well you know what um word magazine came along at pretty much exactly the same yes. time in fact we were worried it was going to blow us out of the water but it ended up being aimed at a different demographic mm. really but yeah i mean they managed to keep going for a, a good few years yeah. obviously in in the end that you know the realities the magazine market saw that one off as well but yeah i think it was an opportunity and something could have been done i'm not saying it would have lasted forever mm. but you know um it had the potential and one of the things that frustrates me about it so much is it was such a missed opportunity yeah. but the other thing hearing sarah say what she said there just brings it home to me that apart from being disappointed for myself and disappointed for the you know the missed opportunity of a potentially great music man is that i felt really guilty because i had talked it up because I'd had these preliminary meetings with the Gloom Brothers mm. and, and we, we sat down and sort of thrashed it all out and we and we, we seemed to be on the same page about, you know, what, what kind of mag this was going to be. So as far as I knew, I had the green light to go ahead and tell people like Sarah and Taylor and Neil and various other writers, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing, guys. Come mm. over here. It'll be like, like Melody Maker at its best, but a glossy monthly. So trust in me. And then when it came to it, I couldn't fulfill that promise because it was taken out of my hands and I just felt fucking awful for leading people on like that you know what I mean it was embarrassing for me it really was you should put your mind at rest we knew it wasn't it wasn't your fault and you suffered more Mm. you know as much as anyone and and probably more so so you know just put that to rest um yeah it was such a fucking shame but I was kind of primed for it you've got to be happy and engaged and enthused on a certain level to be able to do it and I was just like I can't do it. But one of the last things that I did for it was um, I loved doing the City Guides because I was never very confident as an interviewer. And I did a decent feature with the Cardigans, but um, mm. the the City Guides, where it's like a tight format where the questions, I could always relax with those where you know mm. what the questions are going to be and you don't have to, you know, get in a knot about it. And uh, we went to Mull, oh, yeah. Mull Historical Society, which is one Ooh. one guy. Um, and so that he, he did the guide to Mull, which is tiny, tiny. It was... Uh, Tobermory, which is the pretty street overlooking the, the harbour with all the different coloured houses. Yeah. It was so beautiful. It was so absolutely flat, calm sea and just so peaceful. And we did all talk about what if we just fucked it all off and left it all behind and just came here and, <laughs> like, you know. it was It's the place that does that to you. And you that was kind of instrumental, I suppose, in my leaving London because yeah. it does nudge your head and go you don't have to be there anymore yeah there's a whole world out there <laughs> no. yeah. so and I wasn't surprised at all when it died on its ass after a year because that's what, what a lot of things did so chaps as is the star with chart music this is the time that we leave through the crates and we pull out an example of the music press on this week and this time I've gone for the NME July the 26th 2003 shall we nose through yes please on the cover James Skelly of the Coral in a pair of sunglasses with the words you must create in the top corner of one of the lenses shouting into a light bulb in the news Julian Casablancas has announced that the Strokes have one week left to finish recording their next LP Room on Fire they intend to immediately start on the mix down before nipping over to Japan for two shows at the Summer Sonic Festival and then get it ready for an autumn release. It eventually comes out at the end of October and spends a week at number two in the LP chart, held off number one by Life for Rent by Dido. 
The big news event of the month, Jack White's car crash, which left the index finger of his left hand all mangled up and that, is updated with a photo of his last appearance on stage when he made a guest appearance at the Science Farms gig in Detroit five days before. He's posted a statement on the band's website which concludes, Apologies to those wishing to see my hand live. Soon enough, I'm sure. Now me and Meg can share war stories. I love when we share, like once there was a monkey, and we shared the experience as children do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> For readers asking if the White Stripes will be able to play Reading and Leeds this year, the answer is yes, according to the organisers. They pull out a week later and are replaced by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh, for fuck's sake, man. They were so embarrassing. Black (laughs) Rebel Motorcycle Club, right? Um, I always used to call them the Mean Cool Leather Gang. Because the fucking name, (laughs) you know, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, trying so hard. Um, I I remember, it might have been um, when this, uh, you know, the the thing broke that they were stepping in for the White Stripes. I remember uh, an interview with them when they said, our ambition has always been to headline the second stage at the Reading Festival. <laughs> and like, if, if right, if that was a wry, self-deprecating joke, fair play. But I don't think it was. You know, mm. that was the kind of height of their ambition. They were, oh, um, God, they were so I, nav. No, I I loved them. They were my bottom. They were, I, I fucking loved them. They're such a pure rock and roll band. And mm. also, they were, they were <laughs> instrumental in me upping and fucking off because I realised that I didn't care to try to convince people about this like I couldn't do it even now it's just like no look they were some of the best gigs I've ever seen it was it was great I loved them so much so people like me making fun of them bullied you out of music journalism basically (laughs) going back to the strokes um I mean there's so much I could say about them about how they kind of they were hugely important bringing this kind of rebirth of cool and sharpening everything up after Everybody was really slouching about. I think the, the post-Britpop come-down lasted about four years. Yeah. 97 to 2001. Well, this is the year that the Britpop documentary Live Forever comes out. So we, people are being nostalgic about Britpop already, already in Fucking 2003. Hell. But I think what had happened was that, you know, everybody's listening to Moby and Travis and Coldplay and it's all very benign and slouchy music and baggy clothes Mm. and there's no edge to it, no sharpness. And the Strokes sort of carefully curated everything about them. The first thing anyone saw of them was a grainy black and white photo, big photo of them sitting in a cafe in New York in the Mm. NME. And it's like, oh, right, we're going back to that. And, like, you know, these these sort of good-looking young guys in leather jackets and that, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, musically, that they were zoning in on things like Cheat Trick and the Ramones and Blondie and stuff and, and television and just that yeah. particular kind of American aesthetic of sharp, uptight, new way. Mm. So they're, they're really important in, in that way. And, I, and they, they kind of changed everything. But the reason I wanted to go back to them was just because I have to say this one sentence. Julian Casablancas gave me a love bite in Nottingham. No! Yeah, Nottingham. <laughs> Fucking hell! <laughs> Yeah, I went up to review them in, um, what was that venue? Was it just called the Heavenly Social? The, um, the Social? The Social, yeah, yeah. Which was the fucking also... best pub in Nottingham. Yeah. Friday night, that's where I'd be. I'd come straight out of work, straight over to the Social, not moving until three o'clock in the morning. My mate actually went to that gig, and after um, Julian Casablancas has had his way with you, <laughs> uh, my mate crashed with them. All right. I don't know if he got a love bite. 
It might but, have got more, yeah. No. Yeah, what it was, uh, you know, I, I got chatting with them afterwards, and uh, somebody came and said, let me take a picture of you two. So uh, we stood there <laughs> posing, and while um, whoever it was was taking the picture, he leans in and gives me a hickey on my neck. It's like, oh, all right, fucking hell, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go, yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> Takes a while to really, like, engender a, a proper one, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, maybe how? I'm exaggerating. Yes. Uh, yeah, put it this way, I, I didn't exactly fight him off. Do you know what I mean? Because I, <laughs> I, thought, I thought in 18 years' time, I've got a really good story for a podcast. I don't even know what a podcast is yet, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> Did you have to wear a polo neck the next day, Simon? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I went around looking like Harry Hill, a massive collar for, you know, <laughs> yeah, for a year. Yeah. Fran Healy of Travis has been spotted at Craven Cottage, recording crowd chants at half-time of a friendly between Fulham and Celtic for the track Peace the Fuck Out on their forthcoming LP 12 Memories. Despite getting rained on again when the sprinkler system got turned on while he was conducting the away support, he gets the track in the can and gets to meet Celtic manager Martin O'Neill, who's a big fan. That's a very big deal. Martin O'Neill is a very private man. When I used to um, hang around Forest uh, in the early 80s, I'd get everyone's autograph every day apart from Martin O'Neill. He wouldn't sign anything. Yeah. I-, I hope Fran Ely realised what a big deal it is to, to, to be recognised and liked by Martin O'Neill. Yeah, maybe it's a Nottingham Because he didn't like Robbie Williams, remember? <laughs> Mega Man of So Solid Crew has spoken about being interviewed by Cypriot police in the wake of the stabbing of Dizzy Rascal in Aya Napa at the beginning of the month and how well dischuffed he is that his collective get blamed for everything. The authorities wanted to get all the black DJs off the island because of the trouble, but I told them no one would come back, he says. Muse are celebrating the relative success of their latest single release, Stockholm Syndrome, one of the first in the world to be available as a download-only release. If all the downloads had translated into single sales, it would have easily gone top 15, says a band spokesperson. We estimate that in one week, 5,000 people have downloaded it. Oh, as many as that. (laughs) But over in America, plans are foot to introduce legislation that will make it easier to bring criminal charges against people who are sharing music online, with prison sentences of up to five years being threatened. Lock them up. Courtney Love has signed a publishing deal with Tokyo Pop Incorporated to produce a manga series based on whole songs called Princess I. It's about a smart and talented yet controversial princess who is exiled to Tokyo with nothing but a heart-shaped box. Oh, we, yeah, think about it, man. Where she makes a living as a rock star and falls in love with a sensitive muso called Kent who looks <laughs> suspiciously like Kurt Cobain. The first of three novels eventually come out in the summer of 2004. Happier news for the polyphonic spree. One of their robes that was stolen in a gig in Northampton has been returned, freshly laundered and ironed. We want to thank the good people of Northampton, says a band spokesperson. It's stolen by the Gloom Brothers, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Dancing around doing weird polyphonic cosplay. (laughs) That story about the polyphonic spree and um, um, Moby's fanny-related story, that got twice as many column inches about the one about Dizzy Rascal getting stabbed. For fuck's sake. 
There we Dizzy go. Rascal was amazing around this time, by the way. Obviously, you know, the album and all that, blah, blah, blah. But I caught him live at Fabric in London. And mm. he was doing just like a sort of freestyle rap battle with, you know, a few other people and just improvising. And it just absolutely force of nature. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. I, I mean, I like his records, but just, just how he was on the microphone. No fucking backing, no no beats, nothing. Just, just going for it. Phenomenal, really was. In the interview section, well, Damon Dash, the co-founder of the Rockefeller Empire, is quizzed about his latest project, the relaunching of Victoria Beckham's career. He said he didn't know her from an hole in his arse when he was introduced to her by Naomi Campbell, but he likes her attitude and sense of humour. He doesn't give a toss at a career as nosedive in the UK because he knows how strong his music is. And he also thinks that David Beckham has got a definite hip-hop plan and he's got his hip-hop dress game down. The enemy has decided that Glasgow is the new centre of music this week, but they can only find two bands to lump into a feature. (laughs) The newly signed Franz Ferdinand get a quarter of a page where we find out that the band was formed as a party when Alex Kapranos got into a fight with Nick McCarthy when the latter nicked the former's bottle of vodka. They get round the licensing laws at their warehouse gigs by charging a quid for a raffle ticket which automatically wins a bottle of beer and their ambition is to make the world forget about that archduke that got shot in 1914. Meanwhile, dogs die in hot cars get asked about their name, how they feel about getting called the new proclaimers, and very little else. Alex Needham nips down to Raymond's review bar in Soho and waits for Alison Goldfrapp to finish having her photo taken before she gives him a guided tour of Soho. She says that the review bar was the site of one of Goldfrapp's first gigs. She used to work at Agent Provocateur and had to deal with men in raincoats having a wank. And she only does drugs at home these days. And Sensible. Can we just clear something up in case anyone's still wondering? I am not Alex Needham. <laughs> do you know Alex Needham? I do, yeah, yeah. What's he like? He's, he's a lovely guy. I think, I think he lives in Australia Because he was the fucking bane of my life in the late 90s. Really? I did a yeah. massive load of articles for Maxim and uh, put me invoicing and waited and waited and waited. And eventually I just said, look, can, can I get paid now, please? Was told that I'd already been paid. And I said he hadn't, and they checked oh. into it. They paid Alex Needham. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. It's like last year, I, I moved house into a house where the previous occupant was called Simon Price. Oh, oh no. Yeah, yeah. And um, he had set up his mail to be re-delivered to his new place. <gasps> I'd set up my mail oh, to be re-delivered mate. from my old place to this place. So my mail ended up in some kind of never-ending <laughs> vortex, and it was really <laughs> fucking hard to get it to sort it all out. It really was. It was a real head fuck. Oh, no. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know if um, they, they got that money back from Alex Needham. Now you've told me he's all right. I, I hope you kept it, Alex, wherever you are. <laughs> as long as they paid you as well. No, but you're Alberto Needham, aren't you? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. Maybe he got enough cash from this to pay for his passage to the other side of the world. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Rich Pelly links up with the next Eurodance sensation, Junior Senior. 
They tell him that they can't understand why Danish bacon is so popular over here, as it's no different from anyone else's slices of pig. They're not impressed with the Danish pastries they've tried in London. They hate being compared to Aqua, Wigfield and DJ Otzer, and they're glad that Denmark voted to reject the euro. Imran Ahmed drops in on the Morrison Hotel in Dublin for three whole pages interviewing the Coral, which gets mashed into an A to Z. We learn that James Skelly has been helping his granddad put some paving stones in his back garden. He doesn't have a mobile phone because they get on his tits, and he thinks Chris Tarrant is a fucking cunt for grabbing him by the scruff of the neck when he puts his foot on a chair that had Mr. Tiswaz's jacket on while they were waiting to be interviewed by Jonathan Ross. If I see Chris Tarrant again, I'd have a shit on his foot, he says. <laughs> This week's singles page is handled by a pool of Mark Beaumont, Chrissy Morrison and Rob Fitzpatrick. And the single of the week is No Not Now by Hot Hot Heat. This is proof that they were not just a flash in the post-rapture punk funk pan and allows them to brush off those unwelcome cure comparisons, says Morrison. It'll have you buying late new wave power pop in bulk and claiming that XTC have always been your favourite band. Well, why don't you just buy an XTC single then? <laughs> if this single was by a trio of hydraulic Mediterranean bimbos called the Ibiza Bandidos, you'd pay to have them throttled in their beds, says Beaumont of Rhythm Bandits by Junior Senior. Instead, it's by two chancing it dockers dressed like a blind run DMC and is therefore brilliant. Since 1982, over 20 million people have died of AIDS, reads the cover of Start a Fire by Radio 4, in case you get so caught up in the baggy beats and angly guitars that you miss the lyrical message that could save your life, says Morrison. If all government health warnings sounded like this, there'd be no disease. (laughs) But it's a coat down for In Love by Lisa Mafia. While her career so far has been spent attempting to convince us what a tough old bird she is, the rose among so solid thorns has given up her guns for chocolates and a table for two. But unfortunately, along with her heart, she's also lost her cool, states Morrison. Lisa, if you came round to our door singing this, we'd set Dizzy Rascal on you. Hideout by fuck sounds like the strokes chasing the wedding present on a knackered jogging machine. You were the last high by the dandy Warhols is like the mid-80s electro-melodics of New Order at their tranquil loveliest. And if Noel Gallagher had stretched himself a little further than simply hammering the arse out of the uninteresting end of the Beatles catalogue, he might have come up with Morning Wonder by the Hiss, according to Rob Fitzpatrick. Ooh, fucking hell. It's safe to slag off Oasis now. We're in a new yeah. era. They changed their mind on that, though, didn't they? Yeah. They came crawling back up the Gallagher arsehole pretty soon. Yeah. In the LP review section, the main review is given over to Take Them On On Your Own by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, and James Oldham reckons it's a sensational album for many reasons. A fearsome confirmation that music can still act as a radicalised form of protest. The sonics are so full and heavy they make the yeah, yeah, yeahs sound like 
leaves being blown down a street. Take them on, on your own, is a masterpiece. You should get hold of it as soon as possible. Nine out of ten. Right on. Mondo Generator, another Queens of the Stone Age spin-off project, have put out their second LP, A Drug Problem That Never Existed, and Barry Nicholson is impressed. This record may not be as wild-eyed and rabid as 2000's Cocaine Rodeo, but it's loaded with more illicit sex, insanity and glam-punk brilliance than you can shake Satan's pitchfork at. 7 out of 10. But it's a mild coat down for Truly She Is None Other by Holly Golightly. If it came bursting out of some crackly 10-inch piece of vinyl you bought for too much money on eBay, you'd think it was incredible. But it was made in 2003 and, as such, can only ever be really quite good, says Rob Fitzpatrick. 6 out of 10. The Forever Changes concert by Love could well be the perfect record, according to James Jam. Longview are dismissed as sad Chester middleweights by Tim Wilde, and their debut LP Mercury is the sound of a great band who have had all their interesting edges knocked off. And Rob Fitzpatrick announces that Killing Joke by Killing Joke, with Dave Grohl on drums, is, after the latest Jane's Addiction release, another comeback record that isn't embarrassing rubbish. In the gig guide, David could have seen Junior Senior at the Mean Fiddler, Sex Maniacs at Highbury Corner Garage, Roachford at Oldgate Each Spitz, or Cunts at the Brixton Windmill, but definitely didn't. I mean, fucking hell, we've already discussed whether David would have seen Panties in 1978. <laughs> That's a hell of a double bill, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Cunts and panties together at last. Yes. Mr. Sex in between them. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor could have seen Funeral for a Friend at the Birmingham Academy 2 and fuck all else. Neil could have seen the Bobs at the Coventry Coliseum or gone to Wolverhampton to see Marina Topley Bird at the Little Civic. Sarah could have seen Harmar Superstar at the Leeds Cockpit, yes. Shed 7 at the Hull Wellington, the motherfuckers at Sheffield Grapes, <laughs> or dogs dying hot cars at the Sheffield Boardwalk. Why didn't they put the motherfuckers and the cunts together? <laughs> uh, just let them fight it out. This would have been and fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a golden age for band names that, that yeah. aren't particularly asked about going on top of the pubs. Yeah, I think fuck buttons were around that time as well, weren't they? Yeah. Al could have seen Jesse Sykes and the Sweet Hereafter at the Maze, or gone to Derby to see Ron Sexsmith at the Nerve Centre, and Simon could have seen Rocket Science at the Cardiff Barfly, Funky Monkey at the Barfly, and Miss Black America at Club Evo Bach. In the letters page, my nemesis, who turned out to be a nice bloke, really, Alex Needham, is in the chair this week. I wonder if he ever got a pro to say, you that bloke who writes all that shit about sex? And be on sex and shopping talking bollocks. Yeah, and how do you wear half a condom? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you sort of sitting there confused like that guy Gomar bloke on, you know, the BTV channel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And the main topic of conversation is the darkness and their appearance at tea in the park. 
After their tequila slammer of a set, I was amazed to hear some moaning minis complaining that they obviously weren't real, didn't mean it, and had donned the leotards as a marketing gimmick. Get to fuck, writes James McTavish of Edinburgh. Who gives a galloping shit? People get so hung up on authenticity, but sorry, when the sun's shining and the lager's flowing, I want to be entertained. The darkness rock. And that's what matters. Yes, I get the joke, but it's just not funny, counters Daniel Whelan via email. Never before has one band managed to steal all the Manic's crap points without any of the good ones. If we all ignore them, they'll go away and we'll never have to look at their bad teeth again. If I wanted to watch some rubbish novelty tribute band, I'd get a fucking season ticket for stars in their eyes, says Steve-O via email. I have written to Michael Evis demanding one two hundredth of my Glastonbury ticket price back for waking me up on Friday morning with their squealing comedy shit. Simon, I remember when we were arguing the toss on internet forums back in 2003, the, the darkness was a hill you were prepared to die on 2,000 times. Listen, man, that band were the band who were giving me life more than anyone in that era. And I, mm. I kind of discovered them. I'm going to give myself credit for that. Ooh. What happened was, um, back in spring 2001, um, a woman I knew called Valerie Gerrimond, who was the promoter of a night called The Fan Club that happened at the Virgin Kentish Town, urged me to check out this new band she was putting on with what I thought was a shit gothic-sounding name. Mm. Um, so I, I went along a bit reluctantly, but I was absolutely blown away. And I, I wrote their first ever live review in The Independent on Sunday. In this review, I've got a little quote. I described them as being... A histrionic, high-camp heavy metal band, best described as a gay ACDC. Gay ACDC, if you will. <laughs> I mean, ACDC is already a sort of gay name. Yes. Fronted by a young Freddie Mercury. Hugely entertaining, regardless of their exact location on the irony to seriousness scale. Mm. So that's what I wrote. And I remember them treating this small pub gig like it was Wembley. And I loved that about <laughs> them. I mean, Justin Hawkins was getting a roadie to give him a piggyback around the room and moving through the you know fairly sparse crowd high-fiving everyone as he played guitar <laughs> and i loved that i mean their music was just shameless obviously we've all heard it but fucking joyful fist in the air fun mm. i mean the songs are brilliant and they fucking genuinely rocked and also right they put a trestle table with loads of pizza slices at the back of the room so um, <laughs> for everyone to help themselves. So that's a tip for up-and-coming bands. If you want to get audiences and critics on site, give them pizza. Yeah, um, or, or a buffet at least. Yeah, yeah so, so a buffet. It was really, really a nice touch. And, um, and send they, Neil along to review the buffet. Yeah, and yeah, oh, well, you've got to put crisps out if Neil's there. Mm. Yeah, fucking hell. Um, and yeah, and, and uh, well, whether he'll touch your sandwiches is really the mark of... Definitely. But the darkness, they, they were just so unlike anything else that was around. And and I emailed absolutely everyone in the music industry who I had in my email contacts list and just said, you have to see this band. And I'm genuinely not taking credit for getting them signed, but I did everything I could to help with the kind of buzz that mm. was naturally growing around them. And we, we became good mates. We worked together a lot. I even DJed several of their gigs and after shows and birthdays. And it was just such a pleasure and a joy to watch this band who I championed when they were at pub level, making it all the way to Brit Awards and headlining mm. festivals and playing Wembley and all that. And the fact that some boring bastard indie kids who wrote for the enemy or read the enemy 
didn't like them only made me love them more you know yeah and when the darkness became too big to ignore and you've mentioned the glastonbury thing there they, they were just this reality that the enemy couldn't sort of like laugh off anymore conor mcnicholas who was the editor of enemy at the time approached justin hawkins at glastonbury to beg him for forgiveness um <laughs> to beg him to forgive enemy and to give them an interview and justin made him literally get on his knees backstage at glastonbury no. and grovel and he did it yeah yeah oh. i fucking love that thing with connor is right and he was a weird one he he wasn't from enemy world he wasn't immersed in indie rock and uh, he was a dance music journalist he'd been at ministry and mix mag and music mm. and things like that and you know his job after the enemy was he went to be a motoring journalist um right he, he actually looked like one of the strokes I, and i i liked him despite myself because i was the last japanese soldier in the jungle you know i was still fighting yeah. the war even though melody maker was long gone so i hated enemy on principle uh, yeah. and and i was also at odds with what it was doing and i i was always taking pot shots at enemy from my Sunday newspaper bunker, and then mm. because um, enemy at that time, and I don't know, um, maybe it's sort of partly come across in this issue, and maybe it's not a, a, a good example of it, but it, it was fixated on the idea of cool, specifically this kind of hipster understanding of cool mm. that was being formed in Hoxton and also Williamsburg, and the yeah. enemy was also enthralled to this really reductive, like Jack Daniels swilling, Keith Richards idolising yeah. idea of rock and roll, mm. you know, which I found kind of embarrassing. And they were glorifying that whole smackhead culture that surrounded the Libertines as well, you know. Yeah. And um, and throughout that decade, they, they were just too keen to provide a platform for all those tedious posh boys and girls like Razor Light and Florence the Machine and Jamie T and Jack Pinate and Kate yeah. Nash and all that lot. Basically pulling up the castle drawbridge and making pop into an upper class playground i i hated that mm. and the other thing that was going on in the enemy at that time it was the age of advertorial i don't, I don't know if you saw any oh, examples yes. of this did you well basically right they saw no contradiction between naming a tour the rock and roll riot tour right mm. an enemy sponsored tour and having <laughs> it sponsored by o2 and samsung yes for fuck's sake and it, it was during connor's six-year reign enemy that NME became this brand. It was like a logo. The enemy, it wasn't so much a magazine anymore. And they, they were always fortunate. I think David Stubbs has mentioned this before that, you know, NME had this nice blocky logo that, yeah. that looks good on a t shirt or a badge or whatever. So it became this brand. So there was a website. There was the NME Awards came back. There were these package tours. There were sponsorship tie ins with Shockwaves hairspray and all these other lifestyle <laughs> yes. brands. And, and they, they, they were. Yeah, and they were selling T-shirts th- under the enemy banner, you know, the band T-shirts, not enemy T-shirts. They were selling tickets for gigs. It was just this ugly corporate kind of lifestyle monstrosity. But they must have been doing something right because the weird thing was, despite the fact that the music press was having its ass kicked by new forces at this time, um, sales of the enemy actually went up slightly under Connor's reign. Right. And, um, uh, when, whenever I ran into him in person, he was nice to me, despite all my sniping and slagging. Mm. And I've got to say, I've actually got a sneaking amount of respect for him that Justin Hawkins says, get down on your knees. And he fucking did it. So no. fair play to him. When I read that Nathan from the Kings of Leon said, I'd rather have a son in a band than a daughter that's at the club trying to get with the guy in the band in yes. NME, I couldn't gosh darn believe it, writes Condoleezza Rice's fallopian tube via email. 
Here I was all this hair time thinking that girls could actually be in bands ourselves instead of just being mere groupies. It's so refreshing in 2003 to see such a forward-thinking band who sound and look like a parody of good old rehashed 70s rock cliches. Hayden wants to know who Cosmic Rough Riders think they are. James DeMello points out that the Coral's latest single is a direct nick of You Like Me Too Much by the Beatles. And Princess Fairy thanks the enemy for the cover-mounted condoms in an issue last month as her boyfriend gave her her first double orgasm with them. <laughs> 52 pages, £1.40. I never knew there was so little in it. It's a very patchy thing the enemy by this time Mm. gone down in size gone down in pagination the articles are bitty as fuck and you you go through it and you think well this is nicely laid out and everything but you feel so sorry for the people writing in it and so sorry for the bands and artists who are being covered in it because it's proper nm heat by this time Mm. heat did so much damage to the music press yeah there were a lot of listicles in the enemy around this time and one of their most sort of totemic ones was the cool list that they they publish every now and then was like Mm. the 50 coolest people in the world and it always seemed to be like Karen O from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's at number one. And it was all those people that were eventually sort of collated in the book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, about that whole cocaine-y New York scene of of the noughties. And Mm. yeah, it it just seemed like they were all kissing America's arse. In a way that 10 years earlier, I guess Melody Maker was kissing sort of America's grungy arse, you know. Mm. But yeah, it was was all sort of fixated on, on these indie celeb personalities and what they were up to. Pop stars at this time are celebrities who happen to make music and the way they keep themselves famous is by making music and putting it out every now and then. But that's not their real job anymore. Their real job is to be somebody famous. I don't know. I mean, obviously, Smash Hits was, was great in its in its pomp, but um, I suppose it has a lot to answer for in terms of the influence of, of format in that way. Mm. But a lot of the joy had gone out of it, I guess. It's like, you know, a list... I'd, I love, you know, I love a good list. I love, like the daftness that you can put into these things but you've got to get it right it's such a such a dicey thing and when it's like transparently chasing after audiences yeah. i mean we all know how that goes you know it's it's when you're chasing after people who aren't there or you're pandering to people who realize that you're pandering to them it's yeah mm. i mean obviously the maker did this as well it's like putting like non-music people on the cover or whatever it's like ha- hang on Zoe what? Ball or whatever, it's like yeah. yeah it's like a sort of weird category error that's going on it's like but that's not a what you know, mm. like the sex issue and stuff with like Kelly Brook. I interviewed yeah. Kelly Brook actually. She was a sweetheart. She didn't know what she was doing there mm. either. She was really sweet because she was quite dim, but she was really a, she was really self aware about it, <laughs> which was so endearing. She was kind of like, well, I don't know what I don't know why you want to interview me for this, but okay, you know, yeah, because it was all the same to her. But yeah, culturally, it was all starting to get a little bit of a mishmash that that was a bit queasy. I mean, the last magazine job I had was a few years ago. I was working for a celebrity magazine, and my job was to sit on the Associated Press wires. As soon as a news item came up, jump on it, cut and paste it, amend it just a little bit, give it a title that was SEO friendly, Mm. and try and get it out before everybody else did. Yeah. And we're seeing the beginning of this here. Everything's celebrity-related. You're not really learning much about the bands or the artist and the people writing it aren't learning how to be proper journalists because they're not being given the space to do that i mean i did i did a a couple of days at heat online and that was just weird it was just because i did all kinds of bits and bobs of work around this time 
I, I did do some some odd bits of music stuff subsequently. I did some stuff for like the BBC music website, and yeah. and then I lost any inclination to do that as well. But um, yeah, I I was never going to like pivot to do celebrity stuff because it was just too odd. Yeah, but it was starting to the walls were kind of closing in a bit, and it was starting to become this kind of homogenous thing. Yeah. It's all meant to be zingy and fun and exciting, and you don't feel that it's quite hard to fake it, you know. Yeah. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day at 6am with breakfast. Then it's Kilroy, House Call in the Country, where assorted TV presenters tell the unemployed pensioners, kids on their six-week holiday, and anybody else stuck at home watching BBC One on a weekday morning about what houses they should be buying. Then it's Garden Invaders, House Invaders, Trading Treasures, the proto-flog-it, Passport to the Sun, the docu-soap about British people in Majorca. Then it's BBC News, regional news in your area, Neighbours, Cash in the Attic, Diagnosis Murder, more news, more regional news in your area. Then it's the Tweenies, Arthur, Rugrats, The Basil Brush Show, the film show Call the Shots, a repeat of Neighbours, then the 6 o'clock news, regional news in your area again, and they've just finished a repeat of the episode of Open All Hours, where Granville minds the shop while Arkwright goes to a funeral. BBC Two starts at 6.30am with Fimbles, The Adventures of Marco and Gina, Sheep, the Ovine-centric cartoon series, Then You Get Meh, the interactive drama series about yous running an internet radio station, followed by Round the Twist, News Round, Tom and Jerry Kids... And the role reversal reality show, Rule the School, where a group of kids educate a pool of young teachers. After a dragon interrupts an important baseball game in the Scooby and Scrappy show, It's Smart, <laughs> the shaking take heart, which teaches the youth how to make a personalised mobile phone holder. Then it's Mona the Vampire, Tweenies... Possibly the episode where they do their own episode of Top of the Pops and one of them imitates Jimmy Savile, which oh, received yeah. 213 complaints <laughs> when it was accidentally repeated in 2013. <gasps> oh my God. And Clifford the Big Red Dog. After Miss Hooley does something for the oldens by organising a fish supper in Balamore, it's Rubber Dubbers, CBB's Birthdays and a Laurel and Hardy double bill. After the business show Working Lunch, we get to look at the Orkneys and Pembrokeshire in this land before being whipped over to Ascot for the racing, hosted by Willie Carson and fucking Bunte. That's followed by Escape to the Country, Ready Steady Cook, The Weakest Link, the episode of The Simpsons with Elton John in it, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Robot Wars Extreme, and they've just started the Royal Horticultural Society Flower Show at Tatton Park with Monty Don and Charlie Dimmock. ITV kicks off at 6am with GMTV, followed by Trisha, This Morning and Loose Women. After the lunchtime news and regional news in your area, it's Under One Roof, a repeat of Quincy, Yes Chef, more news, more regional news in your area, then the kids' show Squeak, followed by Hey Arnold, Rescue Robots, My Parents Are Aliens, Boot Sale Challenge, and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Classic, i.e. a repeat.
Then it's regional news in your area, the ITV Evening News, Emmerdale, and they've just started Coronation Street. Channel 4 commences with a double bill of the Jim Henson Alien on Earth kids programme The Hoobs, followed by Rise, Pop World, a repeat of last night's Big Brother's Little Brother, then a repeat of last night's Big Brother. Then it's over to Edge Baston for the second day of the first test between England and South Africa, which runs all the way to 6.15. Then it's Hollyoaks, Channel 4 News, and they've just started highlights for the first day of the Rally Deutschland in the World Rally Championship. Channel 5? Nah, who gives a toss? <laughs> Fucking hell, that is a packed television schedule and a very familiar television schedule. There's not much difference between now and then, is there? A lot of familiar names there, like, you know, Loose Women and so on. Yeah. But I don't think I was watching any of that. I just wasn't watching TV around this time. Maybe Pop World, I thought, I don't know if that was Simon Amstel's era, but I thought he was really good. Mm. And, and Mikita Oliver as well. I thought they were great. Yeah. On there. And it was, it was one of those shows that was aimed at kids but when it was shown on a sunday morning it was just great hungover viewing for people yeah. being out at a nightclub and yeah I, I i thought it was a good show i used to work with the guy who was the jimmy savile tweeny no <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's a very just a, a very tall man so he did uh he, he did some writing but he also did some acting and uh yeah so he was on the front cover of the sun when that whole scandal broke in his, you know, he's very sort of tall and lanky with the big head on. He just thought it was, the whole thing was quite hilarious because nobody knew it was him. You know, no. he didn't actually get tracked down. He didn't have people. So he didn't get cancelled through no fault of his own. It was- so he didn't get tracked down like the sex Teletubber. <laughs> no, fortunately. I mean, we might have, you know, because I was him. like in an office with him. We could have had the paps at the door and everything, yeah. but fortunately we didn't. So uh- Mention of um, Rescue Robot and um, Robot Wars Extreme reminded me. Mm. I haven't told you about the third job I was doing in 2003, which was uh, running my club night. Ooh. Yeah, I was running um, a night called Stay Beautiful. It'd been going a couple of years. Um, it ended up lasting for 10 years in London and another five in Brighton. And what it was, it was basically a, a place, a home for a subculture that didn't really have a name, but was out there and existed. And mm. obviously Stay Beautiful is named after a Manic Street Preacher's song. So it's partly coming from that kind of um, subculture of, of, you know, Richie Edwards fans, but also people who are into Hole and Placebo and maybe Manson with a S-U-N mm. and maybe bands like Kanicki and, and kind of new glam bands like Rachel Stamp and King Adora and all of this. So basically there was this tribe of people who didn't have a name, but you'd see them. They wear a lot of eyeliner and glitter and leopard and feather boas and all that. And uh, they would coalesce around certain bands and certain gigs, but there were no club nights for them. And I decided just to sort of do a night that brought this together. And it ended up becoming this kind of self-perpetuating little tribe to itself. It, it, mm. it really was its own its own scene. And um, uh, the thing is, um, and I, was, I was running with, with, with my then girlfriend and one of my best mates. And we kept having to move from one venue to another. We could never get a weekend night to start off with. We were fucking running on a Monday, you know, in, in London, which oh. wasn't, wasn't ideal. Then then Wednesday. Eventually we got Friday in uh, Islington, but uh, we got booted out of that. Um, we ended up going to this place in London Bridge. It was called Club Wicked. Um, it was previously known as Cynthia's Robotic Bar. 
Oh right. yes, yes, I've been yeah. there. I'm, I bet you have because I'm coming on to the. <laughs> I'm coming on to exactly why I think you might have been there. <laughs> so uh, it was in Tooley Street in the underpass beneath London Bridge, yeah. and it had an actual robot. Yes, that would serve you cocktails. This metal Mickey type thing mm. called Cynthia, and another one called <laughs> Rastus. Cynthia and Rastus, the robots. They were a bit shit. I never actually got them successfully to pour me a drink, but they were there anyway. But it was run by this guy. He was a former police officer called Brian Sheridan, and. Uh, uh, he was um, a sort of fetish lord, and um, we didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for when we got involved <laughs> in this in this venue. I found a newspaper story about what went on there. Basically, around the time that we moved in there and started doing Stay Beautiful once a month, they um, that this is Brian Sheridan and his wife Lady Caroline, a writer of erotic fiction. I'm <laughs> going to come on to that. Um, they were trying to get a license for. Cynthia's or Club Wicked as they renamed it to become a live sex club where people could just go and have sex in public in front of other people mm. you know that that was kind of unprecedented in London and there were all <laughs> kinds of legal obstacles to it and they were trying to find a workaround where you could pay 25 quid to be a member and it becomes a private club and stuff like that but I, I found um, a, a newspaper story about all of this about what they were trying to do I'm going to read it out now it goes former police officer Brian Sheridan known as the general due to his penchant for military uniforms and his wife Lady Caroline a writer of erotic fiction say that their arrival in SE1 was quite deliberate and well researched we wanted a fast and up and coming area with easy access to the city with no or minimal competition the Sheridans are well known figures on the fetish scene where opinions are divided about their business style and personal tastes. Mm. Brian, a self-styled World War II historian, says that <laughs> World War II uniforms are his fetish. In my opinion, the World War II German uniforms uh. are highly glamorous and erotic, he wrote in response to criticisms on a London fetish message board. Flyers for previous promotions have featured the couple in full SS uniform. <laughs> Fancy uh, that, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a quote from him now. Uh, we are not Nazis or fascists, says Brian Sheridan, who goes on to add that the British have committed more terrible atrocities than anyone over the last 1,000 years. We make the Nazis look like they're in kindergarten. <laughs> right, so that, that gives you an idea of, of you know, the, the, these people. They're never interested in dressing up like the home guard, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. Exactly, exactly. So I went there for a business meeting just to try and, try and sort of, um, you know, um, pin down what our deal was going to be. And I went in the middle of the afternoon, um, probably on a weekday, and I saw someone strapped to an apparatus getting their bare arse spanked <laughs> with a paddle by a man in a latex Nazi stormtrooper outfit and that was Brian Sheridan the general what on his dinner hour well they just helped they, they just had stuff going on in yeah in the daytime and I think it's because they were so close to the city and uh, you know quite quite a lot of the people who went there were sort of quite well-to-do professionals mm. and the thing is right most places where Stay Beautiful had happened we were the freaky wild ones yeah the club the crowd was quite our, our crowd was very LGBTQ friendly and um, you know very dressed up very glam very punk a club wicked we were the squares we yeah. were the prudes you know and then um, what ended up happening because we we had a really good run there it wasn't a long run but we had a load of really good nights so um we had things like like peaches uh, the aforementioned peaches came to dj for us one time and that wow. was a real coup we had sylvain sylvain for the new york dolls bless him r.i.p um, it was oh that was a fucking weird one because uh, he knew he was meant to be doing an hour 
and he only brought 30 minutes worth of songs. And I didn't know that. And I'm stood next to him just making sure nothing's going wrong. With about 30 seconds left on his last song, he says, right, well, that's it. I've got no more. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, I had to suddenly leap into my record box and just grab something New Yorky, like a Blondie record, mm. stick it on. And from then on, it was amazing because what he did was he would take the microphone and I would sort of like put on sort of New York punk type records and, and he would just sort of narrate them and say, oh, yeah, well, I remember walking down to 53rd and 3rd where I first met Johnny Ramone and this kind of stuff (laughs) and it ended up being this amazing DJ set and we had Mira from Lady Tron and um, I think what it was was we were quite close to South Bank Centre and our run there coincided with the Meltdown Festival and they had a really forward looking booker called Glenn Max and a lot of these bands like like the New York Dollars were playing there and then they would come over and DJ for us Um, and it was a lovely venue it was this kind of chrome and mirror plated well, dungeon, really, cavern and under, mm. under London Bridge. I loved it, but the reason it came to an end was because of Brian Sheridan trying to get this license for it to be a live sex club. Yeah. And there was pushback, not f- just from the local police, but from Southwark Cathedral, which is, <laughs> if, if you know where it is, it's, it's right at, at one end of London Bridge, yeah. it's just right there. The Dean of Southwark Cathedral, the very Reverend Colin Slee, started getting involved in the campaign to have Wicked shut down. And it was very difficult for the police or anyone to shut it down under existing laws because it was all a bit vague. The only law that they could really use, there was something from 250 years earlier called the Disorderly Houses Act. Right. I mean, it was a pretty fucking disorderly house. To be, There's a lot of disorder going on in that house. (laughs) But um, uh, there was another... um, uh, when the scandal was going on, there was a, there was a, a story in, in the uh, Evening Standard from a woman called Alexa Balakaya, who, who did that thing. She wrote that kind of "I made my excuses and yes. left" kind of article. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so here's a bit. She goes, um, "As my taxi drew up in Tooley Street, I thank goodness that my outfit, skin tight black PVC cat suit, killer heels, and a buckled leather neck strap." <laughs> was not too outre. <laughs> and then she meets um, uh, um, Caroline Sheridan, the wife of uh, uh, of the general. And, and it's, tonight she was Lady Caroline and wearing an outrageous blonde wig and studded leather straps that displayed her ample naked breasts. And so on. And basically just sort of titillating the, the readership of, of the standard in a way that possibly contributed to the eventual mm. decision of uh, a hearing at Southwark Town Hall to shut Wicked down and then make Stay Beautiful homeless. Sadly, oh. but it was it was a ride. It was a fucking wild ride while we were there. Anyway, it was so. Did you ever go there then? I did a few interviews there. It was always a good venue to interview and do photo shoots. Yeah, I, did, I didn't partake. No, all right, they all say that. I didn't have <laughs> sex with anybody while loads of people watched. You weren't wanked off by a robot. Not that time, anyway. No, no, no yeah, no. right. <laughs> fucking hell. The, the other thing I've just remembered about this, and I, I was so proud of our crowd for this, is that. Um, we happened to be doing our night while that fucking bellend, David Blaine, was hanging in a Perspex cube mm. from a crane. Do you remember this? He was like living in a Perspex yes. cube with no food or anything for however long it was um, near London Bridge. Mm. And um, when it was like 3am and our crowd were kicked out, they all just went along there with fucking Big Macs and Burger Kings, like waving them at him, going, ah, wanker, and stuff like that. And I, <laughs> I just thought, I love you guys. <laughs> all right, then, Pop Craze Youngsters, it is now time to go way back to July of 2003. Always remember we may coat down your favorite band or artist but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have 
We've got intruders in the building and they're eyeing up our talent. Oi, teacher, leave those kids alone. It's still number one. It's Top of the Pops. It's half past seven on Friday, July the 25th, 2003, and Top of the Pops, as is its want in its waning years, is on its arse. The falling ratings of the show and calls for its demise has been an oft-due stick which the tabloids have beaten the BBC with ever since the early 90s and the show has been locked into a pattern of low ratings leading to a new producer, leading to a makeover, leading to rising ratings, leading to falling ratings, leading to another producer and so on and so on panel it seems like top of the pops has been on death row for 10 years by this point what's what's the reason for that i mean there's kind of lots of reasons and and no reason i guess Mm. primarily anything that's been going for this long it's kind of not a natural lifespan for a show is it you know it's like animals kind of when you see like really old animals they always look really weird because nature kind of does them in when they're still young. The show's been going for 40 years and it sort of lost its way in that profound and irreparable way that long-running mm. things generally do. It's like the centre cannot hold. Whatever you're doing, if you've been doing it for so long that like nobody who was involved in it at the start is still involved, that culture has changed, every element has changed and there are such forces being brought to bear on it that like nothing can survive that pressure it's like the simpsons has now been bad for mm. longer than it was great and its legacy is completely secure and it will yeah. always have been a great show but you know it, it is not what it was and the same thing has happened to top of the pops really is that everything about it has changed and there's a kind of self-consciousness mm-hmm. when you start to focus intently on every aspect of a thing and try to analyse like, and micromanage what exactly is going wrong and what's right and what do we like and what do we not like? Who's the audience? What side of the bed do they get out of in the morning? Hmm. How many eyelashes do they have? You can end up sort of destroying things by just overanalyzing them. Mm. When you start a thing, there's an innocence about it and everyone is, let's put on a music show, we'll have some bands, it'll be lovely. And then... After a few decades, you're like, but do people still like this? And why? And why not? And that process, I think, is just like, it's just death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? Mm. I like this idea of uh, TV shows having a natural longevity like animals. It's like the hay flick limit. Do you know about that? No. Yeah, it's this theory. I, I learned it from uh, going to one of those Gunther von Hagen's uh, exhibitions, you know, where he, he plastinates yeah. human bodies. Oh, um, yeah. It's, it's this theory that um, biological cells in, in an animal's body or human body can only replicate themselves a finite number of times and then you just conk out. Mm. This is why immortality is not a thing. Although there are um, things that do challenge that. For example, lobsters. Lobsters. lobsters yeah, yeah. Which, which <laughs> some some types of lobster can live to be at least sort of 700 until some arsehole catches them and boils them in a pan. But yeah, the hay flick limit for, for television programmes possibly is a thing. I was wondering about Top of the Pops in 2003 and... It had a few predators out there, as mm. as do lobsters, but the internet was not yet really one of them. Uh, no. and the internet was still in its infancy, and YouTube hadn't even been launched yet, I think I'm right in saying. No. So, in terms of getting your f- visual fix of pop, um, the internet really wasn't killing it. But what the internet was doing no. was changing the way people... Um, kind of got together as music fans and how you construct your identity as a music fan which in the past it would always be a consensual group effort that you would be 
a rude boy or a metaler or, or a hip-hop kid, but you would be doing it kind of in definition against everything else that was going on, and it was in the context mm. of everything else that was going on. It would still have a nod to the rest of the world and be part of that world. And it was much easier by the early years of the millennium to consume your music and to construct your tribal identity. Mm. It's not just the centre cannot hold. The, the, the centre wasn't even there and being looked at. It, you know, Top of the Pops was yeah. originally central to, to culture. But it sort of didn't play that role anymore. So once upon a time, you know, it would gather everything in, all these genres, every genre, every little scene, it would gather in the sort of most popular versions of that and then amplify them and make them more popular again, whether you're, you know, a jangly indie band like Orange Juice or a horrible heavy metal band like Motorhead, mm. it would still have the function of taking you to the next level and then bringing you into the homes of people in shitty little towns who don't get to see gigs. Yeah. And I, I think that that had kind of gone by the millennium i really do top of the pops was one of the bbc's flagship shows alongside things like match of the day and panorama but none of those other shows got fucked about with as badly as top of the pops did Mm. by the time top of the pops had moved out to fridays the charts had moved from tuesdays to sundays which meant the charts were even more out of date by the time it got on top of the pops yeah because i suppose cd uk on itv would would be less than 24 hours after top of the pops but dealing with a brand new chart Mm. Because essentially CD UK was using the midweek chart, wasn't it? You know, yeah. sort of a spoiler for the you know the Sunday That's evening right, chart. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in the fast moving world of pop, um, I, I suppose Top of the Pops was looking pretty stale by the time Friday came yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, and of course with Countdown UK, when that became a thing, it turned out the bands were more interested in being on that than they were on Top of the Pops because if you can get your shit out in front of the kids on a Saturday morning just before they're going into town with their pocket money, it, it's a better situation for them. That's a very clever bit of programming. Mm. It's weird how it becomes. You know, it, it's just it's not cool anymore. I mean the the kind of the great thing about it is that it was never cool in some way but it kind of was by default Mm. i think and i mean it's very snazzy at this point but the trouble is as we know as we have experienced in in our careers once you start trying to chase an audience and pander to them like people know Mm, when they're being pandered to yeah even even dickheads know when you know they go wait a minute you're pandering to me yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's kind of, it's just turning that way. And that's, you know, it's kind of in the, the, the death spiral. of it's, it's the poochie stage of Top of the Pops, <laughs> isn't it, this? It really is. They've rasterized this episode of Top of the Pops by 10%. <laughs> However, there has been a steady hand on this tiller for the past six years. And his name is Chris Cowett. Born in Sunderland in 1961, Chris Cowie went to Rye Hope Comprehensive School, where his English and drama teacher was Malcolm Garrett, who came to national attention in the mid-70s when his school production of the David Essex film Stardust made the cover of The Enemy and was filmed for an episode of the London weekend art show Aquarius. After the broadcast of that programme, Gary was approached out of the blue by a viewer called David Putnam, who persuaded him to pack up teaching and get involved in TV. After Gary landed a job as a researcher at Time Tees, he would regularly get former pupils, including Kawe, involved, and in 1979, Kawe was filmed and interviewed at his night job, DJing at the local Mecca Ballroom for Time Tees' new pop programme, All Right Now. 
After the interview, he was approached by Angela Wanfor, the head of Time Teaser's kids' programming, and invited to audition for a presenting gig. He was immediately picked up by the station and given the job of co-presenting Check It Out, a local bi-weekly youth show which is best known nowadays for the interview with Public Image Limited, which they commenced by showing the band a film of local band The Angelic Upstarts being interviewed by Kawe as they took a stroll along the Tyne, where they accused John Lydon of selling out and being an old man, called Public Image the worst band ever and stated that the Sex Pistols would have been a hundred times better with Jimmy Percy as their lead singer, which led to Lydon tossing his mic at Cowie and walking off set and also effing as well as jeffing. <laughs> After all right now and check it out, wound down in 1982, Gary was given the job of producing a new Time Tease pop show for the brand new Channel 4, The Tube. And while Cowie was still working as a presenter, he also became a trainee researcher on the show and by the mid-80s had worked his way up the ranks to become involved with tube specials and outside broadcasts. In 1987, just before the tube was phased out, Cowie went freelance as an assistant producer and linked up with Gary and Wanfor's new production companies, leading him to get involved with Wired, Big World Cafe, The White Room, Jonathan Ross Presents, Channel 4's mid-90s coverage of Glastonbury and linking up with Gary again to co-produce the first televised Brit Awards since the Fleetwood Fox debacle. In the spring of 1997, while he and Gary were working on creating a TV version of the Pepsi chart show for Channel 5, he was approached by the BBC to take over from Rick Blacksell as the producer of Top of the Pops and rescue a programme that was on the verge of being axed. Once installed as the new boss of the Pops, he reinforced changes that had already been set in motion by the interim producer Mark Wells, such as phasing out the practice of celebrity guest presenters and replacing them with a pool of Radio 1 DJs and CBBC presenters, and getting acts to record performances in the studio in advance before their new singles had been released in order to use them when they actually made the charts. He also scrapped Red Hot Pop by Vince Clark as the theme tune in preference of crashing straight into the first single of the night. More importantly, he clamped right down on videos unless absolutely necessary, telling record companies that if they wanted their acts on the show, they would have to appear on set or not at all. This culminated in the most complaints ever made for an episode of Top of the Pops in December of 1997, when he was told that the Teletubbies, who had got to number one that week, would be unable to appear in the studio because they never left Teletubby land. <laughs> Leading Cowie to play the video for only 40 seconds at the end. Yeah, fuck you, Tipsy Whipsy, or whatever the fuck you called. In May of 1998, he commissioned a new-ish theme tune, a drum and bass version of Whole Lot of Love, a new, cleaner, 60s-inspired branding, which he plastered all over the set. Then, in 2001, the BBC decided to push EastEnders out to four episodes a week, which would require more space at Elstree, meaning that Top of the Pops had to squat at the Riverside Studios for a bit and was eventually brought back to its spiritual home in Television Centre in a studio built to Cowie's exact specifications and relaunched once again. 
While Cowie was being credited for writing the ship, adding on an extra 3 million viewers by the end of his first year, his paymaster sought out new revenue streams for the Pops, franchising the show out to Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands and Turkey, with the BBC version being exported to 87 countries, sometimes intact, other times with a local presenter doing the links. This, alongside the Top of the Pops magazine, which was first published in 1995 as a rival to Smash It's and was selling half a million copies a month at its peak, video and DVD sales of Top of the Pops performances and a compilation CD series meant that Top of the Pops was bringing in an estimated £20 million a year to the BBC coffers. In 2001, the first edition of the Top of the Pops Awards, an attempt to give the BBC its own Brits, was broadcast, and a year later, Top of the Pops Saturday, a spin-off show bolted onto BBC One's Saturday morning programming, was introduced. However, by the summer of 2003, the viewing figures are dropping again, and Cowie has been making noises about more wholesale changes. He's already said that the top 40 is full of crap because they're dictated by record companies and no longer fulfills its role of providing a list of the most popular singles in the country, possibly due to the deployment of Judy Zook's satin tour jackets. <laughs> in an era where 20,000 single sales can bag you a number one single, he's pushing for the charts to be determined by the value of sales as opposed to volume and for radio plays to have more of an influence as they do in America. So, yes, Chris Cowie, a man with a with a rock-solid pedigree and also someone who clearly got what Top of the Pops was supposed to be all about. Um, in the interview for The Guardian to commemorate his first year in the job, he said, the most important thing about Top of the Pops is that it's BBC One at 7.30 prime time. I remember watching it as a kid and your dad would like something, your mum would like something else, my brother and sister would like other things. It's real family viewing. Well, is it? Is it now? First of all, there's so much to unpack with that whole backstory of Gary and Cowie. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I waffled on Pulp Craze youngsters, but I had to get all that shit out because the footage of the uh, of, of the Rye Hope Comprehensive, which is uh, um, just outside Sunderland, um, their, their production of Stardust, um, directed by Mr. Gary. Yeah, um, it's, it's there. I'm sure you'll put it on yes. the uh, on, on the on the playlist. Oh, the playlist most definitely. The, the, but yeah, um, if you watch it, I mean, first of all, you got. Russell Harty introducing it. And I, I don't get it. I don't get why NME and ITV are so interested in this. It's what schools do or did. Mm. I suppose you can compare it to all the fuss over the Langley Schools Music Project, if you remember that. So uh, yeah. for those who don't know what, that, that was uh, in 1976 and 77, there was a school teacher in rural Canada called Hans Fenger who got the children to record these enthusiastic but very lo-fi versions of songs like Calling Occupants and Help Me Rhonda and Space Oddity, complete with all mm. the sort of guileless bangs and crashes of a typical junior school orchestra. Um, um, but performed with this real joy and charm. And, and the tapes were rediscovered and released as an album in 2001. And it kind of went viral and it's now considered a masterpiece of outsider music. And it was actually performed live at the Royal yeah. Festival Hall in 2002 as uh, part of David Bowie's Meltdown Festival with London school kids. Uh, instead of, uh, what they should have done was get the middle-aged survivors of the 70s recordings. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. But the point with Langley Schools is um, it was discovered decades later. And therefore, it served as an evocative mm. 
time capsule, which might have been the case with the Ryhope Comprehensive Stardust if the tapes had been discovered years later. But what I don't get, I'm really amazed that NME and ITV gave a shit at the time. What's... What's that about? Well, before that, they'd done a production of Tommy. Right. And I think on both occasions, they, they did the stage show before the actual films came out. All oh, right, okay. I think Gary was seen as stereotypical 70s trendy teacher. Oh, God, isn't he just? Yes. Fucking hell. <laughs> yes. By the way, there's loads of wrongness in that Rye Hope thing. I mean, they, they stage a New Faces panel show, and there's a girl group who are billed as the Ronettes, but they sing to Do Ron Ron, which is a Crystal song, and that really annoys me for a start. But the panel has this limp-wristed gay stereotype on it, which everyone in the audience finds hilarious. And there's loads Mm. of sexist objectification of the six-form girls, right? And the ITV crew isn't exactly innocent of that. There's lots of lingering on the girl group from the neck down. Yes! And, And then they interview them about their outfits, and one of the girls explains, Mr. Gary got a special person in to decide what we should wear, white jumper and a black bra so it shows through black hot pants black (laughs) boots and black fishnets fucking a special person eh mr (laughs) gary a special person Mm. wasn't jules holland was it christ i I guess it's interesting in hindsight in terms of television history because of that kind of macam mafia that emerged from all this and first of all gary getting a job in tv and then him handing out jobs to some of his former pupils yeah why don't we have fucking teachers oh, like fuck, that yeah exactly including Cowie of course uh, Cowie's in the cast of the Rye Hope Stardust yes and he's don't you think to look at even he's very much Gary's mini me mm. alright so he ends up as exact <laughs> producer top of the pops I've got to say <laughs> I can't hear the name Cowie without thinking of Collaterly Sisters on the day to day when she goes and it was a rather Cowie night for the pound it stood at 3.9 against the German Bordello that's at 0.5 against the Portuguese Starling and down 100 against the bitch chris <laughs> yes exactly oh and uh, and uh, also on on uh, youtube and i'm sure you'll give this to the pc wise on the playlist as well is the um that version of was it called check it out the show yes. it's basically nosing around <laughs> at, at this point um cowie looks like bobby ball yes, doesn't he very um, much so and obviously i don't know about the rest of you but obviously i'm on rotten's side yes. here oh total stitcher wasn't it he's been fucking ambushed by cowie and mency from the angelic upstarts who by the way doesn't look very punk with his nice center part no. <laughs> um, but but they they think rotten's sold out because his new band isn't punk and because they've moved on and make their music more complex mm. which is bollocks i mean i'm i'm on team rotten all the way yes. uh, oh incidentally Cowie's co-presenter if you close your eyes sounds exactly like Lauren Laverne which is disconcerting <laughs> I, I suppose she would obviously coming from, from that town but yeah he's not averse to nobbling a famous act as as we're going to see mm. on this episode actually ah. mm. something very similar happens later on mm. mm-hmm. I think the thing with uh, the thing with Cowie is he's he's that sort of very confident chancer and hustler of the sort I'm sure we've all met a hundred of in the industry like they're not all called Crispin some of them are just called Chris. <laughs> like these are the guys who are always going to be our bosses, and they'll be dead friendly to us. And then, as soon as they turn their backs, we don't exist to them. That's who. That's who Cowie is. He's a. Yep. He's an operator, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, people like that get shit done, but uh, you know they are remarkably ruthless. I think. He also said it's really important that there are things in top of the pops that one group of people should like and another is alienated by. Then it swaps round. The reason the program is doing well is because we embrace that idea that pop music is diverse. Top of the pops, to some extent, is a program for people who don't necessarily like music, <sighs> don't necessarily buy CDs and who aren't necessarily still part of youth culture. 
But if they only dip their toe in the water of that culture once a week, they watch Top of the Pops. Now, these are very fine words, but they're buttering no parsnips with me. And it's all down to the BBC's decision to move Top of the Pops to Fridays. We can't move away from it because when that happened, the concept of family viewing is is just gone Mm. because your mum's always going to want Coro on. Yeah. In 2003, the highest rating programme in the country was the episode of Coronation Street where Richard Hillman, the Weatherfield mass murderer, drowned. That got 19.4 million viewers, and that is a colossal amount for this century. You know, England's got to lose in a final for those kind of numbers nowadays. Yeah, I guess they weren't even trying to compete on a level footing with Coronation Street. They weren't even thinking, well, some people will just almost on a coin toss decide which to go for. Mm. It's very much, all right, then Coronation Street has millions and millions of viewers and we'll just skim off another three million off the top who are pop kids. Yeah. You know. As his comments for people who still want to dip a toe into music, well, he's talking to someone like me in 2003 and people like me in 2003 are either already in the pub on a Friday evening or getting ready to go to the pub. Friday night is not a night for watching telly. You've got to have a major life-changing event to keep me in the house on a Friday night. Were you watching it, Sarah? Because we're, we're slightly different ages and, yeah, you know. I don't think I was. Um, I don't know what else I was watching. I mean, I wasn't watching Corey at that point, but um, I used to, you know, that was a thing that I, I saw when I was a kid because everybody watched it. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't. I just, I don't know, it said nothing to me about my life at that point, I guess. Mm. I mean, he's a solid choice to oversee a music programme, but the problem is, it's Top of the Pops, which is more than a music programme. Judging by the interviews he's given since he took over, he's clearly a paid-up member of the Campaign for Real Music. Although the insistence on live performances has been relaxed, he's, he's clearly not keen on miming, is he? There's a video on YouTube of him uh, g- giving viewers a guided tour of, yes. uh, of the Top of the Pops studio, which is quite revealing isn't it yeah for a start i quite like i mean he's obviously been given a big budget because yes everything everything behind the scenes looks the same as front of scenes as it <laughs> yeah, were it's a bit yes. weird. everything's white plastic no more darkness yeah unless the, unless the darkness is on yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah david stubbs wouldn't be able to give his usual spiel about the, the darkness in the corners of the screen here because there isn't any yeah. yeah it's a bit sort of corova milk bar from clockwork orange meets the exactly. mondrian <laughs> it's a bit mondrian as well yeah um, and yeah he's been given a big budget by the look of things um, mm. And the whole thing is this sort of um, labyrinthine complex. There's an actual bar called the Star Bar, which we're going to yes. come to later. Uh, oh, God. And there's the Top of the Pops magazine office right there in the middle of it. Yes. It's not farmed out somewhere else. And as he's walking about, he, he has got that trendy teacher energy, hasn't he? He's got that Phil Redmond energy of middle-aged men with, in a yes. suit but with long hair, which is always a bit of a red flag. <laughs> yeah, jeans, yeah. yeah. Um, there's, a bit, there's a bit where he goes into the control room and he fades up a bit of Puddle of Mud, who are that dreadful <laughs> third-wave grunge band. Puddle of Mud with two Ds. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yes. and, and he goes, pretty good, huh? Which, which it, it yes. plainly is not. And uh, Oh, and he makes a point of telling us that one of the top-of-the-pop stages that night we'll later be hosting one of my favorite bands i saw them the other night foo fighters mm. <laughs> yes yes dad you're very trendy we get it. yes <laughs> it's all a bit weird this isn't it it's like hey gang welcome to my gaff mm. people are very at ease now with the, the whole branding thing which i first started to become cognizant of when the maker went under and it's like well they kept mm. the brand alive Artificially for like a month. <laughs> yeah, thanks. By keeping yeah. the the adverts bit, wasn't yes. it? it was the um, back muso page, bit. Yeah, yeah, the muso bit, and kind of grafted it 
into the NME with the logo on it, which is like, do you remember that time when they, they managed to grow a human ear on a guy's arm? <laughs> so that they could, like, they could yeah. like transplant it onto it. So it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies a bit. I just sort of have brand PTSD from that. So it's like, ah, oh, it's the top of the pops brand. Oh no, it's it's basically, it's all over at this point. Yeah, I don't know. I, I suppose what he was doing was, was kind of, in, in that respect, was similar to what Connor McNicholas was doing with NME in, you know, turning it into this monolithic brand that, that went across several platforms and, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's quite clever, you know. He's he's made it into this syndicated international franchise. Yeah, he's he's Ikeaified. Yes, it, I guess. exactly. It's, 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 yeah, it's yeah. flat pack. It's kit form. It's modular. It's so mm. you, they had exactly the same stage, exactly the same backdrop, whether it's in Germany or Italy. So if a band couldn't make it to the London um, studios, they they could perform in one of the Continental Studios and the footage would be patched into the main show which I strongly suspect happened in one of these cases we're going to see by the way so yeah it, it is this sort of modular flat packed Ikea version of Top of the Pops and I think it, it is quite clever as a business model yeah, yeah. you know got to handle that's that. the problem though isn't it because people don't want to watch a business model no I know when we were young we didn't go away and go fucking hell what an amazing business model that was <laughs> no true night. but I, th- I think he's he's made a good decision by focusing on live or at least you know mimed performance rather than videos because you could see videos pretty much fucking everywhere at at this point yeah whereas this footage which has got what he hoped would become iconic um top of the pops backdrop that mondrian white plastic stuff everywhere Mm. so that when that gets resold around the world or you know for all time really Mm. right until the, the present day People will look at it. It's oh, there's there's so and so. I'm not going to sort of spoil a, a very famous star who appears in this episode. But there they are on top of the pops, rather than just there's the fucking video that we could see anywhere. So I, I think that that was kind yeah. of smart. I yeah. guess it was, but I I kind of miss the videos. There's just a um, because you know as as we know you can get some spectacular feats of artistry in in pop videos mm. that you mm-hmm. know and things that we mm. we still talk about now and we still remember and you know that and when you hear the music that's the image that comes to mind. I mean there's you know there aren't really any. Well, apart from maybe Frankie, like what music is there now where the first mental image that comes to mind is a top of the pops performance as opposed to a video? I that maybe now that I've said that, that's very controversial, isn't it? But do you know what I mean? There are lots from the past, I, but I, I I do see what you mean, and I suppose he's made a rod for his own back there because essentially by mm. shunning the artistry and, and the excitement and the spectacle of videos, you then have to make sure that pretty much every episode of your show has got something equally fucking memorable. But yeah, it is, yeah. it's on a stage. which you're not going to get. You're just not, and so it's like there's a variety to it, which which is now lacking, which does which makes mm. it more monotonous when everything mm. is a performance. I think that was, and also there's the idea. Everyone now there's the whole thing of everything being curated. You know, it's like if you mm. <laughs> literally everything, it's like I curated this fucking sandwich that I'm having for lunch. But it's like it's curated videos. It's like somebody has chosen that. Like I would always trust that someone had had a choice in like, well, it's five videos, I'm going to pick this one to show to the people, you know. So you, you would get a sense that somebody wanted you to see it, you know. But I mean, I'll tell you what, the just as a side note, the having the magazine office like right in the studio, mm. I, mean, I guess it's convenient in some ways, but it just reminded me of uh, I had a brief writing gig in an office in the middle of Soho and it was above a, a you know, a strip club. And so at like <laughs> five o'clock in the afternoon, you could just hear this weird rattling noise, which I realised was like the, the pole. It was a pole as the weight of a woman kind of hung off it. Amazing. It's quite distracting. <laughs> when I worked at Paul Raymond, we were right next to the windmill. And the only thing we could hear in the afternoon was the theme tune to Take the High Road. <laughs> because that's what all the strippers used to watch. No way. <laughs> oh. the tea break, yeah. I was going to say they were stripping to that music. That's a challenge, you know. That's, that's, that's a warm-up. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, we'd just be there tapping away, and all of a sudden you'd just there. There we go. Oh, yeah, there we go. Strippers are having a break. God bless them. <laughs> Your hosts tonight. Born in Paris in 1976, Liz Bonin relocated to Dublin at the age of nine with her parents and ended up studying biochemistry at Trinity College. After graduating, she joined the Irish girl band Chill, but apparently the world didn't need a Celtic spy skills at the time, and after they were dissolved, she went into television, presenting the RTE kids' programme The Den, Telly Bingo, and the Irish fashion show Off The Rails. In 2002, she relocated to London and became an entertainment correspondent for Rise, Channel 4's short-lived digital clock nomenclature breakfast show, which once registered a rating of zero viewers <laughs> one morning. No. Luckily, one of the few people who were watching Rise was Chris Cowher, who offered her a presenting gig in May of 2002, and she's now part of a rotating talent pool which currently includes Edith Bowman, Colin Murray, Reggie Yates, Sarah Kaywood and Richard Bacon. Her partner this week, born in Northwood, West London in 1981, Fern Cotton was the daughter of a sign writer and an alternative therapist who was also a distant relative to Bill Cotton, the former controller of the BBC who destroyed Ruby Flipper in 1976 because a black man lifted a white woman up once. At the age of 15, she began her presenting career when she won a competition to become a TV presenter and was given a spot on the GMTV kids show The Disney Club, moving to CITV in 2000 to present Draw Your Own Tunes and the kids' computer show Mass. A year later, she was approached by CBBC to present the kids' science show Eureka, while also doing the CITV kids' art and craft show Fingertips, eventually replacing Danny Bear in the Saturday show, the replacement for Live and Kick-In on BBC One. It was only a matter of time before she was funnelled into the top of the Pops presenting team and she made her debut in February of this year. This is her sixth appearance on Top of the Pops. Wow, chaps. By this time, as Morrissey might have said, in order to present Top of the Pops, one must, by law, possess a fanny. (coughs) As we've discussed before, from the mid-90s, the gender balance of Top of the Pops presenters has completely swung the other way. Why is that? Well, I, I do like this quote that I've, I dug out of a, an interview with uh, Chris Cowie, where apparently he had a look at every male DJ on Radio 1 and decided they were all too ugly to become a presenter. <laughs> so so that that's possibly one reason. Well, that's, that really is turning things on its head from where they used to... That used to be a, a, a positive plus. Mm-hmm. You, if you mm-hmm. look terrifying and creepy then you know hey welcome aboard Um, here are some naive young girls you can slip your arm around on screen they're all right aren't they 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 look good together they but i mean it's a very it's they're very professional and they're very kind of they're they're slightly too professional in a way that makes me wince a little bit i'm kind of pulled in two directions with top of the pops where i get frustrated with it for being so shonky and then when Mm. they make it less shonky it's like 
but that's not top of the pops at all. It's supposed to be <laughs> yeah. a slightly crap. I mean, Liz Bonin's certainly no thicko, and, and Fern Cotton has been doing this sort of thing for eight years by now. So they are professional, but you wouldn't necessarily call them pop people, would you? They've definitely gone for you know it's presenters above all else rather than you know nerds of any sort or yeah. you know. But uh, Liz Bonin is really great. She has gone on to do a lot of nature stuff, mm. doing a, a BBC program called Animals in Love, where she uh, hung out with some bonobos. Oh. <laughs> and tickled them. It's like, which oh, I think god. this should this should go in the um, in a complete. What well, you're saying? Oh my god! Like this is going to be because we all know. Well, I I don't know if people do know about bonobos. They're the they're the apes that just have sex all the time. But on this occasion, they're not. They're just they're young ones. They're being tickled by li- a delighted Lisbonin, and it's very wholesome yeah. content indeed. And yeah, yeah, she's really great, and she's very telegenic and. Um, also, um, apparently she turned down FHM when they were like, hey, Liz, yes. hey, Liz, come and do you want to come and do us a spread? Do you want to do that thing where you pull one side of your pants way down over your hip? <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? Mm. And she said, nah, you're all right. No, you're all right. Yeah. So fair dues. Yeah, I like them. I have to admit, um, I'd never heard of Liz Bonin until watching this episode of Top of the Pops the other day. Yeah. She completely passed me by somehow. Um I know she mainly makes nature programs now. She's sort of bit basically being groomed as the new Attenborough. But I don't really watch those those shows. So she's no, brand new. You hate nature, don't you? I hate nature. Um, you hate nature. <laughs> you hate nature. You oh, hate Dexies. nature, don't you? God. Once we, see, once we popped, we can't stop with the Dexies references yes. last episode. <laughs> yeah, so she's brand new to me. But I've got to say, I could not be more impressed by her. Um, mm. I mean, for a start, there's her backstory. Yeah, she's mixed race of West Indian heritage. Um, yeah. Trinidad on her mum's side, Martinique on her dad's side. And growing up mixed race in a country as white as Ireland... I can't even imagine. I mean, people shouted the N-word at her on the streets in Dublin when she was mm. a kid. And mm. to to have the strength, not only to come through that, but to actively put yourself in the public eye, takes a sort of streak of steel, I would say. And we've seen mm. what happens to high-profile women of colour in the media repeatedly of late. I mean, with yeah. the, the way Alex Scott and Naga Manchetti have been treated. So there's, there's that, for, mm. for starters. And, you know, Liz Bonin is just... She's obviously really smart... And obviously just really sound. I mean, she also, Mm. as well as the bonobo thing you mentioned, she made the BBC documentary Meet a Threat to Our Planet, and and she doesn't Mm. eat meat. She does loads of environmental campaigning, and she publicly had a pop at Boris Johnson over single-use plastics. So, you know, she put Mm. her head above above the parapet there. She publicly supports Black Lives Matter and all of that. So, you know, she's obviously really sound. And on this Top of the Pops, she's... A warm, likeable presence. It doesn't hurt that she has that Irish accent in which yeah. she she could basically read out a statement telling me that I've been sentenced to death and it would still sound lovely, you know. <laughs> um, and, and because she's brand new to me, and maybe this is unfair, Fern Cotton, not brand new to me, um, she has mm. the disadvantage of having made a very bad first impression on me back in the day, whereas Liz Bonin's brand new. I strongly took against Fern Cotton when she first emerged. And I can't mm. rewrite history. I can't pretend I didn't. For me... She, around that time, was the walking embodiment of certain cultural shift that I hated. Um, around mm. the turn of the millennium, there was a watershed moment where this kind of abyss opened up. It wasn't just a generation gap, but I, I would say a gap in values and attitudes. And it was marked yeah. out in geographical terms by the shift between people who socialised in Camden and Soho and people who socialised in Hoxton and Shoreditch. Mm. And in verbal terms, between people who would never, ever, or would always use the word sick. 
right? Um, mm. So there was this, <laughs> there was this new. As far as I, this, this is how I saw it at the time. I'm just sort of you know channeling my my then self. But there was this proudly vacuous, postmodern, post everything mentality among the hipsters yeah. of East London, where everything was held at arm's length in implied quotation marks as tongs you know and everything was just mm. a bit of a laugh and they were taking over radio they'd taken over tv in the noughties you had your george lamb and your nick grimshaw and you had what Stuart mm. lee called those russell comedians they have now <laughs> and yeah right at the front of all that you have fern cotton with yeah. her mean little downturned mouth and her dead shark-like eyes and i mm. i really thought she was the embodiment of everything that was wrong with the noughties i, I thought she was vacuous and thick and just one of those renter presenters who were colonized yeah the telly and in many ways looking back my my dislike is irrational because that's how tv works right yeah it's not as if i was ever likely to end up on tv myself um partly because i didn't come up via the enemy to bbc fast track but rather the um the melody maker road to nowhere but i was never <laughs> someone who was dying to get on tv because i thought about it right uh, and i used to talk about this with friends and, and I, I thought I hate nearly everyone on TV. I scream at it. I throw things <laughs> at it. I think everyone on TV is a cunt. So why am I going to be any different if I'm on there? So I, mm. th- there's there's a moment in a in an episode of Friends I recently rewatched, right when they're all sat around um, watching the Gellers high school prom video, and they're all laughing because Monica used to be fat, yeah. and and she goes shut up, the camera adds £10. And Chandler says, so how many cameras were actually on you, right? <laughs> and um, what, what, what I reckon is, what I reckon is, not only does the camera add weight, but it adds loathsomeness, unfairly <laughs> sometimes. I, I really think the very act of pointing a camera at someone, and thereby you're giving them access to invade your living room and get all yeah. up in your face, right? Immediately <laughs> makes them 10 times more hateable than if you just met them in the pub. Because you're like, who the fuck are you? Know, fuck off, who are you? What are you doing up in my face in my living room? And yeah, when when you look into it, Fern Cotton has done a lot of admirable things. Her, her, um, her Happy Place podcast and, and the related books speak up about mental health and, mm. and, and, and she's written a vegan cookbook, which obviously I approve of being a, a tree-hugging uh, meat dodger. Um, yes. She's done loads for good causes. She's not vegan, though. No, I know. She's pescatarian. But it doesn't matter. She, she, like me. Yeah, but if I put the book out there, she's making it easier for, for people to, to be vegan. But we agree on that, me and Fern. Fish are cunts, aren't they? Fuck fish em. are cunts. When's a fish ever rescued a child from a well? Never. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to Glastonbury, um, I bought a badge that said, fish have feelings too. Just because <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Oh, but, but yeah... Um, and the the other thing, and, and I know I drone on about this sort of stuff, but at least she wasn't privately educated, mm. you know, which makes her a bit of a rarity in the broadcast yeah. media. It really does. And plus, on a humanitarian level, we have to feel pity for her regarding this sentence on a Wikipedia page. Yes. Oh, no. Cotton dated Ian Watkins, frontman of the band Lost Profits, in 2005. <sighs> I mean, just when you thought Billy Piper had some horrors lurking yeah. in a back catalogue of exes. Yeah. I really, um, I, I really, I did want to say, like, it, it doesn't matter. It's not like she's ever going to hear this, but I hope she's okay. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And the thing is this, right? Even if I did find her dead-eyed and vacuous as a TV host, so what? It's not as if she's any worse than the DLTs or the Anthea Turners of yeah. previous generations on that score, right? So I'm, I'm not going to say that I've made my peace with her to the extent that I'll ever willingly watch or listen to any of her shows for enjoyment. But, you know, I can just make the decision to quietly avoid her work without getting so enraged by it as I was at the time. Yeah. And so I, I, I do regret going so overboard and, and letting it get me so annoyed 
enjoyed at the time. Not mm. that she'll ever have been aware of my ire or even my existence, <laughs> you know. But I want to apologise. Sorry. Once you start apologising, yeah, <laughs> <it end? laughs> like, I know she's caught me on a good day. Going? You know what I mean? Because I, I, another day I might have doubled down. But you know, there we go. No, it's true though. You can just, and it sounds really wet, isn't it? It's like, well, if you don't like it, you can just not look. You can just turn away. But it is true. You can just go. It's all right, you know. Go, go, live your life, um, and I'll live mine, and and we good. Well, now more than ever, if it's nineteen seventy-seven, it's a different matter. But you know, now you can just not not watch stuff. <laughs> Satisfying your musical needs tonight, Benny Benassi, The Coral, D Side, Beyonce, and the official Top of the Pops Top Twenty. But first, one of the songs of the summer. It's Wayne Wonder. For We are greeted by our hosts, Bonin in a black top with red flowers, Cotton in a green top with shiny bits and a brown scarf, who tell us that there are intruders in the building in the shape of Fame Academy judges, leading Cotton to drop a Pink Floyd reference and Bonin to utter the show's well-worn by now catchphrase, it's still number one, it's top of the pops. We're then thrown into the 10th and penultimate Top of the Pops theme, the drum and bass remix of Whole Lot of Love by Ben Chapman, which has been going for five years now. I mean, they really should have done a dubstep remix of Yellow Pearl after this, but, you know. Yeah, nice bit of UK Garage. Mm. I mean, already, we're you know only sort of 15 seconds into the episode, and there's quite a lot that's annoying, isn't there? Yes. I mean, mm. for a start, Cotton can't even get the Pink Floyd lyric right, which no. wound me up. And yeah, these kind of sinister figures, that man and woman, they cut to as if we're meant to know who they are. It's just mm. assumed, but we'll come to that. But um, the, the thing with the, oh. the, the credits, the um, whole lot of love, is that halfway through it, they spoiler the whole show yes. uh, by telling you what's coming up. Now, Al, I know uh, you know the kind of twists and turns of Top of the Pop's history inside out. And there mm. were certain phases in the sort of classic era when yes. they did this. I don't like it when they do. I, I don't think any no. of us do, really, do we? No, 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 no. I like the surprise of somebody I, I don't fucking like and it's going to piss me off when they come <laughs> on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because, you know, after that, there's going to be something that you do like. Yes. If your tagline is, it's still number one, it's top of the pot, stand behind that and go, yes. right, what we have chosen for you tonight, you're going to like enough of it that it's worth your while. And, yeah. you know, the point is that, you know, we know what we're doing. Yeah. It's just such a disappointment where it's like, no, don't touch that dial. Well, I literally just put the show on. It's, you know, yeah. 7.31 yeah. and two seconds. Like, no, 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 wait, 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 don't go away. I'm not going anywhere. What? During my Top of the Pops watching phase, I used to be absolutely militant about not looking at the telly pages in the, in the newspapers because they'd spoiler it and say, oh, here's who's presenting uh-huh. it and here's two or three people that could be going on. It's like, no, I don't want to know. You did the Lightly Lads thing, but with Top of the Pops. <laughs> Exactly, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like everybody, you know, we've all squeezed a Christmas present occasionally, but Mm. (laughs) you don't open them all on Christmas Eve unless it's, you know, unless you're in some Scandinavian countries where that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah, and also (laughs) these two, that also is a mark of of kind of weird desperation. Like, here Mm. we've got something completely different for you. Yeah, that isn't anything to do with Top of the Pops. Like, well, mm. I, I thought I was going to watch Top of the Pops. What? Yeah, it's yeah. almost like saying um, uh, this is Top of the Pops and it's number one. But if if you don't like it, um, there's other yeah. stuff here. <laughs> it's really yeah. sort of needy. It's so needy. Yeah. And and do you think they're just shitting it because you know it's uh, Combination Street starting on the other side? 
Yes. And that's purely, you know, uh, the fact that Bonin and uh, Cotton are stood there announcing the start of Top of the Pops means that there'll be some people on the sofa saying, oh, oh yeah, that's uh, Coronation Street time, time to switch over. Yes. So they're sort of <laughs> leaping in there. No, 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 don't go anywhere, please. Yeah. You know, is, is it is it that, you know? I guess it is. I feel bad for them too, obviously, being in that position, having to toe that line, you know, and say that and mangle that line. Because yeah. they're good, aren't they? Bonnie and Cotton. They're all right. No Simon Bates, though. <laughs> so I miss the authority and gravitar of Bates. <laughs> He'd certainly tell you not to watch Coronation Street because it, it may contain northern swear words. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, he is prettier. Eventually, they introduce us to one of the songs of the summer, No Letting Go by Wayne Wonder. Born in Buff Bay, Jamaica in 1972, Von Wayne Charles began his dancehall career at the age of 15 as a member of the Metro Media Sound System. After coming to the attention of Sly Dunbar, he eventually linked up with King Tubbe and recorded a slew of records, including a cover version of Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. But when Tubby was shot dead in 1988, he eventually linked up with the producer Lloyd Pickout Dennis and recorded his debut LP, No More Chance. A year later, he moved to Penthouse Records and did cover versions of Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, Hold On by On Vogue and Forever Young by Alphaville, eventually linking up with label mate Buju Banton and co-writing Murderer and Boom Bye Bye with him, for which he can eternally fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. By the end of the century, he made a dedicated turn towards R and B, setting up his own label Sing So and working Working with Foxy Brown and Lisa Left Eye Lopez, eventually picking up a worldwide deal with Atlantic Records. This is the lead-off single from his new LP, No Holding Back, which came out in March. It crashed into the charts at number five a month ago, spent three weeks there on the bounce, then dropped to number seven. But this week, it's nipped back up again to number three, and here he is on stage. One of the five stages in the Top of the Pop studio, actually, Mm. all named after crew members, and Wayne and his chums are on the biggest stage of all, called Chris. After Chris Coward. For sake. Chris. <laughs> and, ooh, it's a bad choice because that stage is looking very sparse, isn't it? Well, yeah, just one man and a DJ and a couple of dancers. His dog. One man and his dog. Yeah, he's, and he's not really kind of prowling and owning the stage in a very no. charismatic way. Not to me, anyway. He's having a go at a little prowl and trying to like work the crowd and stuff. You but- say he's prowling about, but only in the style of a kitten that's just getting used to a new home and sees its reflection for the first time you can see like how kind of low down the stage is as well mm. i quite like the look of it i mean it's a massive kind of lighty uppy i mean it's a little bit local nightclub isn't it it's a bit sort of yes you can see the headlines in the sort of local free sheet local nightclub installs new floor and it lights up i love that yes. yeah. but overall the whole uh production is is not it doesn't set anything on fire, does it? No. I love a lit-up dance floor, you know. I mean, obviously, it makes us think, if we're of a certain vintage, or even not, of uh, of, of the Billie Jean video. And, of course, yes. uh, Saturday Night Fever, particularly the, yes. um, the, the the front cover of the album. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's got a long... There's a storied history. I'm sure there's a, you know, a, there's there's a long read in the, the history of the light-up dance floor. And... Um, uh, what was the what was the club as well? It's in the the Common People video. Oh um, yeah, Eves where smashing happened. Eves, yeah. <laughs> 
So it was smashing. Yes. Uh, and I, I dare say that we've all been to clubs where smashing happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that is where um, where the Common People video was filmed. And yeah, I loved it. That was uh, the main selling point. Apparently it was um, where um, Christine Keeler used to go with Profumo on, on their sort of secret right. dates in the 60s. Or at least that was oh. part of the selling point. And she'd like put a chair in the middle of the dance floor and sit on it funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Storied history is great. But um, yeah, and Wayne Wonder is, is kind of a, a very small footnote in, in this now. It's funny watching this, seeing this guy who um, clearly by his, his sort of chart position and and his uh, status at the top of the show uh, was at least fleetingly a, a big deal. Because, you know, as I said, it was my job in 2003 to have a handle on what was going on pop wise. But I've honestly never heard of him until we looked at this episode. No. I saw the name and my first thought was, you know, Stevie's son, like, like, yeah. Damien yes. Junior Gong Marley or, or Enrique Iglesias. Yeah. But, uh, no, he was called Wayne Wonder because he spent lots of time at school sitting there and pondering things. Right. And, and reasoning. So and Wayne Ponder. Staring at the stars. Would have been, would have been. <laughs> yes, yes. And Lazarus. Have yeah. Been <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly, he's got nothing to do with uh, what we must call the ebony and ivory hit maker. But um, yeah, the, the name, it does sound like a piss take, doesn't it? Like some really on the nose yeah. comedy character from a second rate sketch <laughs> series. You know, like. Like somebody who's watched the day to day and thought, oh, uh, we can do that. And they, I know yeah. we'll call a pop star Wayne Wonder. That'll be hilarious. Oh, it's like somebody, yeah. or maybe uh, you know, a friend of Philomena Kunk, who's like, right? No, I've, I've yeah. been. No, I had a wonder about that, and I thought it was shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, the mm. other thing about this set is um, is that he's got on a sort of blue and white tracksuit, which kind of really coordinates, yes. but also with the kind of general blandness of the track and the performance serves as quite effective camouflage. Yes. You know, so you can hardly tell there's even anyone there visually as well as orally. Uh, he's in a blue Puma tracksuit and a white T-shirt, looking very sports casual. Yeah. He's gone and got himself an urban starter kit, hasn't he, which consists of some decks... Uh, a DJ with dreadlocks and movable arms to do all the gestures they do when <laughs> when they put on a record and got fuck all else to do for the next few minutes. Yeah, and uh, two honeys with a Z on the end in uh, batty riders. Yeah, very tight cycling shorts. I mean, if it, if it had a bit more pocket money, you could could have got himself a bouncy car and some youths doing some graffiti on a wall and then spinning on their backs, or indeed a bouncy castle. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that'd be even better. It's funny you mentioned it being a starter kit and 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 being uh, uh, budgetary issues because Puma, right? Uh, all right, it's all about perception, and, and maybe I'm not a sportswear aficionado anyway, so I'm the wrong person to ask. But I always thought Puma was a bit kind of third division. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's we, we could spend hours talking about okay. this. Son. <laughs> Ever since KRS One had a go at MC Shiny for wearing whack Puma sneakers. I've always been an Adidas boy. So, yeah, I I understand what you're saying. Yeah. At least it's not fucking Umbro. No, but the thing, that's it to me. Um, Puma is only just a step above what your mum gets you for Christmas when she's got it wrong. Yeah. And she's just... Gola. Yeah, or she's gone to, like, Woolworths and got their own brand thing that's got two stripes instead of three or whatever. Yes. Um, oh. There's a really good article about this in the Beastie Boys magazine, Grand Royal, which is yes. really hard to get hold of now, but um, somebody's archived most of it online, um, about the birth of Adidas. Oh, I'm going to say a Adidas, right? Because that's what yeah, we said in ahead. the 70s, and that's what Run DMC say themselves. Yeah. Um, and Puma, because it was two brothers, a bit like Lidl and Aldi now, isn't it? It's these sort of feuding yes. German families. Why aren't you fighting each other over the difference between Lidl and Aldi? <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. That's coming. That'll happen. Trust me. Yeah. Oh, you boys and your sports wears. <laughs> Just as long as it's Velcro, I'm I'm good. Like I, I don't understand why Velcro has not. It's one of those things. It's like you know. Finally, we've got the electric car now, but it took a really long time because it's been sort of suppressed and everything. Who is suppressing mm. Velcro? Velcro is yeah. the best. It, it's the, the big shoelace. That's who's suppressing it. Big shoelace. Big shoelace. <laughs> That's who. Fat lace. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, Wayne Wonder, that guy. You remember that guy? Um, yeah, so, yeah. shall we get onto the song? Yeah. Okay. It's um, so based around um, the very solidly head bopping Diwali rhythm. Yes. Um, by. Um, I love it when white people say rhythm. That's. I'm not. Yeah, but it would be whiter still for me to say rhythm, yeah. wouldn't it? I think we should lean into it's it. It's based on the Diwali rhythm, I believe. <laughs> I think we should say it in the whitest way possible. We should really lean into the whiteness yes. here. Do you just say rhythm or do you really commit and go redeem? Oh. Um, I, I don't know. I would refer to Corrupt FM on right. on, on this. <laughs> 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 However they would do it, mm. you know. Based on Diwali rhythm, uh, which <laughs> is a loop. A loop created by a Jamaican producer, Stephen Lenke Marsden. Yes, well done. It's something that you kind of can't... It's really hard to fuck it up. Mm. Because it's just a solid thing. Yes. Um, this actually would appear in two weeks' time as the foundation of Uh Oh Brackets Never Leave You Close Brackets by Lumidy, right. which is the famous one where it's sort of slightly out of key but in a really compelling mm. way. And mm. that was massive. And, um, you know, if you don't twitch one muscle or another to it, something has gone wrong. Yeah. And you should probably see a doctor. Um, and also, this, it, it would form the uh, backbone of. Rihanna's debut single in 2005. Yes. So in a couple of years' time. So yeah, Pond Replay, yeah. But which is a fucking banger. Uh, Get Busy by Sean Paul. Get Busy by Sean Paul, yes. Um, uh, feet, sorry, Feet Sean Paul. Sorry, obviously. Yes, of course, to yeah. give him his full name. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, the noughties are the noughties Feet Sean Paul, let's yes. get it right. You know? and, yeah. and they were better for it. The thing with that. With that rhythm, um, if uh, I'm, I'm going to say rhythm, <laughs> that rhythm <laughs> um, <laughs> is that yeah, it was inspired by the Indian Feast of Lights, Diwali. Yes. So I don't know how exactly, maybe sort of Bollywood kind of. Are we saying Diwali right? Oh, are we? <laughs> Diwali. I don't know. But yeah, the thing is, there was there was um, a whole compilation. Yes. In 2002, on green sleeves called Diwali, all using the same beat, which. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, I've, I've not listened to it, but imagine listening to that all the way through. Mm. And the thing is, No Letting Go is on there. Yeah. So it's already a year old by the yeah. time it's a UK hit. So if this is the waters you're swimming in musically, if this was your thing, mm. you must be thinking, oh, fucking hell, not this, not this rhythm again. I don't know. But most notoriously used a year later in Dirty Kafar by Shake Terror and the Soul Solar crew. Which was yes, oh, which was a, uh, a, a a jihadi rap video, which basically stated that Tony Blair, George Bush, uh, the BMP, and Ariel Sharon should be chucked on a massive bonfire, and nine eleven was dead good, and there should be more of it. Right. Mm. Uh, but the problem is, it's a fucking tune. I mean, bad people, good music. Yeah. Hey, man, you've got to separate the art from the artist, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, this is very soft and weedy and um, nothingy. Oh, yes. Very slight. Very slight. It's meant to be a sort of lovely kind of sit on the beach, think about your woman kind of thing. But it, yeah. Mm. Also, it's a bit... Of the the point isn't the lyrics, obviously, but like... <laughs> well, cause it, yeah, there's nothing to the lyrics. Oh, lovely lady, I like you. Oh. Ooh, it's fucking colon, isn't it? Kicking the sun. Yeah, girl, I'm so glad we've dated. Oh wow, you old, you old charmer, Wayne. 
Um, Mr. Yeah, Ponder. Why haven't we mated? This sounds a little bit... It's a bit of a confusing thing as well, because it's like, oh, we're in love, we're sitting on the beach, we're drinking daiquiris, it's all good. But there's trouble in paradise. They say good things must come to an end. But I'm optimistic about being your friend, though I made you cry by my doings with <laughs> Keisha and Anisha. But that was back then. <laughs> doings, fucking hell. That's such a non word, that is. <laughs> my non used to use that word all the fucking time. Whenever she ran me a bath when I was a kid, she, <laughs> she'd always used to say, oh, make sure you go all round your doings. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. So is he is he just sneaking in? He's just slipping in a little confession of infidelity there. Well, no, he's bragging on, um, isn't he? The song just goes to show that reggae and its offshoots have absolutely withered on the vine by the turn of the century. You know, if you discount Sean Paul. I mean, he was expected to be a breakout reggae dancehall star in the 90s, but he's gone and taken the R&B shilling here, hasn't he? And from now on, reggae is just going to be something that you can bolt onto your record or your mobile phone advert for a bit of urban credibility. Mm. Which is fucking weird because in the 90s, reggae, or at least pop reggae, mm. was huge. Yes. You know, you had everything from, you know, Shaggy and uh, Red Dragon and Chakademus. And it was enormous. Like every summer, there'd be four or five just inescapable pop reggae songs. But yeah, by the time we get to 2003, it's, yeah, it's very much sort of Lego or Meccano yes. bolt on, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's your standard male R&B thing here, isn't it? There's a, there's a bit of gangster milkman whistling at the beginning. And he's de- he's dedicating it to the ladies. Uh, and there's a bit of shouting from the DJ who who goes, you know, or oh, come on, London or whatever. Top of the pops. Very offensive to people from Macclesfield who are tuning in. What about their issues? What about their needs? <laughs> Level up the north, DJ. Fuck's sake. We've we've spoken before about how uh, certain pop and dance records have some rap bolted onto them. Yes. But you could basically shrink down everything that Wayne Wonder does on this track. Just call it some reggae. Yeah. And just stick it in the middle of a Nelly Furtado single or a Shakira yes. single or just whatever. Yeah. You know. I don't know if they'd want yeah. it, but you know. Yeah. I mean, R and B is a strange genre anyway because you know the men always have to sound like soft lads who go on about the ladies or almost always. Shit. There's obviously some brilliant exceptions to that rule. But the truly great R&Bs, almost always made by women, even if all what they usually have to say is, your skin, so what you're looking at me for, you fucking tramp, piss (laughs) off. You know, there's huge gobs of female R&B, which is essentially no money, no fanny. (laughs) I suppose the comparison that's staring us in the face here, if we're looking at a guy who started out as a producer before having hits in his own Mm. right, and he's wearing dark glasses and all of that, is R. Kelly. He's kind of like trying to be a sort of reggae R. Kelly uh, Mm. by doing this. Yeah, It's not very good, is it? He's flat as a fucking pancake, isn't he? He's singing over a backing track, obviously. So either he's got no in-ear monitor, so fair enough can't blame the guy or he's just a legit terrible singer mm. i don't know well the thing is that i always i always noticed this just because i had like <laughs> because i had a few singing lessons one time and so i sort of know how to do it so you can just hear that everything is coming out on like the last 10 percent of each breath yeah which is like mm. just don't do it to yourself it's actually really easy to like not do that and he can't not sing but there's this unpleasant thing of like it doesn't sound relaxed it makes you feel tense because you're just kind of like right. breathe 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 you know mm. and it's it's just it is unpleasantly sort of just a tiny bit discordant if you're going to be discordant like really go for it like the lumidy track is so much better than this even though she's way way off which apparently wasn't her fault she she maintains that it was recorded to a completely different backing track and then the producer just slapped something else on yeah but 
whatever it is, it's one of those weird things that just sort of works. Right. And this doesn't really. Yeah. And if he hasn't got any in ear monitor, can't they spring for that? Have they spunked all the money on the fucking lighty up dance floor? We've already talked about the branding. Even the record labels on the on the records that are spinning around on the decks, top of the pops logo. Oh yeah, slap right mm-hmm. on them. Yeah, like it's the Wigan Casino. Yes. They're trying to hide yes. the fact that it's that it's Wayne Wonder. <laughs> no letting go. <laughs> that Potter history, though, Jesus Christ. King fucking Tubber reduced to producing Stock Aitken and Waterman songs at the end of his life. Fucking breaks your heart, man. Like the whitest thing. King Tubby meets Sonia uptown. But, you know, Jamaica did have this kind of long tradition of doing yes. that, going right back to people covering the Beatles, you know, like Marcy Griffith doing that brilliant version of uh, Don't Let yes. Me Down. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's it's just, just something that was just a standard thing. They would they would churn them out. They would hear what's coming on the airwaves over from the mainland yeah. US, and quite often, sort of like they'd be easy listening or country tracks. And then somebody like I don't know Johnny Nash or whoever would just churn out a cover of yeah. it. So I, I can I can see why they did it. I'm I'm sure King Tubby's heart wasn't in it necessarily. Yeah, but the difference yeah. is Simon. Back then, when they did cover songs like that. More often than not, they make them better, yeah. or at least equally brilliant in a different way. Yeah. As pedestrian and generic as the lyrics to this song are, um, at least they're a cut above something else in his back catalogue, which you have touched mm. upon. Boom, bye, bye, in a batty boy head. Rude boy, no promote, no batty man. Dem huffy dead. This not a deal. Guy come near we, then his skin we must peel. Burn him up bad like an old tyre wheel. Uh, so that's you know. not from No Letting Go. That's from the, as you mentioned, the notoriously homophobic single Boom Bye Bye by Bougie Banton, which uh, Wayne Wonder apparently wrote. So if that's true, Wayne Wonder can, once again, absolutely go fuck himself. And uh, yeah, I think maybe we've uh, wasted plenty of our breath on, on the arsehole already. Well, I mean, he did say in an interview, Bougie Banton said, mm. the standard get out clause. Number one, the Bible reckons it. Right. And number two, uh, it's about a paedophile, actually, that was in living in the area. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, so there you go. So he's conflating gays and paedophiles. Oh, that's okay, then. As long as he's only conflating somebody's yeah. sexuality yeah. with crime. Great, yeah, yeah. Fine, that's fine. Anything else to say about this? Um, the DJ... Um, yeah, God bless him. <laughs> bless him. He's, he's given it the old college try. But he kind of goes, take it to the bridge, and the, the, you know, which is not all that at all. No. I mean, I guess, you know, this is not a moment to do your James Brown thing, really. No. It's like, just, just leave it. <laughs> Mate, you've done your job. You've pretended to lift an arm and put it on the fucking record. That's it. That's your job. Just stand there now. Yeah, you've earned your 50 quid. Yes. But I mean, personally, and this may be a personal thing, but when I hear somebody say, take it to the bridge, the next thing that my brain wants to hear is, dirty babe. Uh-huh. That's what I want. (laughs) You know, I don't want to hear more of this. Yeah. You know, why would I want that? Also, there's sort of slightly embarrassing fade out. The DJ's like, yeah, top of the pops, London, we love you. Top of the pops. London again. Fucking hell. I know. It's it's where they were though, to be fair. Yeah, but they all do that though, don't they? I know it's terrible. We all feel terrible about it. Oh yeah, it. people have gone out on stage at Glastonbury and said London. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that is embarrassing. Which is quite funny actually. But yeah, there's that sort of slightly uncomfortable moment of like demi silence while Wayne brings the vocals to a close and the DJ goes, "Tab of the pops, London, we love you," and then everyone just like, "Oh, is it over now?" Okay, yay. And yeah, it's just a little bit, it's it's a sad end to a sad start. Yeah, and the reason for that is it's because the song is so fucking slight, but it's got that rhythm. And you just think, oh, well, this is going to kick off any minute now. He's doing his <laughs> soft arse bit, but it's, it's yeah. really going to kick in and it's going to get proper and some arses are going to be shook. 
and it never happens. It doesn't really have a dynamic or a structure as such. So when he says take you to the bridge, that you think you're looking around for a bridge. You're looking around. It's more like a, a step, <laughs> a style, a, a ledge. Take you to the ledge. <laughs> so the following week, No Letting Go dropped three places to number six. The follow-up, Bounce Along. There, that's when you have your bouncy castle. <laughs> Got to number 19 in November of this year, and he was done as a chart act. By the middle of the decade, he'd gone back to covering rubbish 80s songs in a UB40 style, <laughs> including a cover of Hold Me Now by the Thompson Twins. Oh my God. Which was on some Adam Sandler film I haven't bothered to watch. And when he appeared in the identity parade of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, he revealed that he had gone into business at home selling yams. <laughs> He was still gigging and everything, but he was selling yams on the side. Makes a change from T-shirts and knocked-off CDs, isn't it? Well, the trick is to give them away for free, like, you know, the darkness with their pizza. Just, uh, you yes. know, a bit of free food. Yeah, maybe if he had the Puma logo burned into him or something. Yeah. That'd be good. I think- like a sort of Halloween lantern just carved in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think he was just yes. in the pocket of Big Yam at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Tropical Totty Wayne Wonder. Next up, a band who must be huge fans of the old Sunblock, featuring a member of Metal Maniac Slipknot. These guys decided to form a band just to show that they have a fun side. Now, I don't know about taking them home to meet the parents, but with their own take on the Billy Idol classic White Wedding, it's the Murder Dolls. After Wonder gets described as Tropical Totter by Bonin, she describes her next act as a band who must be huge fans of the old sunblock and that she didn't know if she'd want to take them home to her parents. <laughs> it's Murder Dolls with White Wedding. Formed in Des Moines, Iowa in 1994, the Rejects were a metal band put together by the guitarist Nathan Jordison, better known as Joe, who had also played in local bands The Have Nots and Anal Blast. In 1995, Jordison was invited to play drums with a new local group, The Pale Ones, who eventually renamed themselves after one of their early tracks, Slipknot. And by the time they finally signed a record deal in 1998, the rejects were shelved. By 1999, with Slipknot's debut LP becoming the fastest-selling metal LP in American chart history and well on its way to going double platinum, Jordison developed a hankering for side projects again and was up for resurrecting the rejects. To this end, he linked up with Wednesday 13, the lead singer of Frankenstein Drag Queens from Planet 13, and Trip Eisen of the New York metal bands Dope and Static X, eventually changing the name to Murder Dolls. They recorded a demo, which became their debut LP, Right to Remain Violent, in early 2002, and the video from its main track, Dead in Hollywood, featured a guest appearance by Marilyn Manson, repaying Jordison for his appearance in the video for Tainted Love, and it got to number 54 over here in November of 2002. 
This is the follow-up, a cover of the Billy Idol single, which got to number six over here in August of 1985, and it's crashed into the chart this week at number 24. And as they've been in the country last month touring with Stone Sour, another Slipknot offshoot, they popped in to get Summit in the can for this episode of Top of the Pop. So yes, here we go, a prime example of a pre-record job. The Wayne Wonder one was uh, was pre-recorded as well. You can kind of tell by the way they cut back and forth yeah. from the acts to the presenters. So yes, Sarah, in a previous chart music, you you mentioned that you like Slipknot. You saw them, <laughs> did I? M- Evil Panto, I think, was the uh, the phrase. You yeah, used. they were never going to be my faves. You know, I was not their their audience, but I did get it after a bit. Mm. I mean, I realised that. Yeah, you know, forgive me if I've told this before, but seeing them at Reading, I realised what they were about and who they were for, mm. and what they're doing is actually brilliant and very clever. Not clever in a mm. cynical way, clever in a very sort of emo- emotionally intelligent way, because they realised what the audience was, which is kids, and they were like a kids' party band. It's like these are grubby yeah. teenage boys on their first duet at Reading without their parents. This is Reading is like legendarily a kind of really gruesome kind of uh, rite of passage, as it was at the time. A metal crash. Exactly, it was a metal crash. What they did at one point was get the whole crowd, this was on the main stage, so, you know, however many thousands of people, got everyone to, to crouch down. They're like, oh, go crouch right down to the ground. <laughs> um, and then eventually, so everybody did this, and it was hilarious to see everyone just sort of hunkering down like, like rabbits. And then, jump the fuck up! And so everyone just sprang into the air. And it was like, this is so perfect. They understood that these are still kids. They're still children. They're just sweary, grotty children lurching upwards into adulthood against their will. It's play the fuck away, isn't it? It is play the fuck away. And there is a great sort of truth in that because it's like, yeah, adulthood is terrifying and being a teenager Mm. is extremely intense and very frightening in and of itself. And you can't do anything about it. And, like, you know, there are a lot of young people who, who feel that they cannot handle it they're going to look for, for ways out, mm. which can be very dangerous. And Slipknot was saying to them, hey, it's okay, listen to this shit, do some screaming, connect with other people who, who feel the same as you and know that we see you and we love you in all your grubby adolescent grottiness and just try to rupture your throat in some way with the ah of everything <laughs> and you'll feel better, you know, and tomorrow will be another day. And I think that's that's really beautiful. That's like life-saving shit. And that has mm. value beyond the whatever musical value they have. I don't actually know how well thought of Slipknot are. Apparently in the last, because they're still going, and mm. there's a kind of resurgent, actually turns out Slipknot were really good thing. But it, it's so far outside of mm. what I know, I just don't know enough about metal. But, you know, this is, this is life-enhancing, life-saving shit, which is the best you can hope for from music. So I yeah. knew who that was for. The Murder Dolls, I don't know who it's for. Mm. Maybe there's an audience for it in the same way that there's a type of horror film fan who will watch any old shit with fake blood in it. Mm. Doesn't have to be good on any level. Just give me a hundred weight of horror. Just stick the horror channel on. I'll watch, you know, that's not me, by the way. Sorry. Oh, Christ, no. <laughs> it's a cartoon schlock nonsense. Yeah. They did actually appear in an episode of Dawson's Creek as like the Halloween party band. Yes. It would make sitcom parents of the time furrow their brows. Mm. That is what it's for. It's a sort of a trash nonsense, isn't it, really? Yeah, I agree with Sarah about horror films. Um, I'm, you know, I, I imagine we may have similar tastes in that, you know, you, you get 
people like Rob Zombie, uh, who's obviously from a similar world, um, mm. making films called House of a Thousand Corpses. And for me, House of One Corpse is always going to be a better film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe House of No Corpses, but an implied one. You know, mm. that, you know that that's my kind of horror, uh, rather than, you know, uh, gallons and gallons of blood. It's interesting listening to Sarah's thoughts about uh, who Slipknot are for mm. and what they mean to those people. Because I was I was on the bus the other day, and there was a young couple sat in front of me. They're about fourteen years old, and the girl had like half green, half black hair, mm. and the boy had a studded dog collar on, and they were kissing while keeping their COVID masks on, which was right. like <laughs> <laughs> both sweet and weird. Um, but they were basically the same sort of emo kids you might have seen on any bus and in any shopping centre any year in the last twenty, mm. right? And, and it occurred to me that they weren't even a, alive when this murder doll's appearance happened. Yeah. Fucking hell. That's um, fine, isn't it? But also that their 2003 equivalents would have been watching this shouting mm. fucking yes mm. <laughs> in the same way that we, uh, you, Al, me and Neil, shouted fucking yes in 1983 when Twisted Sister came on, yes. right? Because there will mm. always be an appetite for this kind of band among a certain kind of teenager yeah if they catch them at just the right age and in other years it might have been aiden or motionless in white or black veil brides or whoever's on the front of kerrang right now i, I don't know I've, i haven't looked in a while mm. the murder dolls served a role and here's where i have to state an interest i know one of the murder dolls Ooh. oh yeah one of one of them's a mate ac slade who's on guitar one of the guitarists mm. he's on the he's the one on the far left of the screen yeah and uh, and he's been in loads of bands including joan jett's black hearts and Ooh. uh Ooh. Yeah, and and his own band, Trashlight Vision. Um, and I, I got him to DJ for me at Stay Beautiful once, actually. But um, I can't remember how we got to know each other. I mean, through a mutual friend, maybe. But we bonded over a shared love of the Manic Street Preachers, which right. seemed really unusual for an American metaler, you know. Mm. Um, in fact, I once took him to see the Manics in Cambridge, and I got him backstage. And I introduced him to Nicky Wire, who seems quite excited himself. Uh, and of course he was, because Nicky Wire's from the Valleys, and he's got that inner metaler, you know, yeah. that inner Kerrang kid. And Nicky Wire's always going to be more impressed by AC Slade from the Murder Dolls than if I'd introduced him to the bassist from the Young Knives or the Good Books or whoever. Do you know mm. what I mean? Um, so uh, I, I got in touch with AC um, about this episode of Top of the Pops to see what he remembered about it and his answer might seem a little bit um confusing and misremembered but i'll come back to that Uh, but here's what he said oh yeah i was part of that one memory was that we performed it entirely live which is very rare on totps Mm. this really pissed off the other bands that performed that day (sighs) one of those bands was maulin manson he was supportive of the band until we started to do well so there was mm. some awkwardness between our two bands, but no drama or anything. Yeah. But the energy of a live band is always more impactful than a band who plays to backing tracks. That's not a diss or put down to the other bands. It's just an observation mm. and makes me glad we fought to play it live. Right, so back to me now. Now, as we know, um, Marilyn Manson is not on this episode. However... Mm. There's no evidence that Murder Dolls are in the same studio as Liz Bonin and Fern Cotton. Mm. They just cut to and from screens and because of that kind of we talked about the syndicated flat-packed ikea nature of chris cowie's top of the pops it's entirely possible that the murder dolls did record on the same day as marilyn manson yeah 
whether I mean it turns out it was in London but it, it might as well have been Italy or France or Germany you know mm. one of these top the pops outposts and and Manson's um, clip just got used on a different show so yes. if if AC says he recorded on the same day as Marilyn Manson he probably did you know what I mean you kind of got to remember if Marilyn Manson's about <laughs> yeah yeah so so that's a little insight into how how the how the show was put together and also just the slight beef between these kind of icons of, of that era. Mm. Um, so so the lineup uh, that we're looking at it's AC Slade on guitar, Eric Griffon on bass, Ben Graves possibly not his real name on drums, <laughs> Wednesday Thirteen on vocals, and Joey Jordison on the other guitar. Yeah, and I guess it was perceived as being Joey Jordison's band. And can I just make the obvious joke? I'll never forgive him for that handball in 1977. <laughs> um, Sarah's now completely baffled by this. Uh, now, I mean, Slipknot were very much not for me. And I, I did, mm. I, I really appreciated what Sarah said about them. And I, I, you know, I get it. But at the same time, I, I you know, I wasn't the target audience. So I, I, I saw them at the Reading Festival in God knows well, pro- probably the same year. Mm, yeah. And I, I just found it so kind of basic and reductive and stupid but mm. you know yeah that, I, I know that's what it's meant to be but anyway I, I had a lot more time for murder dolls myself and you know murder dolls in some ways are part of this lineage that runs from alice cooper through things like the misfits and the cramps you know just mucking around with horror for fun and yeah for me all right i met the billy idol cover they're doing here it's a bit redundant because it's a song that has a brooding menace to it anyway and mm. you don't make it more menacing by doing a heavy no. metal death scream in it <laughs> you just <laughs> screw your face up and raise a fist at appropriate exactly. moments yeah yeah um usually when he says shotgun <laughs> exactly because the thing about metal is that if you're going to be a lead singer you've got to have proper fucking pipes and he's just got a wet straw of a voice he does a bit the thing with the original is that um, there's some modulation to it because he's sort of doing the, the murmuring kind of, hey, little sister, what, you know, mm. and then kind of, you know, revving it at a certain point. But yeah. this is just like proper hairball singing from the sun. Hey, little sister. It's, like, yeah. <laughs> it's proper Eric Cartman. Hey, little sister, yeah. what have you done? Just full gravelly <laughs> screamy bit the whole way through and everything yeah. is whacked up to that setting, which I understand. Like, I laughed. I did enjoy this in spite of myself. Mm. Um, there's also the what I always bang on about, the kind of American stagecraft, which is full in evidence here. Yes. You know, which is just... I love to see a guy, you know, spin round and point his guitar. And it's like, mm. you know, good old Wednesday, just mm. properly going for it at the top screamy um, register of his of his voice the whole way through. It's mm. a, what you call a death growl, I guess, the whole way through. Mm. And it, it doesn't help that with his dreads, he just looks like a fucking potato that's been left in the cupboard for two years. <laughs> Now that's a horror film I would like to see. What yeah. happens to a pota- you, the demon potato that's been left yeah. in the cellar? Oh my God, it's alive! <laughs> the singing is not the point of this, is it? I mean, his breath, his breath no. control on this is so bad. He actually takes a breath in the middle of the word "sister," <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. it's not the place to do it, mate. I took right against this record. I was no fan of Billy Idol. But by about this time, I was accepting him as part of the canon. Because in the 80s, a lot of people thought Billy Idol was Rod Vicious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he'd gone to America and sold out. But he's called Billy Idol. Like, he literally called himself Billy Idol. What do, what do you people expect of him? I know. <laughs> like, it's kind of a thing. I fucking know. love yeah. Billy Idol. He was so cute. He was so cute and ridiculous. 
He's great. I mean, fucking hell, by 2003, is there anything that makes you feel more old than hearing a song that was part of your life yeah. when you were a teenager mm. but being used as a cover version for kids who probably never heard it before? Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> But there's another interesting compare and contrast here between this and the performance of Twisted Sister in the last episode. Twisted Sister had far less tools in their presentation armory, like just a couple of flash pots. And this lot have got, you know, they've got the fucking works, haven't they? Have they? They've got their logos massively by the side, which is it's like a toilet sign for women. In a coffin. But with horns and in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> better lighting, better costumes, but... Yeah, not feeling it. Debatable whether they got better costumes, really. I mean, D. Snyder, I don't know if you can beat that, but that's for another episode we've already done. <laughs> no, I think they look fucking awesome mm. here, I'll be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm enjoying the look. I mean, mm. first of all, as, as for the song, you know, yeah, I, I you know, the, the cover version doesn't do much for me. I, I had more time for their own material. That, that single you mentioned, Dead in Hollywood in particular. But yeah, I, I, th- I think they... I think they look amazing. I mean, for one thing, right, black, white and red is a colour scheme you can't go wrong with, which is a fact that is known by Mm -hmm. Manchester United, the Third Reich and the designers of pretty much every vampire movie poster Mm -hmm. ever. Just black, white and red, it it works. Shiny black as well. You've been waiting years to compare Man United to the Nazis, (laughs) haven't you, Simon? (laughs) No comment. And... uh, And, you know, they are wearing some fucking killer clobber here, I would say. some Several of them mm. have got the same sort of stack-heeled goth boots I was wearing myself at the time. And uh, yeah. Wednesday 13 is in this fucking awesome black PVC jacket thing with white piping on it. I would wear the <laughs> shit out of that. He's got a tie on, hasn't he? He's got a PVC tie. I, yeah, I know exactly where you could buy them from. Corporate goth. There. And there's a medical red cross on the arm, which is a big plus. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, if someone gets a nosebleed or does their ankle in, in the front row, we can go out and sort them, can we? Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not the target audience for this because I'm too old, even in 2003. Yeah. But if I was those kids on the bus that I saw the other day, um, or the 2003 equivalent, I would have been bouncing off the fucking walls mm. with excitement at this. Yeah. I'm absolutely sure of that. Yeah, fair enough. I probably, uh, when I say I didn't know who this was for, then, yeah, of course, that would be who it was for in a similar way to Slipknot because um, Joey Jordison who uh, actually passed away last month um, yeah. uh, I, so I was looking up you know kind of the, a lot of tributes to him a lot of people who were, who were very very sad mm. and uh, something that he said was this was when he was in Slipknot but he said our music is so personal each person that's bought one of our records I have something in common with each one of them which is just mm. beautiful I mean that's like I think they were very all of them were very sincere in that and very earnest and really wanted to you know reach the kids mm. so you know this even though I, I didn't quite get that from this it took me a long time to get it from Slipknot because you know there was a lot of st- gnarly uh, schlocky stuff in the way of it and I was like what the fuck is this but I can appreciate this on that level too I can see that mm. There is that thing. It's, it's a gang you can join, you know. Which one of Slipknot was he? Because they were like the fucking metal village people, weren't they? They all had like <laughs> one in the mask. He was number one, which is they all had, they each had a number. He was number oh, one. Yeah, His yeah. mask was like the the pretty one. I'm not sure what it was. And they had various, they had different versions of the masks kind of throughout, mm. but he always had a variation on. It's like the comedy tragedy mask, but just the oh, sort yeah. of, you think of like the emoji, uh, no expression one. <laughs> Did he have, like, his dreadlocks coming out through little holes like it was a colander? One of them had that. <laughs> no, no, he had, like, very lank, sort of, sort of just very straight hair over the oh, top. Yeah. He had to stop drumming because he had um, 
transverse myelitis, which is where your spinal cord swells up. Yeah. It's really, really nasty. Oh, shit. Um, but um, he did, before that, he did all sorts of, he had like an amazing drum rig where they'd strap him to it and it was in the shape of a pentagram. <laughs> he would do a drum solo and it would tip up yeah. and rotate and everything. Nice. Apparently he's, you know, technically a really good drummer, yeah. but to me it does just sound like, it's like angry wasp dancing <laughs> on a tin of seven up type drumming. He's a typical metal muso. You know, a band the size of Slipknot by 2003, they can afford to take their time between albums. But he just wants to play, man. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, why not start another band? No, or re- resurrect your old band. This is, the, you know, they, yeah. And also for the pop craze youngsters, it's it's a great way to see people in massive bands in a more intimate venue, even though they're going to ignore your request for people equal shit. <laughs> yeah, everybody seems pretty happy. I I did just want to just want to add to this. This track is from the special edition of uh, the album Beyond the Valley of the Murder Dolls. And uh, I just wanted to read in full the track listing of this album. Yes. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I can't do the voice. Well, I could do the voice, but then I wouldn't be able to do the rest of the podcast. So, you know, no. slip my wrist, twist my sister, dead in Hollywood, love at first fright, people hate me, she was a teenage zombie, die my bride, grave robbing USA, 197666, <laughs> dawn of the dead, let's go to war, dress to depress, kill Miss America, B-movie scream queen, motherfucker, I don't care. Crash, crash, let's fuck. I take drugs. White wedding. Welcome to the strange. I love to say fuck. (laughs) Oh my God, let's go to war. Because the Manic Street (laughs) Preachers had a song called Let's Go to War just a few years after this. I'm claiming it's because I introduced those two, you know. (laughs) The cross-pollination of murder toss and that. But yeah, it's a fun trash thing. And I did chortle all the way through it. And I loved all the the pvc strides yeah it always yeah. comes back to the trousers doesn't it sarah trousers are important the leggy mount baton of chart music hey and at least they actually played it live they're not like those bent cunts who aren't fucking real yes <laughs> <laughs> so the following week white wedding dropped 18 places to number 42 a few weeks later, Murder Dolls were put on hold while Slipknot recorded their next LP, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. They reunited at the end of the year for a tour of Europe, but were then put on hiatus due to other band commitments, reunited in 2010 for the LP Women and Children Last. But by which time, Jordison had developed acute transverse myelitis, a spinal inflammation, which temporarily caused him to lose the use of his legs, which led to him leaving or being fired from Slipknot in 2013, depending on who you talk to. Although plans were drawn for a re-reunion of Murder Dolls at the end of last decade, it never came off, and as we've already mentioned, Joey Jordison died in his sleep at the age of 46. Oh, running DJs everywhere, beware. That was the mighty Murder Dolls. Something in the stout as the Emerald Isle produces yet another successful boy band. Flying in the dark steps of Boyzone and Westlife, dig the new breed. Enjoy D Sides. We fade into cotton looking at a tiny video screen of the last performance as she warns us to beware of murder dolls. 
She then pivots into some nonsense off the autocue about stout as she prepares us for another Irish boy band and invites us to dig the new breed as she introduces Invisible by D-Side. Cobbled together in Dublin in 2001 by the Sweeney Twins, a pair of doctors who were dabbling in band management, D-Side were a boy band who were quickly signed up to the Hamburg media company Adel. They were immediately linked up to the managerial capabilities of Kim Glover, the former head of radio and TV at Arista Records, who was part of the management team of New Kids on the Block, the manager for a short time of Princess Stephanie of Monaco in her doomed attempt to become a pop star in the early 80s, and a guided PJ and Duncan let loose and bewitched towards the top end of the charts. Their debut single, Stronger Together, was only released in Ireland, getting to number five there in August of 2002, but they landed support slots on tours by Westlife and Blue and a slot on the Smash Hits tour, leading to their next single, Speechless, being put out across Europe. It slammed into the UK chart at number nine in April of this year, but immediately slithered down. This is the follow-up, and it's a brand new entry this week at number seven. So yeah, first things first, dig the new breed. (laughs) Do you think the phone cotton of 2003 would have been into early James Brown or Jam Live albums? I think not. Yeah, I mean, it really becomes more obvious as the show goes on just how auto-cued it is, doesn't it? Mm. (laughs) I mean, again, you know, Sarah said we're we're never happy when it's sort of shambolic or when it's not shambolic. Mm. There's got to be a happy medium. That, that yeah. does, yeah. I mean, Derek Akora, for one. Um, but yes. uh, in the early eighties, we used to, you know, we've, we've done episodes where we've we've moaned about people like you know Mike Reed or whoever ad libbing and just talking absolute bollocks. Mm. And then when they don't, it's like, oh, it's so scripted. But yeah, it it did sort of it does jar a little bit where it's clearly yeah. somebody else's words, possibly Chris Cowie's words. Who knows? There's a production assistant that handles all this now, but I, yeah. I think Cowie's put that in. Right, and all all that business about the Emerald Isle and all these cliches, yeah, it's like, God, please. Weak source. So anyway, D-side. Wouldn't have known them if they'd have shagged me ma'am no, in same, 2003. No, same, like, like Wayne Wonder. I mean, it was, it was my job to know this stuff, and they totally passed me, but three top ten hits, apparently. Not, yes. Nope, nope, not a fucking clue. I mean, b- being called D-side, I would have assumed they were from Shotton or Connors Key. Um, yes. But, but no, yeah, Irish boy band, and... Uh, I guess if Westlife are shaking boy zone, then D side are shaking Westlife or or yeah. shaking shaking boy zone to put it another way. Yeah. I prefer the continuity Westlife. <laughs> they do have a bit more energy than Westlife. I mean Westlife were were quite wet, weren't they? They're standing up and that's a start. Yeah. <laughs> standing up and moving around and and in some cases sort of uh, jumping and pogoing in a rock style. <laughs> yeah. I had no memory of them at all either, but it's hard to lay into a, a boy band or a girl band because it's like there's so many of them and so they had such a short shelf life um, I mean they did okay they sort of lasted for a bit didn't they this, these guys and they did okay in Japan yeah. at this time they appear to be the coming boys of pop after Five and Blue or at least Smash Hits seemed to think so. Did they really think that? Well, they're on the cover of the latest Smash Hits. And when they approached them mm. for that cover, the band had to tell them that they, they couldn't make a photo shoot because they were touring Germany at the time. And Smash Hits got back to them and said, oh, OK, well, we're going to fly out and take you to Malaga 
and they finished the gig in Berlin. They got whipped straight onto a plane, put on a yacht, given a wardrobe of clothes to put on. They did the photo shoot, did the interview, flown back to Germany in the morning. So, you know, Smash Hits clearly thought that, that this was the next thing. Fucking yeah. hell. The money that was still sloshing around in journalism and in the industry at that time. Yeah, yeah, Successful yeah. journalism in any case. Yeah. Yeah, well, Smash Hits needed bands like this to sort of keep coming along at, at regular intervals. Mm. So they had a hugely vested interest in this sort of stuff. I mean, three top ten hits, none of them got any higher than number seven, I think. Mm. So it ne- didn't quite work out. No. <laughs> but they've got to number seven more than we have. They've, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the song, it's, it's bog standard boy band. Yeah balladry isn't yeah, it i mean yeah, if yeah. they were on stools they'd stand for the key change it's that kind of song written by andreas carlson who wrote for nsync and backstreet boys and westlife yeah. and chris braid who's written for everyone so it's inevitably it's generic although there's this creepy voyeur twist to the lyrics isn't it mm. if i was invisible then i could just watch you in your room yeah, oh, <laughs> that's quite twilight isn't it yeah it's, it's up there with knock three times by tony orlando and dawn <laughs> wrongness the thing about that is as as a sort of uh i don't know if you can call it a, a trope but i guess it's something that does occur like a lot of things that are presented to you as romantic they're actually very fucking creepy there's a whole bag of that shit yeah you know you can't give consent to be watched as you sleep by you know they haven't really thought this through as a sort of romantic concept partly because of the creepy element partly because like you know if it's like I, i'll watch you in your room and it's like when women are alone in their room, they're not going to waft around in a in a satin slip, like all seductive, like a fucking flake advert. They're going to be in their old fucking baggy boy cotton pants, mm. and they're going to sit weird, and they're going to belch freely, yeah. and they're going to mutter to themselves and pick their feet and sing out of tune and just be relaxed. And you wouldn't like no. it. You wouldn't like it. Women are women are gross. You wouldn't yeah. like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're invisible, uh, uh, sorry, a lad of that age, if he got the opportunity to be invisible, he'd go, oh, I'm, I'm going into town and nicking all the Xbox games. Yeah, you'd do other stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> you'd go and, you'd go and like, go, <laughs> go and stick your wet finger in people's ears and watch them, ah! Exactly. The main singer, lad, looks like Owen Jones, which is a bit unsettling. Mm, yes. But um, one of them looks like David Moyes, which is even more unsettling. <laughs> um, so they're, yes, they're not does. they're not the sort of I mean, given that they are created to be objectified, they're not very objectifiable. No. I I would say. No. Um, I mean, you know, easy for me to say. Look at how I look. But anyway, there, there's <laughs> what makes me laugh is there's there's a bad boy one, isn't there? Yes. It's, it's yeah, the yeah. law. It's the law with a boy you have band. Have to have one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got he's got spiky hair and frosted tips and and a thumb ring mm. and and, uh, and and he pogo's about and he does some sort of Fred Durst type like rap yes. metal dancing. But it's all a bit try hard, isn't it? That might be Dane Geeden, okay. who is thoroughly enjoying the fruits of pop fame at the moment because he was in the papers round about this time, squiring Jodie Marsh about. Okay. Uh. There was an article in Ireland's Sunday World which reads they may have been snatched leaving a club together for a torrid night of wild sex but this is the first picture of Irish boy band star Dane Geeden and glamour girl Jodie Marsh posing for the cameras. Pastry girl Jodie, infamous rival of Jordan, claims she spent five hours making love to Dublin a Dane. She added, he was like an athlete. He went on for hours, five to be exact. 
He may look like a teenager, but he's all man. Thanks, Daddy. Five to be exact. I'm sorry, that's not exact enough. I want like five hours and 11 minutes yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> Handsome Dane laughed. I just wanted to give her plenty. <laughs> I just want to say that I, I love that kind of journalism because it's something no one's going to deny. Mm. You know, it's obviously, it's entirely made up. The quotes are obviously completely made up. Mm. But nobody from either um, Star's PR company is going to get in touch and threaten legal action and say, no, no actually, I'm shit at sex. I lasted three minutes, yeah. you know. So, <laughs> yeah. it's, so it, it just so you've got free reign to just say any of that shit. You know? But anyway, the performance, it's... It, absolute fucking cat shit i mean yeah you're right as we mentioned boy bands have clearly progressed from all sitting down and then all standing up together at the emotional bits but they've not been choreographed at all have they 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 look like five Mm -hmm. lads in a club who've been dragged up on stage to pretend to mime to a d-side record in order to win a wicked key ring you know, they're all doing their own performance. It's, it's it's crap. I think that's probably deliberate, though, isn't it? It's like they're all meant to be, you know... Individuals. Uh, it's it's that's that's that one and that's that's that one, you know, <laughs> in a very rudimentary way. Yeah, but they don't do anything that's interesting. I mean, the only synchronicity you see in performance is you notice that they, they do a bit of group walking to the back of the stage so they can all mm. rush up to the front again. And they all hold their radio mics right at the top, which is what I tend to do during a pub quiz or when I'm doing karaoke to boost the volume a little bit. And, of course, one of them near the end, the bad boy, does the tipping the mic to the audience bit to sing along <laughs> to, to a song that's only just come out that, that nobody seems to be that into so they don't know the fucking words yeah that's brilliant mm. oh, there's a set of moves that you go through and that's one of them yeah a bit preemptive there's a bit previous you know mm. yeah one of the reasons to keep going through through the hellscape of, of the music industry is the thought that one day you might be on a stage and people will sing your song back to you mm. now, that's the kind of shit that'll make it all worthwhile but you can't just do that no it's a, a bit of a leap <laughs> Faith, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you've got to earn it. It's one step down from just turning round and then just falling into the audience hoping you're going to be caught. <laughs> okay. yeah. I think if D-Side had tried to get the entire audience to sit down, they might have sat down, mm. but they wouldn't jump up again. No. Yeah, it's a bit of a jumble and it's a bit, it's, it's very, um, it's very forgettable. Mm. They have the same problem that Wayne Wonder had as well, I think, where they're just, uh, it's like they can't hear themselves. But hey, they're the first band to actually be there for this episode oh yeah so we get a sweep from Fern Cotton to the stage and back again so you know well done well done to them for being there when they needed to Decider in reception yes they're punctual if nothing else (laughs) I I was going to you mentioned Let Loose and they were the great lost boy band they were they had a couple of absolutely cracking singles right I don't know if they were yeah yeah they were really good yeah you should we should put them in the playlist yeah so the following week invisible dropped 10 places to number 17 because even the young girls aren't buying singles these days the follow-up real world entered the chart at number nine in december but no higher and after pushing me out only got to number 21 in june of 2004 they never bothered the chart again and after a spell of being moderately sizable in japan in the mid-naughties like Spinal Tap, they split up in 2006 with Derek Moran going on to present the Channel 5 kids show Milkshake. That's mental. Mm. We were used to indie bands in the 90s entering the chart high and then dropping straight down. But bands like this, going on top of the pops, is surely it's supposed to push them up a bit higher, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's that's got to dent the ego a little bit, hasn't it? 
Fucking hell. Appearing on top of the pops used to be, you know, you've got to a certain position and here's your reward and it's you're going to sell more singles. By this time, it's just a reward for getting that high in the first place. Yeah. Strange times and sad times. Mm. In, in a backhanded way, it's a sign of the success of record labels in that they've really got their shit together marketing-wise and they can have a sort of impact date, as they call it, rather than a release yeah. date for a single and make sure that everybody buys it in the first mm. week. But then it fucks it up. For, it doesn't have that long no. tail and you don't get the, the lovely long climb of a proper mm. hit record. So, you know, in, in a way, yeah, the major labels being um, a victim of their own yes. success. Oh, well. Fuck him. <laughs> Wait, I already There's another new boy band on the block that's decide. Still to come, we've got Beyonce, Benny Benassi, The Coral, and the official Top of the Pops Top 20. But for now, Fern is in the star bar, reliving her fondest memories of those days back at the Academy. Yet another boy band on the block sniffs Bonin, who then goes on to spoiler the rest of the show in case you were starting to wonder what was going off in Weatherfield. She then whips us over to Cotton in the star bar. Knocked up by BBC Carpenters in 2001, the Star Bar was part of Top of the Pops' brand new set when it returned to Television Centre in October of that year. In an interview with the BBC News website that month, Chris Cowie said, Much more important than the move is the fact that we've got a new set, meaning the programme will be much more the way me and the team want it to be. Now we've also got the Star Bar. The Star Bar will be a glorified green room and it will be a great place to be. A place where artists can relax, hang out, bring their entourage, girlfriends, boyfriends, lawyers and rub shoulders with other stars. Hmm. Mm. As we've come to learn on chart music, me dears, Top of the Pops has always been happy to pad out episodes with interviews with people like the old sailor, motor show models, American acts who are passing through, little and large in their panto gear, uh, even Peter Marinello for fuck's sake. But this is this is next level fucking with the formula, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? It's funny because um, on a recent episode, in fact, the most recent episode, yes, we complained about the kids from Fame being yes. there in person on top of the pops, but hardly getting to say any words. Um, mm. Well, watch out what you wish for, isn't it? Really, yes. <laughs> because we yes. do get this really overly long section, which completely kills any momentum the show had. Um, yeah. With Fern in the star bar, while, you know, you've got all these smartly dressed young media professionals from London having a cocktail in the background, like, you know, we're meant to somehow care who they are. They don't look like lawyers to me. No. No, and it's it's all to cross-promote the BBC's new season of Fame Academy. I mean... Right at the very beginning, when we see them in in the intro, um, these 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 two cuts. How who are they? Why are we meant to care? You know. I mean, the general assumption about the Star Bar was that it was inspired by the interview sections in TFI Friday. But mm. you know, come on now, this is a direct nick from the tube, isn't it? Where they had a pub across the road from the ah. studio called the Egypt Cottage, and that was used as the green room and used on occasions for interviews and the like. Good spot, Al. I, I hadn't clocked that, but yeah. And so you know, Cowie had this in his back pocket for a while yeah yeah the problem is is the fucking decor in the star bar is so sterile that it looks like you're watching a canteen in a trade show 
where, you know, people in ties and lanyards burn their mouths on a panini while they try and sell software and uh, photocopiers to each other. It's not pop and it's certainly not interesting. Yeah, you can see what the idea is. It's like mm. they're trying to establish it. It's like, oh, come with us and, and, and peep into the, the, the inner backstage sanctum. Yeah, the breakout room of pop. Yeah, but it, it looks exactly like the set outside, which bends your yeah. brain a little bit. I mean, at least there's enough people in it. It's not like there's a couple of people standing around awkwardly. It does seem like it's a bar. Mm. And there's that kind of authentic ambient noise. So it isn't like too, it could have been cringier, but it's still not, it's it's just a bit odd, isn't it? It's just, yeah, it's very sterile. It's very, um, very, not very top of the pops. And it, no. I think we've all experienced the the, the sort of dubious frisson of, of being in that place, you know, being back in the bit where other people are not allowed. And it's mm, mm. it's not always. Sometimes it's exciting and 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 cool, but it can also be really boring and and sort of yeah. weirdly bleak and empty and yes. kind of make you question your life choices. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter how much free booze there is. It's like yeah, free booze, and then it's like, oh, is this my is this is this my life? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? And yeah, you, know, you don't really want that in the middle of your top of the pops, do you? Yeah, what it's like. It's like uh, you know, in in Zoolander, there's this bit where there's some party and there's like a, a velvet rope, and behind that there's the VIP area, mm. and then. Um, then they, they, they make it through there and then there's another velvet rope and another and eventually get, they get to the VVVIP area and when they get there they're just Winona Ryder sat on her own looking really depressed <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what these places are often like and I think Cadbury's got something to say about this oh. <laughs> it would have been good if they had it as like um, Star Bar sponsored by Star Bar but they weren't quite that cross pollinated at this point. This section is not shot through with peanuts, is it? It is the sort of place that shot if, through with arseholes. <laughs> if your mate arranged to meet you there for a drink, yeah. you'd you'd turn up and you'd have one drink, and then you say, "Do you mind if we go somewhere else?" You just work, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just too weird. I'll tell you what it reminds me of, actually, with all the white everywhere. It reminds me of that, uh, you know, that the W Hotel that popped up in Soho. Like, yes. Uh, that one, it's just around the corner from Leicester Square. And it's just white. And it looks like it's just landed from Tokyo, but not in a good way. Mm-hmm. As if Godzilla's just lobbed it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You may have noticed, Pop Crazy Youngsters, that we haven't said anything so far about the kids. And that's because so far, there have been nothing more than a row of silhouetted heads and arms. That's right, yeah. Even the spectators in Roy the Rovers get a speech bubble every now and then. But finally, we get to see two young women who have been told to stand in the background holding a drink, while two lads on the other side look at them. <laughs> a, a, a great place to be indeed i've been wondering about this because um obviously we already learned that they film various bits of footage in france or italy mm. or whatever and and patch it in yeah. and i wondered if it's because the audiences in those places would look too different from british audiences you'd just be able to yeah. tell all those sombreros <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. They look very Euro. But that's the thing, Simon, because now they've committed to pre-recording stuff, there'd be no sense of continuity in the audience. Yeah, but it would give you more of a sense, like, if you don't see the same people all the time, it gives you more of a sense of there being more people there. Yeah. It's quite sort of audience porridge, isn't it? It's quite yes. it's quite a, a sort of mush. Yeah. You get the general sense that people are quite happy to be there. It's not, it's not too flat. 
But I do get the sense, and I wonder if, you know, in their little kind of instruction, well, not an email, but in their, their little instruction leaflet that they would get, like, don't dress up, like, dress down, just dress relaxed and stuff, because mm. you used to, where anyone that you would see on Top of the Pops, any of the kids would be dressed to the nines, mostly. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously, obviously the blokes would generally lag behind, but yeah. you don't really see, there's not, like, standout outfits or anything. No. Dress like you're from somewhere between Britain and France. Dress like you're from yes. Guernsey. <laughs> <laughs> Grant and Richard Parks, the Star Bar. Hello. Hiya. The Star Bar immediately became a weekly fixture on the show, containing three minutes or so of interviews with bands and artists, but it wasn't shy in breaking up the flow with a blatant dollop of cross-platform brand synergisation, and this week is no exception, as we're treated to an advert for the new series of Fame Academy. Squeezed out of the arsehole of Endemol in 2002, Fame Academy was the British franchise of the Spanish TV programme Operacion Trifuno and was a mashup of Fame, Pop Idol and Big Brother, where contestants were boarded in a mansion in Highgate and given an intensive musical and performance art education over 10 weeks with live online streaming and highlights shown on CBBC and BBC3. And they compete for a £1 million record contract and the use of a luxury apartment in London and a sports car for one year. Sports car. The first series, which concluded in October of 2002, gave the world the gift of David Snedden, who got to number one in January of this year with his debut single, Stop Living the Lie. And the second series begins tomorrow night. So here's two of the teaching staff. Born in Kirkcaldy in 1948, Richard Park is a former DJ on the Pirate Station Radio Scotland who was part of the original pool of Radio 1 presenters, working primarily on the Radio 1 Club and Round Table. After moving back to Scotland to concentrate on football on Radio Clyde, working his way up to head of entertainment, he came back to London in the late 80s to assume the role of programme controller of Capital Radio. In 1997, he formed Wildstar Records and was responsible for the signing of Craig David. By 2003, he's the head of his own consultancy company, the radio consultant for EMAP and the headmaster of Fame Academy in the shaking cow role. So Richard Park is actually a big shot in, in the music industry and the radio industry. Yes, he is. And he's only the age I am now. Uh, in this uh, footage, he looks well leathery, like an old wallet, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> and he, he's the headmaster on Fame Academy. And yeah, it quickly becomes obvious from the the way they feed him lines to kind of, you know, be, be snippy about other people, that he is the shaking Simon Cowell, you know, because Pop yes. Idol was going already by this point, and be going a couple of seasons. And Richard yeah. Park, he's, he's doing that Cowell thing of being the, the hard-to-please judge. And Fern mm. helpfully points out that he's Mr. Meany. Like, yeah, we, we get it, you know. Born in Enfield in 1965, Cary Grant made her Top of the Pops debut in 1983 as a member of Sweet Dreams, the UK entrant in that year's Eurovision Song Contest with I'm Never Giving Up, which finished sixth and got to number 21 in May of that year. After the follow-up single, 17 Electric flopped, the group split up at the end of 83 and Grant fell into vocal coaching with her husband David Grant, formerly of Lynx. 
Since then, they've worked with Take That and the Spice Girls, and in 2001, she was recruited by Pop Idol as an on-screen vocal coach and was poached, along with her husband, to do likewise for Fame Academy. And they're already matey with Fern, it turns out, because she's been on the celebrity version of Fame Academy, we learn, and there's lots of hilarious bants about how she can't sing and all that. So, Mm. obviously, I looked them up. Cary Grant's a vocal coach. She was. We find out... She was once um, a Eurovision entrant in a group called Sweet Dreams, who I, yes. I was going to say nobody remembers. I don't know if you do, but I, Just I don't. About. And they were like a shake in Buck's Fizz. And, and it turns out one member of them, Bobby McVeigh, actually later joined the Fizz. Yes. Which is shows how incestuous this world of kind of Eurovision slash talent show groups is. Uh, I mean, Fame Academy was something that definitely contributed to the shittening of Saturday evening TV, where it seemed that terrestrial television schedules had been put together by Joe Maplin. <laughs> so you got a fucking singing competition, then you got a dancing competition, you got a personality competition. You know, I can't believe that nowadays they haven't done a glamorous grandmother <laughs> show or celebrity <laughs> knobbly knees. What the fuck happened to those good old days when we were entertained by Jeremy Beadle dressed up as an oil shake yeah it's i i mean i never watched any of these no. things really i watched bits and bobs but i can't my second-hand embarrassment is too acute <laughs> like i just it's not entertainment for me no. it's not fun at all it's just like ah, ah no stop it mm. stop it they're already dead <laughs> even when you get past yeah i just can't the the pressure of it is too stressful for me yeah it's really odd there's such a dissonance about having that plopped in the middle here yeah. in so many ways yeah. i mean i'll say sarah i i never watched fame academy and you know you've you've mentioned snedden um and he did okay out of it he had a number one and apparently then became a successful songwriter for other people and that first season um yeah. they all did all right Sinead quinn came second had a number two hit the big winner was actually lamar who mm. came third but had a run of yes like seven top 10 hits but by the time of this season coming around that they're, tr- they're desperately trying to plug here the public were obviously already bored of it because the season they're trying to sell us here was won by Alex Parks, mm. who had a number three hit yeah. and then a number 13 and then got dropped by a label. And that, that was the end of Fame Academy in Britain. Anyway, no one gave a fuck. Yes. Hi. Now, Fame Academy starts tomorrow. So what can we expect from the new series? Well, I think there's going to be sweat, angst, there'll be tears again. As you know, when you came into the celebrity show, you shed a few. I think that uh, we're raising the standard that we're looking for. We're hoping to produce a real star, but in doing so, we want to make sure that we work everybody to the very extremes. This, this academy, though, is the best place to learn, Fern. Now, <laughs> Richard, obviously we have met before, Celebrity Fame Academy. I don't know if you saw, but Richard was quite horrible to me. Uh, will you be as mean and tough this year? I think I'll be exactly what I was with you, which is honest. I told you, you couldn't sing, and Fern, you can't sing. What? I'm moving on, Carrie. Defend yes. me. I wasn't that bad, was I? Um, I think you were just very nervous. I think you can sing, but that you got hit with nerves. So what are the contenders like this year? Oh, my gosh. Well, there are 25 of them, and I would say I'm personally excited about maybe 10 or 11 of them. The British music business could actually use something special for it. And I know that Carrie, uh, David, myself and Robin Gibb will be looking for the very best and, and we'll be starting tomorrow night, 6.30, BBC One, and the first seven will be giving it all they've got. Now, what do you think of tonight's talent then? We've seen Beyonce, you fans of Beyonce? Now, Beyonce is the Don. She's so fantastic. Her voice is great, she looks great, her performance is great, and she's got nice big girly hips, which Hasn't I like. She, she can yeah. shake that booty. Yeah. Cotton. 
perched uncomfortably on a bar stool leaning against a TV screen, asks Park and Grant what the second series of Fame Academy is going to be like. Park says there's going to be a lot of sweat, blood and tears and reminds Cotton how rammel she was when she did the obligatory comic relief does Fame Academy in March of this year, being the second one to be eliminated. One after Paul Ross, one before Joe Brandt. He could at least have banged a big stick on the floor when he's saying sweat. You know, yes. come on, get it right, mate. I've seen clips of her doing She's not a bad singer. She's, she's better than me. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, but the whole thing of this is to go, oh, you were shit. And you have to go, oh, yeah, I was shit. And there's something really yeah. unpleasant about that. It's like, oh, it's all in good fun. It's all in good fun. Yeah. There's so much of everything that's saturated with that thing now where it's like, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. Funny. It's a just it's just bants. And you have to if you're in the, mm. if, you know, if, if the camera is on your face yeah. or, you know, you're you're in the public eye whatsoever, you have to take it in good humour. Mm. That's quite a lot to ask of somebody, but it just becomes, it's, it's just becoming normalised at this point. And it's assumed yeah. that we're all in on the joke and we're all enjoying it along with them. You know, it's a bit like on fucking Morecambe and Wise yeah. when they used to get Des O'Connor on and make a joke about how shit he was and everything. Which, well, actually, yeah. no, it's yeah. not, is it? Because that was, that was all right. That was actually quite funny. Cotton asks Park if he's going to be as much of a horrible bastard this time as he was last year, and he says he was just being honest. <laughs> she turns to Grant and asks her what she thinks of Beyonce. Grant reckons she's dead good, and it's nice that she's got a bit of meat on her. <laughs> then the TV screen switches to D-side, still standing on the now darkened stage, and this happens. Yeah. And how about D-side? I thought that uh, as a coming boy band, they're not quite together yet. I don't think they've probably worked hard enough for a long enough period of time. I like the song because it was slightly obvious, but a, a decent pop number. I like Again, Mr. Meany. Park says the song is all right, but D-Side aren't together yet, and he doesn't think they've worked hard enough for a long enough period of time. They stare on, with nowhere near the reaction Cowie obviously wanted, so they cut back to a replay of the performance we've just seen. This entire thing is not in the spirit of Top of the Pops mm. at all. No. It's a jolly, upbeat show that celebrates all things that are pop and interesting. Yeah. You know? And even things that are pop and a bit shit. Yes. Like, that's fine. You don't... It doesn't really, ultimately... It's not like it's too saccharine. Obviously, people would take the edge off it. But it's like, those people have all earned their place there. Mm. Unless you're... I don't know who was the worst for being just a big bitch. Maybe Bates? Mm. I don't know. But, like, you don't really seriously cock a snooker anyone. And then there's these two cunts who've come from wherever the fuck, from somewhere else, who have just... Sitting here and they're like... Yeah, well, no, I'm not sure about this. No, I don't think you're very good. Having having a go at the presenters, even, and just yeah. like, yeah, well, you were shit at that when you tried it, and you mm. were that. It's kind of like somebody turns up to your house party yeah. and and goes, hmm, yeah, sofa's a bit saggy. I don't think that wallpaper really works. Mm. It's like. Yeah. Get out of my house. Yes. What are you doing here? I mean, they are desperately trying to play up the shaking Simon Cowell thing. You know, Fern has to sort of telegraph it by yeah. telling us that he's Mr. Meany, you know. And, yeah, to prove it, we hear his opinions mm. on D-side. Here's the thing, right? Chris Cowie loves an ambush. Yeah. Obviously, he loves a fucking ambush because of what he did Johnny Rotten. Yeah. So, 
you know, we hear um, yeah. Richard Park's opinions on D-side that they're apparently not quite there yet. They haven't worked hard enough. And then we see them in this sort of dark, no. blue-lit bit of the studio reacting to it. And, that, yeah, they've been ambushed in the man of Johnny Ron. That one lad should have said, well, fucking ask Jodie Marsh who works hard enough for a long hey. enough period of time then. <laughs> what it reminded me of, I don't know if either of you remember this, when the BBC rebooted Jukebox Jury for a little bit, I think, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s, Yes, Glenn Madeira, Ross famously was on there and the panel didn't know that he was out there in 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 probably not even a green room but probably a broom cupboard and um just completely slated it and destroyed it and then they brought glenn out and he was in tears and he's he's got to go up and front it up to the panel and it it was that kind of really awkward telly i guess you have to kind of agree to that you have to sort of uh you have to kind of consent to doing that and that's why this this um d side bit is so like unpleasant it's like however good or not they were they earned they yeah. earned their spot there it's really pulling the rug in a really unfair yeah. way to uh say yeah actually you shouldn't be here it's like you've just you know you have crashed this place and you should know it it's like what yeah i mean i suppose we got to assume that yeah. unlike tearful glenn medeiros they were maybe primed for this they were told what was going to happen yeah i don't know, I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, they should have been. Yeah, they should have been. I think a floor manager just grabbed all the D-side at the end of their performance and said, could you just stay here for a bit? Stand here a minute, yeah. yeah. Stay here for a bit. We've got a surprise for you. But it is just kind of like, they're not. They're a professional band just because they are a boy band, you know, and they may have been put together in whatever way. It, that's kind of not the point. Like, they're not auditioning. Like, it just really weirds me yeah. out how they've kind of, how they've done this. It's like, no, they've passed that point. So, uh, yeah. Sarah's so right about saying that this is contrary to the spirit of Top of the Pops in that sense Mm. of somebody coming on and crashing the party and being a cunt. But there's also another aspect in which it's contrary to the spirit of it because what they're assuming by having these guys on there is that if we're Top of the Pops Mm. viewers, we are by default, we're BBC One viewers, and that we're just generally interested in the channel's light entertainment output. I don't think we are, because something like Fame Academy isn't a music show as such, it's a reality show. You know, fans of the Murder Dolls, or Wayne Wonder, or the band we're about to see next, aren't going to be tuning in for that. You know, it makes as much sense as Top of the Pops having an elongated plug for Mm. National Lottery Live, or Strictly Come Dancing, or or the the Vicar of Dimly, you (laughs) know. No. Any of those would have been better. Any of one of those. And those shows aren't going to return the favour, are they, for fuck's sake? You know. And this this whole... No. Uh, this is the trouble. This is what Cowell and Cowell's imitators had done to pop. They effectively had turned pop, or a large chunk of it, into light entertainment. Yeah. Um, so, in a way, it's, it's just a sign of the way things work. The cross-platform brand synergization wasn't all one way, though. Um, an episode of Tomorrow's World in April of 2002 featured Kate Humble in the star bar, demonstrating a metal-detecting glove for nightclub bouncers who were looking for knives and guns in the wake of uh, 9-11. It sounds like some kind of anxiety dream. Yes. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just give a shout out to another podcast? Mm. The Tomorrow's World Audit Time podcast. They dredge that up. They basically do for Tomorrow's World what we do for Top of the Pops. So Ooh. all we need now is um, podcasts on fame and question time. <laughs> and the independent podcast community would have Thursday nights on BBC One absolutely locked down. <laughs> that podcast again, Tomorrow's World Audit Time. Hi. But that, the whole section lasts two and a half minutes. That's basically 10% of the show. Yes. 
And that's a, that's a, 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 a single we could have uh, listened to. It is. I, I looked at... Yeah, right, because people... Yeah, you're right. People will be switching over to Weatherfield in their droves. The next song is only two minutes, 12 seconds long. Mm. So they literally could have fit another song in there. Yes. And, you know... Um, uh, you got Neil and I to have a look last time and see what we could have had and do a sort of yes. uh, counterfactual oh, yes. top of the pops. Well, going by the rules that it has to be going up and it can't have been on the previous week unless it's a number one. Mm. I had a look um, and in this stupid fucking star bar section, here's what they could have had. They could have had Jane's Addiction or Killing Joke or the Polyphonic Spree, mm. right? I mean, Jane's Addiction on top of the pops would have been a real moment, yeah. you know. <laughs> but no, we get yeah. fucking Eurovision Failure Woman and Leathery Neck Man. <laughs> it's shade all the way down and side to side is this because they're having a go at, at, at D-side who, uh, and I know I said my own things, but those are good boys. <laughs> You leave those boys alone when they're standing there. It's like, fucking hell, that's... It's not fair. It is not fair. But also, it's shade on the producers of the fucking show to say that that band that have just been on were not really ready... That's saying that the producers of the show and everyone who chose to put that band there instead of any other that they could have had, that's saying that they got it wrong. They made an error there. And then it's also shade on the the viewers. It's like, well, you know what you just watched? (laughs) You thought that was a professional job, but you were wrong because here I am, the arbiter of these things who you've never clapped eyes on before probably. And uh, yeah, that's what I think. And it's like, what? Like, if you just enjoyed that, which you might have done if you you were a a young then and then you have this guy just going... Yeah, no, no, they're not ready. It's just an insult to yeah. everyone. Yeah, Tally really started sticking its oar in by this point. It's like, oh, well, we can create stars out of bloody women who can't drive and blokes who work in airports. Uh, oh, let's have a go at making some pop stars. And, you know, they were very successful at it, but not very good pop stars in the main. No, I mean, the whole thing was predicated on the idea that the chief requirement for being a pop star was being technically good at singing. Yes, reaching a standard. And we all know that it fucking isn't. And having a tragic backstory. Oh, yeah. And it it also pulled back a curtain on the music industry. You know, it it was saying, oh, this is how it's done. None of this bollocks about, you know, actually forming a band or working your arse off and gaining a following. You do this, you get on this, and and we'll sort it out for you. And it absolutely ruined the battle for the Christmas number one. Oh, for years, years and years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. It was great when Let's Get a Thing to Number One stunt is a little bit tired now, but it was great when yes. they got Rage Against the Machine to number one, just, yes. to, just to cunt them all off. It was brilliant. Cotton brings up the fact that this isn't Grant's first appearance on Top of the Pops when the Monitor brings up her performance on the April 14th, 1983 episode, the one after the episode we did last month, performing I'm Never Giving Up by Sweet Dreams. Everyone here has to submit to the stocks, apart from your man Parks, mm. who I'm assuming has never done anything remotely embarrassing ever. Like, that yeah. might have taken the edge of it a bit if it had been like, ha here's a here's a picture of you in your tin bath when you were two yeah i know this is kind of a cliche to say but it's like this seems to be a man with without charisma or talent or anything much to offer the world you know i wonder about the kind of dynamic between young singers and somebody like um carrie grant because i wonder if it's similar to footballers where you get managers who were no great shakes in their professional careers you know or didn't even have one like some of the most successful managers like Arsene Wenger or um, Jose Mourinho um, didn't really make it as as players and I always wonder like you know some of the players I'm like oh show us your medals then you know yeah and what's Carrie has just been in a you know um, a group Mm. who kind of flopped at 
Eurovision. I certainly didn't win it. Oh, they did all right. I mean, fucking hell. I, I think the UK would be totally happy with a, with a sixth or seventh place finish in Eurovision. <laughs> well, they've been on Eurovision more than we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't get booed and blamed for football violence that year, put it that yeah. way. <laughs> no, but, you know, if you're being coached by, I don't know, Elkie Brooks and all her looks or something, mm. at least you can point at some hit records. It only matters when it's on the wall, eh, Simon? Uh, yeah. The, I mean, the most famous vocal coach back in the day was Tona Debrett, and she wasn't a professional singer, and everyone mm. used to go to her, but then she wasn't on TV all the fucking time, you know, yeah. strutting about, telling everybody their shit, so, mm. yeah, I don't know. Well, I suppose it, it's different, It's I know yeah. I know exactly what you mean, but also it is kind of different skill sets, I guess. Like David Snedden, who was not great shakes as a pop star, mm. um, well, just wasn't quite ready yet, but went on to be a decent mm-hmm. songwriter. He co-wrote um, National Anthem by Lana Del Rey, which is an absolute banger, but I know what you mean. But yeah, I mean, the thing that got on my tits about Fame Academy was the BBC dipping its hands into the shit bucket of populist TV, mm. but still managing to be really snooty about it. <laughs> oh, we're a, we're a Fame Academy. Yeah. Even the fact that it's in Highgate, you know, fuck yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, it used to be known as Fame Secondary School before yeah. the Tories got in. <laughs> when the first episode of the second series of Fame Academy was broadcast, the tabloids had already pointed out that most of the contestants were already on songwriters' contracts, mm. and it quickly became apparent that the format had changed to Big Pop Idol Brother, <laughs> with clips of contestants falling out with each other being broadcast in highlight shows, and accusations that the feud that was building up between Park and presenter Patrick Kilty was completely fabricated. Even worse, it ended up being directly scheduled against the new series of Pop Idol and coming off worse in the ratings. The eventual winner, Alex Parks, got to number three in November with Maybe That's What It Takes, but diminishing returns set in very quickly, and a third series, slated for 2004, was quietly scrapped. Mm. Park went on to work for Global Radio, who now own all those shitty radio stations, and Grant went on to work with a singer who had won a national talent competition held in a chain of wine bars, but couldn't get a record deal because labels were only interested in people who had already been popular on TV talent shows, forcing her to enter X Factor. Leona Lewis and the star bar was knobbed off a few months later and became the costume storage room for Strictly <laughs> Come Dancing <laughs> okay, now. Um, now there's also a new band on the block um, they're called Sweet Dreams do you remember oh, Sweet Dreams? Fun. you would not his... the barrel <laughs> with that would you? Here's Carrie on top of the box a very long time ago shall we say it was a very very long time ago <laughs> And that's sh- that just goes to show you that with coaching, you can get better. That is a lovely hairdo there, Carrie. Loving that. <laughs> thank you so that's much. That's fashion. What are you on about? Really? I think I'll be keeping mine to this style. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Now, a group who are far too surreal to take part in a reality TV show is the Super Furry Animals. <laughs> After Cotton tries to take the piss out of Cary Grant and we get an achingly fleeting glance at the Yellow Hurl era, this nearly three-minute dead spot comes to an end when Cotton introduces to a band who are far too surreal to be bothered with all this reality TV bollocks, super furry animals and golden retriever. 
Formed in Cardiff in 1993 from assorted Welsh language bands, Super Furry Animals signed to the Welsh indie label Angst in 1995 and put out the Clamfire PG In Space EP. Yes, I did completely dodge that name. <laughs> After gigging round London in 1996, they were spotted by Alan McGee of Creation Records at the Camden Monarch, who approached them afterwards and said he was willing to sign them on the condition that they started singing their songs in English. They told him that they actually were singing in English, but the PA was shit, (laughs) and they signed to the label. Their first release on Creation, Hometown Unicorn, got to number 47 in March of 1996, but the follow-up, God Show Me Magic, put them into the top 40, getting to number 33 in May of that year, sparking off a run of 11 top 40 singles throughout the rest of the 90s. After Creation wound down in 2001, the band put out Ming. Did I say that right, Simon? Mung. Mung, I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was, but I didn't say it. (laughs) It means mane, like a lion's mane. The band put out Mung, an all-Welsh language LP on their own label, Placid Casual, which got to number 11 in the LP charts in May, was commended in the House of Commons for bigging up their native tongue, and remains the biggest-selling Welsh language LP of all time. A year later, they were picked up by Epic and resumed their run of chart hits. And this, the follow-up to It's Not the End of the World, which got to number 30 in January of 2002, is the lead cut from their sixth album, Phantom Power, which came out last Monday. And it's a new entry this week at number 13. Well, Simon, as a fierce champion of the Welsh music scene, uh, a man who famously quit Melody Maker when they wouldn't put Max Boyce on the cover, <laughs> let's not forget. Yeah. A man who accused me on an internet forum of being a massive racist <laughs> when I said that I thought Murren Buxtansiger was Welsh. <laughs> Fucking hell, Simon. I, I, I was only saying that I thought he had a Welsh name. I wasn't implying that the Welsh lived under other people's sinks, for fuck's sake. <laughs> You need to have first go at this. Fair enough. I mean, by the way, I don't remember that, but I'm sorry. I do. <laughs> Where to start? Where to start? I mean, yeah, mm. there, there have been times, many times, when I think that the Super Fairy Animals are my favourite band in the entire Ooh. universe. And uh, for me, they're the greatest of all the Welsh bands, certainly. And I, I'm including mm. Manic Street Preachers in that. I don't think the wow. Manics would disagree. I know... Nicky Wire bows down before the genius of the Super Furries. He he knows they can do things the Manics can't do. So right. um, I, I'm going to have to ramble on for a little while about why I love them Go so ahead. much before I shut the fuck up and let Sarah in and before we get down to the specifics of this song. But the thing is, because I love them so much uh, and because I'm often the go-to guy for Welsh stuff, I've written about them so many times. Um mm. And um, I gathers a lot of my thoughts together on the sleeve notes for Zoom, their greatest hits album, five years ago. Right. So I'm going to have to paraphrase what I wrote there a little bit, if you don't mind. But um, to, to begin with, way back when I tried to figure out how, just how, how the Super Fairy Animals sort of emerged the way they did, how a band as sort of brilliantly strange as that could emerge mm. from Wales. I, I used to see it in evolutionary terms because there's this thing in darwinian evolution called island gigantism right where isolated populations of animals can mutate into 
outsized and freakish versions of themselves. So you get things like the dodo or the Komodo dragon or um, mm. the giant tortoise due to the lack of predation and the lack of outside influences and forces. Yeah. And in musical terms, Wales, particularly the Welsh language music scene, really was a world to itself. Certainly the pre-internet age, mm. where, you know, you could be 20 miles from the English border, but a whole different universe because there was no yeah. connection. So, you know, the Welsh language scene was separated linguistically and geographically from from the swing of things, you know. And even mm. though Superfair Animals were formed in Cardiff, they're a North Wales band in a lot of ways. They're, they're actually from all points of the pig's head. Um Dav is from Bangor, um, Kian is from Bangor, they're brothers, um, Gitto is from Cardiff, Bunf is from Cardiff, Griff was born in, in Pembrokeshire, Haverford West, I think, but grew up in Snowdonia. Right. So there's a, a North Wales majority just about. And the thing with North Wales, or just rural Wales in general, is you get these weird little pockets of stoner culture up there in the mountains, you know, where mm. people just sit around getting wasted and listen to these mad psychedelic records that nobody in England has heard of. And without giving a fuck what's cool in London. Certainly, you know, yeah. in the 90s, it was this real isolated little thing. You just get this kind of weirdness that, that evolves naturally from sort of like-minded people in these isolated places getting together and forming their own path, this sort of counterfactual reality that's got nothing to do with what's going on in the music press and what's going on in, mm. in, in sort of centres of things. And that isolation used to allow bands a rare freedom to develop, I think. And I, I think it helped Super Furry Animals grow into this truly unique and fully formed musical force. Not in an ostentatious or or performative or affected way, like, look how weird we are. Although there were, mm. you know, elements of that, I suppose. But just naturally so. And, and without any ironic intent and without kind of second-guessing the whims of tastemakers in the London scene. And I think that's what cripples London sometimes, is the second guessing of, oh, how are people going to react to this? You know, yeah. this thing that we're doing is a comment on the thing before, and will people understand that comment? And mm. it's so refreshing for a band who would just fuck all to do with that. Yeah. And I, I do still think there's something in that theory, the island gigantism comparison. But what's wrong with that theory is that it implies an insularity that was never really there in the Super Furies. Because if you listen to their work, there's such an evident love of German cosmish and um, Brazilian psych and Jamaican reggae and Philly mm. soul, Nashville country. You know, they're an internationalist band that just happened yeah. to come from Wales. And that was so important at a time when the press was obsessed with Little Englanders. Mm. I didn't necessarily get it at first. I, I was put off by the press around them. They were missold as as a lads band, like a druggy lads band, you know, yeah. signed to creation, wearing cagoules, like a Welsh oasis. And mm. um, obviously that put me off. And, you know, you used to get those adverts, have you been missold PPI? Well, <laughs> I, I, I was missold SFA. <laughs> to begin with. But I, it's funny how you can remember exact moments. I remember the exact moment it clicked for me, and it was the afternoon of the Redden Festival, Saturday, 23rd August, 1997. I stood in the middle of the field. Super Furry Animals were halfway up the main stage bill, and I'm sort of standing there with moderate to low expectations. Mm. And Griff Reese starts singing. Clarity just confuses me. The lines drawn on the map, a strange assembly. That bit from Demons, except mm. that when he sang it, it was the most beautiful thing in the world. And it just <laughs> transfixed me, it just fucking grabbed my heart. You know, his voice, his voice, man. It's so yeah. rich with warmth and humanity and vulnerability and empathy. And he became my, I, I say my 
equal favourite male singer alongside Smokey Robinson. And I think I developed a bit of a man crush on Griff. He's so handsome. And <laughs> and he's got this sort of slow, calming, zen, wizard-like presence about him. And, and he takes quite a long time to get the words out to answer a question. And, and, and when I've interviewed him, I've never been quite sure whether he's translating his thoughts in his head or just contemplating it really carefully. But then again, mm. one time when I was interviewing the Super Furies, someone turned up possibly um, one of Howard Marks's minions, and slapped a bag of weed the size of a pillow down on a table. So, you know, <laughs> that, that has to come into the equation. Um, but he just gives you this sense that everything's going to be okay in the world. I- I'll never forget walking through Bordeaux after Wales had beaten Slovakia 2-1 in our first game in Euro 2016. Because um, Welsh people never go on about that tournament, do they? No, and, uh, never. <laughs> and, and, and a tram went past and Griff Rees was on it and he waved and smiled at me through the glass. And I just, thought, I just thought, oh, we're going to be all right here, you know. <laughs> and all, all the kind of, you know, I said that they're not performatively weird. They, they kind of are. All, all the peripheral stuff is fun, of course, you know, that Pete Fowler monsterism artwork that they have, mm. the alien helmets they wear sometimes. And famously, the time they spunked all their record company advance on an army tank, um, yes. painted it blue, fitted it up with a PA system, and they used to roll into the backstage areas of various rock festivals blasting out techno. And then they got bored with that, <laughs> and they sold it to Don Henley out of the Eagles, oh. who collects tanks. Do you know about, Do you guys know about Big Tank Chess? Yes, and it's about time it was mentioned on Chart Music. I don't know about this. Sarah doesn't know about it. All right, okay, right, so I should explain. Yeah, so really, the Super Furries selling their tank to Don Henley was the origin of it's this fictional pastime of big tank chess, which I invented with <laughs> with John Doran and John Tatlock, who we all know, and Sarah did. Ah, Sarah yes. did her Game of Thrones podcast with, and um, there's another rock star who collects tanks. I can't remember who it was, but we we started speculating that in fact loads of them do it right and yes. uh, and that the rock aristocracy all get together in the mojave desert and sit <laughs> in these big wooden control towers and move their tanks around in in a game of big tank chess laid out <laughs> in the desert and the fun was deciding who would definitely be a big tank chess player so don henley yes. obviously and we came up with people like jeff lynn Lindsay, yes. Lindsay Buckingham, um, Ringo Starr, they were all definitely in. Yeah, definitely big tank chess men. And we can now, um, by the way, factually almost, add Stephen Morris of New Order, who genuinely collects tanks. Right. So that was big tank chess. So uh, feel free to play at home. Who would be a big tank chess player? Um, they, they, they usually sort of wear aviator shades and sort of cheesecloth open neck shirts. I feel that's the kind of vibe yeah. of it. But all that kind of daft stuff around Super Furries isn't just bolted on. It's not like they were a conventional Brit rock band with a few eccentric hobbies. You know, they weren't basically cast with a tank. You know, mm. they've got a genuinely left field, lateral thinking approach to pop and. That that's probably helped by Griff's unusual method of playing guitar because he plays left-handed on a right-handed guitar strung upside down, which I think I'm right in saying Paul McCartney did that, Jimi Hendrix, but 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 it's quite rare and and it forces you to look at music in in a different way. But it's very rarely experimentalism for its own sake. I would say they never abandon pop melody for too long. I, I was mm. I remember once I, I got drunk and I tried to explain what super furry animals meant to me and I blurted out they understand me with their melodies right and I <laughs> and I got laughed at for that but I meant it because their melodies <laughs> they, they their melodies do seem to understand you the chord changes intuitively anticipate your own emotions and 
this song is not an example of that, but it's a lot of fun. But I am going to shut the fuck up for a bit so Sarah can come in. <laughs> Before you come in, Sarah, mm. uh, Welsh Oasis, Don't Look Back in Banger. Ah, there it <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah, I have a great love for this band also. Um, I was at university in uh, Aberystwyth and uh, there was, uh, you know, while there was a, a thriving local scene and bigger bands did sometimes slep all the way down through the mountains to get to us, we did have to do our own excursions. Um, and I remember the local record shop organised a bus trip to Tenby to see Super Furries. Wow. And that was a couple of hours away. And it was great. It was like a school trip, but good. And, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's interesting what you were saying about, like, how how they sort of evolved out of the landscape in that way. Mm. I mean, obviously, there's a thing about the, about the coast as well, coastal towns, which are weird. Mm. Yes. There was a... Obviously, oh, I, I hate to use these words, but there was the whole cool Cymru thing that oh, the, you know, God, yeah. journalists of the time tried to make happen. Um, I think the opposite is also true. I think it is a sort of there is a sort of cultural Madagascar thing that happens there, mm. and yeah, a lot of it has to do with weed. Like there were a lot of people that I knew who uh, were in bands who had gone to Aberystwyth to study stuff like countryside management or physics, and then dropped out and. Yeah just you know smoked weed dealt weed whatever and were in bands and you know they weren't all good but there were people like the crockets who were really good oh, yeah. and um murray the hump who begat keys yeah. mm. sorry the crockets who begat the crimea who were just a really wonderful band mm-hmm. so you would get stuff like that the people who were just doing their own thing in the most natural way mm. um but of course this also roped in the stereophonics who are mm. incredibly pedestrian mm. and, and kind of conservative kind of gives that you know it's, it's almost the exception that proves the rule i suppose but yeah uh, super furries they're such a fun band mm. it's just so fun and clever and so kind of sweet and warm and so inventive and not like anybody else. Yeah. A lot of sort of psychedelic pop can be quite ponderous and kind of quite inward looking and quite full of itself and very superficial. And Super Fairies were kind of very light hearted, but with real depth as well. Mm. And like you said, there was a weirdness about them, but it's not contrived. It's it's a very natural thing. Unlike your two, I wouldn't know the Super Furry animals if they shagged me none are. <laughs> but I was quite impressed by this. I mean, the one thing that did hit me in the face was this absolutely reeks of the album of the week slot in early 70s, Top of the Popsers. <laughs> Do you think that was what Cowie was aiming for here? What, because it's a proper band playing live kind of thing? Mm. Maybe, but it was high in the charts. It was just a yeah. commercial fact that couldn't be ignored. I mean, the studio set has been massively bright and sterile so far, but this performance gives us a chance to see where the money's been spent, where the band do know what to do with themselves. I mean, the blocks at the back have suddenly gone all satiny and shimmery, and there are people standing at the back in, like, archways in, in kind of orangey, orangutangy, chewbacca-y costumes. Yeah, Wookiee or Yeti or whatever, yeah. yeah. They're like Sasquatches, aren't they? They're like big, yes. blonde Sasquatch. Yeah. Which is from the video, by the way, that, um, ah. those costumes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of them are playing, well, almost all of them are playing kettle drums, apart from one who's just standing there like a bouncer. <laughs> Aren't they timpani rather than, and, and floor toms in one case, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. But I yeah, there's that one guy, <laughs> there's that one guy who's like standing guard, looking impassive, probably one of their mates, probably the guy who whacked the pillow of weeds down on the interview yes. table that time, <laughs> yes. Is he like the the, um, the bez of this band? Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> fucking hell. Super Furry Animals are one or two actual bands on Top of the Pops tonight, and, and in mm. this era of Top of the Pops, you can pick and choose whether you want to play live or mime or sing live over backing tapes, but if you're in a band like this, you can't get out of playing live, can you? Yeah, I mean, it, it 
it definitely is live. There's all that chaotic guitar overload near the end, which is not on the record. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's audibly definitely live, isn't it? I heard a podcast called Off the Beat mm. and Track uh, the other week with Dougie Payne out of Travis. Turns out he's a pop-crazed youngster, so hey up, Dougie, stay pop-crazed. Oh, Ooh. hello. Yeah. Hello. And he said that when <laughs> Travis first went on top of the pops, him and the rest of the band were, they were a bit knocked that they had to play live because it felt more to them like a gig that they had to nail than a chance to perform and put themselves over. You know, he said that they couldn't enjoy themselves like Slade and T-Rex obviously did when they went on top of the pops. I suppose you can't ease your way into it the way you could... With a gig, you've got an hour and a half and you can kind of warm up a little bit. Yeah. But, like, yeah, you've just got to go and nail it in three minutes. Yeah. You can't have a guitar made out of chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, there is that. It does seem like it's it's kind of, uh, it's neither fish nor fowl, isn't it? Performing yeah. live on top of the pops. It's not quite a telly performance. Yeah. It's not quite a gig. And I, I'm sure there were people who who um, might who regretted it afterwards. Like, ah, oh, you know, mm. it's just a bit weird. And super furry animals have got around that with the um, Sasquatches. But the problem with that is, is Chris Cow has decided that they're the focal point and not the band. They, they cut back to them all the time and it's like right, those alcoves yeah we've seen them mate let's yeah. look at the band super furries themselves used to wear those costumes um, during right. gigs but only at the very end because they used to get really fucking sweaty oh apparently. yeah <laughs> oh imagine that oh god the whiff especially if you had yeah. weed into it Christ yeah <laughs> that meant that around this time you always knew that Golden Retriever would be the encore because they're only going to come yeah, on yeah. for the encore in that, in that outfit yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Also, I, I've got to shout out to Griff Reese's hair here. What a gorgeous seventies mop! Uh, mm, a mane. Yeah, it is a mane. If a mung. A mung. Um, it kind of looks mm. like both the Alessi brothers at once, or like a brunette version of um, yes. Tommy. You know, in Carrie. You know, in the film Carrie, Tommy Ross who takes Carrie mm. to the prom. He's sort of like a negative uh, yes. version of, of Tommy <laughs> Ross. Bless him. Yeah. I mean, this is a throwaway song, but the thing with Super Furries is that even their throwaway songs take a kind of off-kilter boomerang throwing path you know um so yeah. it's it's a 70s glam pastiche similar feel to i, I reckon um back off boogaloo by ringo Starr, or he's going to step on mm. you again by john congos that kind of feel yes and i just remember the first time i heard it it just made me laugh out loud because <laughs> what they've done is they've taken a hard rock trope about women you know she's a witch or she's a Mm. snake or she's a vixen or she's a tiger or whatever and they've satirized it by making it about a really basic british yellow dog you know the (laughs) default dog you know she's a golden retriever but making it sound all sexy and badass you know <laughs> Supposedly, it was written about two actual golden retrievers and um, the dynamic between Griff's girlfriend's two dogs, one male and one female. And also, it's taken right. the piss out of that old blues trope about Robert Johnson meeting the devil at the crossroads, except it's a roundabout right. and then it's a puppy at a zebra crossing. My favourite bit is stop said the puppy that's just the best bit in the song <laughs> yeah and it's done completely deadpan as well that's the thing is they were never self-consciously mm. they weren't they might have been weird but they weren't fucking wacky yes this is from the album phantom yeah. power as you said which is one of the good ones it's not not my favorite sfa album not probably not even the top three but it does have glorious stuff on it maybe the best one on it is hello sunshine um which is also a single and it's the opening track yeah that's lovely. it has the legendary verse I'm a minger, you're a minger too, so come on, minger, I want to ming with you. 
<laughs> which was always a massive joyous sing-along moment at the gigs that was <laughs> this this performance yeah it's great i think because that you know they are they are playing live but um there's gold tinsel all over the floor but they just the way they are seems to be almost in defiance or against all all that crap you know um i noticed that griff yes never smiles uh, he looks a bit pissed off in fact i wonder if there was a backstory to mm. that i don't know but yeah, Liz Bonnie now yeah. introduces them as the sublime super furry animals. And I thought, oh, she's bang on. Go on, Liz. She gets it. Aww. So the following week, Golden Retriever dropped 23 places to number 36, while the LP entered the chart at number four. The follow-up, Hello Sunshine, got to number 31 in November of this year, and they go on to have two more top 40 hits before winding down for the first time in 2010. This tune has made the hard hat the essential fashion accessory of this summer. Don't know about the rest of the app, but maybe I could try one on for size and next week's show. With vocals from the biz, this is Benny Benassi. Holding aloft one of the orangutan's wigs, walks in front of the kids who we actually see for the first time. They look pretty rubbish, all combat trousers and band t-shirts. She says something I couldn't quite catch, then picks up a Bob the Builder helmet as she introduces a club anthem from Hitler that's been filling up the dance floors across the country. Satisfaction by Benny Benasse featuring The Biz. Born in Reggio Emilia, Italy in 1967, Marco Benassi started DJing with his cousin in the late 80s before moving into production in the 90s, working with post-Saturday Night Wigfield and assorted Italio dance acts. In 2001, he started putting out singles under the name of KMC, gaining moderate club success, and when he put this out under his own name in the summer of 2002, it got to number 8 in May of this year. But when he was put out again by the Ministry of Sand, with a new video featuring assorted lad mag models being all erotic with power tools, which got extensive play on music video stations, it soared into the chart this week, straight in at number two. And here, on the top of the pop stage, is an attempt to recreate the video in a health and safety pre-watershed style and fashion. Um, This is well fucking men and motors, isn't it? (laughs) Or or tits and tyres, as we used to call it back in the day. (sighs) Fucking hell. I I, I mean, as... Uh, what to say about this? I mean, as as this podcast token woman, I I feel I should go first on this. And and you know, yes, to, to be yeah. to be serious, and you know, to uh, this this is fucking hilarious. I mean, it's mm. although it's not actually it's not funny. It's it's not 
really sexy it's not anything the track itself let us let's get that out of the way yeah the track itself is not a very good dance track basically what it's for we're now in the era this is peak super club that we're at now yes um and this record has been produced for super clubs it's everything has been cranked up Mm. and you know there's kind of nothing wrong with the sound palette itself it's just that it's been given the the oral equivalent of a very big boob job yes to make it sound big rather it doesn't matter how good it is it just sounds big yes and it, it's kind of borrowing from a, a, a sort of a lineage of, of dirtiness um yes. and the sort of throbbing gristle kind of style mm. and i think it's it's meant to evoke a sort of pavlovian dribble response yes um but it's just got the production values of like flabby stadium rock you know it's essentially two speak and spell machines having phone sex isn't it <laughs> basically <laughs> or the robot bar stuff that cynthia's having a workplace liaison yes why didn't they work that into the video <laughs> oh my god yeah would have brought a few punters into my club as well yeah the general would have uh, approved yeah he'd be, he'd be slapping his ass with or somebody else's with, with glee yeah. <laughs> um i mean that's that's actually uh this was apple's um voice synthesis program macintosh oh, right benny Benassi was very fond of it um he used it all the time uh it's mm. also appears on fitter happier by radiohead flaming lips used it on uh, yoshimi battles the pink robot so you know lots oh, of yeah. apex twin used it a lot Outcast, Marilyn Manson. Yeah. It's also the voice of the autopilot in Wally, which is oh. nice. And I don't know if anyone's seen uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines, which is extremely funny. That's uh, that's the robot vacuum cleaners in that. So it's it's you know it's standard. It's right. it's very sort of shorthand for robot voice. And the weird thing about mm. this is mm. that it's robotic without being futurist at all. Mm. It's sort of deliberately dead-eyed and flat, but yeah. not in that sexy way not in that kind of shiny yeah. way yeah it's, it's music non-stop by Kraftwerk, but shit but bad yeah it's yeah, yeah it, it's not a good track the thing is that if you want this sort of sound but good then you want kerncraft 400 zombie nation did this much better in 1999 right just had a lot more going on with it just interesting little details and much more sort of punch and more ideas yeah and I don't know if you could really dance to that either, but this is for, like, girls to pose to and, you know, recreate the fucking video and men to punch the air and look at the girls. Yeah. And also um, a silver screen shower scene by Felix de Housecat. That was 2001. Right. That's how you do this. Right. Anyway, so the tits. Um- <laughs> yes, to the tits. Some of the models in the video were doing an encore as there obviously wasn't a Sunday Sport Roadshow event on that night. And Benny hides behind a newspaper as he tries to whip up some misty about himself but when he puts the paper down to reveal himself the camera's too busy zooming in on the arses and we we never really see him again so that's him out of the way is that actually him or is that the biz yes who is the is no, there even the, is that is the biz a sort of gestalt entity of, of the bloke and the woman who basically have the same voice but different yeah the biz are the man and woman the latter of which looks well fucking sarah palin which was oh God. very disconcerting <laughs> <laughs> they're the singers he calls in every now and again we and they really fucked me off because you know if, if you're talking about the biz there's only one the biz the late and the great biz market oh yeah so they can fuck off <laughs> so that's them dealt with so yeah to the arses everyone fucking i mean it is insane seeing that like doesn't this give you whiplash seeing this on top of the pops i mean is mm. this the 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 kind of latter day top of the pops equivalent of daddisfaction oh yeah daddisfaction daddisfaction <laughs> well 
yeah. it's laddisfaction, isn't it? It is laddisfaction. I mean, yeah. as we all know, whenever there's a discussion about pants, people, and legs and co, people, including ourselves, from time to time, always say that oh, dance troops on top of the pops, they, they just wouldn't fly. Uh, any time since the mid-80s. But, you know, as soon as the dance acts came in in the late 80s, and especially during this time, you know, who do they almost always get in? A dance troupe. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see three of them uh, on this episode. So you, you just wonder why didn't they bring back a dance troupe for Top of the Pops? Does this count as dance? This is dance in the broadest, oiliest sense of the term, isn't it? Yes. These are models who have been doused in oil and mm. put in some pants and given a tool belt a piece. Yes. <laughs> Basted the... is the word, isn't it, Sarah? They have been thoroughly <laughs> based and they are oven-ready women. And <laughs> it's... <laughs> And and there's a uh, bit, you can't really count it as dancing. They do the, in the one sort of bit that counts as this very monotonous track, yeah. this. And the one bit of sort of, that that's meant to be like a, a, a drop is like, it, it sort of double, t- it goes double time. And so yeah. it's like, and then they, yeah. they yeah. do a little, yeah. they, they sort of pretend to be drilling and everyone goes, all right. I mean, they're yeah. at fucking hell. You don't really see the crowd again, but it's like there are no, young men in God. that crowd baying like hounds Mm. it's a bit queasy isn't it it's not the yellow hurl error but there are balloons in that audience just just in their trousers balloons on the stage as well mate oh god (laughs) i'm sorry but it it reduces you in very you can just feel your brain kind of reducing down in some ways yeah you kind of can't blame them if there's men hooting at this that's the reaction that was meant to be elicited but it is you can see that the camera is a little bit, there's a bit of hesitation there. It's sort of a horny Catholic in a strip club camera, sort of looking and then looking <laughs> away and looking and looking away. Yeah. Oh, no, oh, please forgive me. Please forgive me. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the camera made its excuses yes. and left. Yeah. This shit's still going on, isn't it? I mean, as a former smut peddler, <laughs> I could see this coming a mile off, all this bollocks. After I finished my shift at the Wank Factory and I was waiting for me train to get back home, I'd always nip into WH Smith and have a look at the uh, top shelf. I just wanted to know who was buying the fucking shit I was helping to pump out. And you'd see Mr. Suit come in and his eyes would go right across the top shelf at Razzle and Escort and Mayfair and Penthouse. But then he'd see a couple of shelves down, Maxim's got a 16-page laundry special. And he'd always buy that. That was the beginning of the end for, for wank mags in this country because nobody ever went broke underestimating the sexual cowardice of british men (laughs) that's the sort of alka pops of of, uh... coward porn you know what you want and you've settled for that Mm -hmm. and by this point it was it was embedded in the in the british male psyche yeah i mean it's a weird sort of thing isn't it when you see this which is european you know this is italian so you have to Mm. take off a few points of of you know of 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 outrage for like european sex standards you know he'd have done this on the italian version of cracker jack and no one would have bad <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly crackle it doesn't have enough it thinks it's got a sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of humor yeah. about it you know but i don't think it like it wouldn't get on Eurotrash. it's almost too slick and again too too oily to get on Eurotrash. Mm. but you can just imagine antoine de Kahn just kind of going you know they're thrilling they're willing and they've come here to do some drilling <laughs> but eh, not quite 
you know, I think they probably would have turned it down for not quite being silly enough. See, when I saw this on the list, I wondered how the hell they were going to make it work on mm. Cowie's Top of the Pops because he's anti-video, yeah. you know. And, and let's face it, if ever a song was all about the video, it's, you know, it's Satisfaction by Benny Benassi. But they basically yes. get around it by completely recreating the video like it's a school play in Sunderland. Basically, yes. so, so, yes. so I'm sure he exactly. approved. He probably loved it on that on that basis. Yeah, they they, they kind of like rub the fannies against some brooms, and <laughs> they they they've got chainsaws and stuff there, but they just hold them up near the end. Don't turn them on, of course. It's all a bit Hills Angels. That's what I thought. Yes, so it's, it's, massively it, so. It's not it's not so much Pans People or Legs and Co. It is Hills Angels. No. It's that kind of comedy aspect yeah. to it. Benny Hill Benassi. Hey. Yes, because yeah. you, you've got. The vocalist ones are dressed as the building site foreman and forewoman, yes. so they get yes. to wear clothes. But yes. yeah, the, the, the rest of them, <laughs> the rest of them are the basted sexy ladies from the videos in their yes. hot pants and bikinis and high vis and their hard hats and boots and they're wielding the power tools. And yes, the broomsticks for fuck's sake. Yeah. And um, there's a moment where some extreme ass shaking happens as if they're yes. as if they're preempting the number one record. Bit of a, um, which is which is cheeky, literally. Um, no. So it's it's ah, quite... but not though. But there is a crucial difference which I will which I will ah. get to. Good. It is, you're right. It's quite a throwback to see a dance-based performance like this on a more modern TOTP. It is yeah. like Flick Colby never retired. No. But yeah, you're right that when, when dance records happen, what else are you going to do? And it, this does tend yeah. to be the way. Maybe not as extremely sexualized as this one, but but still. I've got a lot more time for the record than you two. Mm. And what it comes down to, I, I think the thing that... Uh, Sarah said that chimed most with me was comparing it to Felix the House Cat because mm. this song is arguably Electro Clash's biggest hit because right. it has a lot of Electro Clash tropes, that pounding beat. It doesn't have any funk to it, it's just doof, doof, doof. Yeah. And it's that cold, dispassionate vocal put through that robotic voice synthesizer, you know, the Macintosh, that you compare to two speak and spell machines having phone sex. Um, yeah, the, the, the female vocal is very Flying Lizards or Miss Kitten. Yes. And the two vocalists even have a robotic way of moving. So for me, as, you know, I was very much an Electro Clash aficionado at the time, this isn't a million miles from Fisher Spooner or Adult to one of those groups. Mm. But it is all about the visuals, this the song that you, you can't separate the song from the visuals in, in this case. No. The whole package is shameless sexploitation. But yeah. for me, it's a fucking solid platinum banger and I'm I'm surprised that, that you guys don't like it. No. You say it's dead eyed and flat. Yeah, it is, and that's kind of what I like about it because I was because oh, right. I was I was into that <laughs> yeah, kind no, of thing. It just it just doesn't do it. Yeah, I love this sort of thing. I just don't love this, I guess. Yeah. Maybe it's because I'm a humorless bin. I don't know. But it is, like, so inextricable from the video. Oh. You know, I, I went and watched the video, and it is fucking outrageous. And, and like I said, it's funny without being humorous, you know. But mm. it's like, you know, because all the, the, the names of the equipment, like, flash up on the screen. And it's yeah. like... Orbital sander, minimal dust operation, and then it's, it's like there's a bit about it. Minimal dust operation with disposable bag, and part of my brain just goes, "Is that what we are to you? Is yeah. it disposable <laughs> bags? Is it?" <laughs> but it, it's there is a whole there's a whole kind of subgenre of of this type of electro house dance around this time, uh, which kind of lasted for a good couple of years, where the mm. videos were made so that when you heard the music, it would evoke the video. 
Yes. So it's almost like the music was almost secondary to its video, because yeah. and that's what it's supposed to do to your brain. And it, mm. it usually meant sexy women in their smalls doing sex things in absurd yeah. circumstances. Like mm. often it would be really sort of pedestrian summer nightclub chum music, but with you know yeah. a video that had women in their pants, like in an office or a laboratory <laughs> or a gym. <laughs> Or uh, notably in a white void pretending to be a marching band. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? Um, That was, do you remember this was Alex Goldino Destination Calabria, which had the Crystal Waters sample, which is actually quite a banger. This is like 2005, this is way in the future. And it's it's hysterical. The absolute topmost of this was um, Perfect Exceeder by Mason featuring Prince of Superstar. It's absolutely amazing. Um, video has three women but it really sends up that whole thing mm. and just put, uh, puts a lid on it puts an end to it right. and the video has three women like made up to such a grotesque degree with like three sets of eyelashes each and they're like <laughs> bouncing on gym balls and spanking each other and and it's great but I think credit is due to Benny Benassi for like bringing Electro House kind of into the mainstream mm. and paving the way for stuff like Justice and Digitalism who mm. I love very much so you know fair enough it's just that it doesn't hit the spot for me yeah I mean, the video just reminds me of when I used to work in a factory in Ucknall in 1990. And one bloke on the bench next to me, he had a calendar that had been handed out by a local engineering firm. And it featured models trying to be erotic with lathes. (laughs) And I remember him pointing at that month's picture, which was some woman squatting by a lathe with her undercarriage out and licking the starting knob and just saying... Oh, all local lasses there, mint it grand. That's what I got from from that video. And this performance. I can confirm, by the way, that you can dance to Kuncraft 400 by Zombie Nation uh, because it's a Wales thing. Do you know about this? No. Basically, um, what happened was in uh, one of Wales's qualifying games for Euro 2016, which Welsh people never go on about, the, the, the away fans were kind of kettled in the stadium in Belgium. Um, you know that they were doing that thing of sending the home supporters uh, out of the stadium first, yeah. um, so that they don't end up mixing on the streets and kicking off or anything like that. So that yeah. so the Wales fans are just locked there in the stadium, with nothing to do. And over the tannoy, um, the the DJ in the stadium played Kerncraft 400, and everyone just started singing along. Da, 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 da. And there was like a massive disco in the stands, and that just became a Wales thing. Then that uh, all Wales games, particularly away games. Um, that just happens like just like when those kind of let's all have a disco moments and that's one of my main memories of following Wales away in particularly in France in in 2016 the other thing I was going to say about this song is it's it's well man-to-man featuring man parish yes um, and that got me wondering um Al have you ever stripped to this song or was it the wrong era oh. it was the wrong era and I wouldn't uh. anyway on principle <laughs> I did wonder if, because uh, they've got one of those little, uh, I don't know what they're called, uh, the little polyester stripy road hut thing yes. on the stage. They've done the set out as if it's, uh, you know, roadworks. <laughs> Spared no expense. No. <laughs> Just nipped out and, and kind of uh, plundered a, a, a roadworks, you know. Mm. If they'd had any balls, they would have had somebody hidden in there. Yeah. Like Benny Benassi himself, where, you know, burst out at the end, yeah. wearing nothing but some strategically smeared road grease. Yes. And maybe nothing but a hard hat between himself and an urgent parliamentary session on the future of the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate the triangular road sign behind them did you notice that it's like no. uh, yeah it's it's a bridge with two humps i see what oh, they did there of course it is fucking hell it's like tits yes. 
and arses and arses yeah. as well oh god it's a feast of oh. but i it did occur to me as well that it does indicate how far we've come in terms of you know beauty standards because while there are still enclaves of this like this the look of 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 these lab mag models is not too far removed from what you now get which is women who kind of take an instagram filtered shot and take mm-hmm. it into a plastic surgeon and go, that made me look like that. Mm, yeah. It's not that it's a kind of the classic thing with big lips and cat eyes and tiny noses and yeah. you know, big tits. But, you know, we there's also like every other type of body and figure and everything now. So, you know, it's there's been some progress. This yeah. is not like the only thing that you're allowed to dribble over. Yeah. And what a shame that Benny Benassi didn't put up a follow-up single, which was a cover version of the Bird's Eye Steakhouse advert. Hope it's chips, it's chips. <laughs> that would have been something. Um, I have one more thing to say about this, which is... Say it. Apart from on the YouTube comments, one of the, somebody said, watching this video as a kid felt like a crime, which seems... <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, the, one, the, the last thing is, have, do you know of... The Satisfaction Challenge of 2018. No. Well, uh, 2017, so this was kind of pre-TikTok, some Russian mm. cadets at the Ulyanov oh, yes. Institute yes. of Civil Aviation filmed a parody video of themselves in their yes. pants yes. doing yeah. maintenance tasks. <laughs> um, well, I, I say their pants are stuffed pants, army hats, leather belts and big boots. And they are ironing, twerking, mopping, and eating bananas. It's the yes. gayest, most subversive yeah, thing ever. It's amazing. And it's amazing. And obviously, the Institute was quite upset about this and, yeah. and read them for filth and threatened to expel them. Yeah. Men of Russian military must not twerk! Yes. <laughs> and, and it caused a massive upset. And there were headlines like, row over cavorting Russian air cadets. <laughs> oh, those And Russians. then loads of other people, oh, those Russians, and loads of other people made their own videos yes. in solidarity. Yes. As, and, and, like, some pensioners in Petersburg yeah. and Ukrainian swimmers, welders and stuff. It was awesome. Yeah. So, if nothing else, that's Benny Benassi's contribution yeah. to our times, is, is that. Yes. There was a piece in the New Yorker arguing that the parody video was a show of solidarity with oppressed LGBTQ people in Russia. <laughs> and certainly, you know, the Russian establishment were, as you say, furious about it. So I guess they read the signs. And, you know, what a brilliant thing to do. I think we've got to put that on the video playlist. Oh, yes. I did wonder if this, yeah. uh, not, not this performance, the video, the iconic video, I did wonder if there was any sort of a nod in there to uh, Quentin Tarantino's Chicks Who Love Guns bit. Yeah. Oh. Do you remember that? From yeah. uh, Jackie Brown, it's quite early on. Yes. In Jackie Brown, where um, Samuel L. Jackson is is uh, showing off to Robert De Niro about how about his gun knowledge through the medium of a, a like a video that he's got of some <laughs> some girls in bikinis like firing guns, and um, you only see a tiny bit of it in in the film, yeah. but they they mm. spent you know a day making a, a short that is in there, and it, it's really funny. It like it goes on for so for so long. And it's really uncomfortable because it's like, oh, Christ. And then it's funny. And then it isn't funny anymore. And then it's funny again. (laughs) And I don't think that maybe if Benny Benassi had just, maybe if they just fixed on the one woman with the one implement and just gone Mm. all the way through. That would have been brilliant, actually. I wonder what David thinks about this video. Because, you know, it is Einstein Norbarton, isn't it? (laughs) With with more attractive people doing it. Einstein just and Norksbarton. Oh, very good. It's TNA at B&Q. <laughs> so the following week, Satisfaction dropped two places to number four, but would spend five weeks in the top 20, a massive accomplishment by 2003. 
The follow-up, no matter what you do, only got to number 40 in February of 2004, but he would have a chart renaissance in 2011 when he collaborated with Chris Brown on Beautiful People, which got to number four for two weeks in May of that year, and Cinema with Gary Go, which got to number 20 in August of that year. Meanwhile, the video developed a life of its own when it was parodied by some middle-aged blokes in Denmark, some grannies in Belgium to demonstrate against gender pay equality, some squaddies in Britain, and yes, most famously in Russian a few years after that with the Russian Air Cadet Dormitory, which was, yeah. (laughs) It's so good. The new heroes of the wild northwest. This is the Curl. Cotton. Turning away from a strip of monitors on the back of the main stage while the piano play for the next act stares on blankly while chewing gum tells us that loads of bands from Merseyside have come and gone. And here's one more, The Coral with Pass It On. Formed in Hoylake in 1996, Hive started out as a school band who changed their name to The Coral when they started playing local gigs. A few years later, they ran into Alan Wills, who was intrigued by a gig poster which featured Ian Skelly's grandfather's head exploding and offered to start up a label, which became Delta Sonic, and make them his first signing. They put out their debut single Shadows Fall in July of 2001, followed by two EPs, none of which made the charts. But then they teamed up with Ian Brody for their fourth release, Goodbye, which put them over the top and got them to number 21 in July. And their debut self-titled LP was nominated for the Mercury Prize one day after its release and entered the charts at number five in August. This is the follow-up to Don't Think You're the First, which got to number 10 in March of this year. It's the second track from their next LP, Magic and Medicine, which comes out next Monday, and it's slammed into the charts this week at number five. So, chaps, by 2003, we're, you know, supposedly in post-Britpop times, but it's a good time to be a band like The Coral, isn't it, still? Because if a band like this came out in the mid-80s, they'd be happy with a page in Melody Maker and about 20 seconds in the indie section of the chart show. But, you know, a band like this can sell a few records and get straight into the top ten. Yeah, I mean, obviously we've had Oasis and their whole kind of Beatles comparisons, and there's also been things like Cast, who are literally from Liverpool. Mm. Fionn Cotton is plugging them into that heritage. She's yes. introducing them as, as being part of that Scouse tradition, yeah. I guess. Freddie in- and the Dreamers, <laughs> Liverpool Express. Yeah, I mean, implicitly back to the Beatles. but Our kid. <laughs> 
They're actually what's disparagingly known as woollybacks, aren't they, from mm. from the Wirral. Woollybacks yes. meaning people who aren't quite from Liverpool. Plastic scousers is another term. So, yeah, mm. as you say, the coal are from Hoylake on the Wirral. And they're yeah. on the corner, because the Wirral's like a rectangle that sticks out, and it, they're from the corner that's closer to D-side. D-side, there is again. Um, no. As as the crow flies, Hoylake is as close to Wales as it is to Liverpool. Right. And it's, um, it's a moderately posh seaside town. It's got the Royal Liverpool Golf Course course there where the open has been held and um, mike rutherford out of genesis went to boarding school there um, that's not where the coral went they went to hilborough high school where james bond daniel craig and uh, the cyclist chris boardman also went fact fans uh-huh. so what i'm saying is it's not it's not the mean streets of toxteth you know what i mean no so they're definitely woolly backs not scousers as such and it's good to clarify mm. that because you know if, if people say um somebody from sunderland is a geordie you know oh. get very heads up about it so yes half man half biscuit who are from Bergenhead, because um, it's impossible to say that word in any other accent, <laughs> wrote a song called Rock and Roll is Full of Bad Wolves. And uh, <laughs> it's about bands who turn up on Soccer AM um, professing yes. to be into footy, and um, but they don't know anything about it. And it did cross my mind that it might be about the Coral, because they have Ooh. been on Soccer AM a lot. Um, but it turns out Nigel Blackwell actually wrote it about a band from Southend who've never heard of Roots Hall. So that's more likely to be the horrors or someone like that. Um, Mm. By the way, when you Google bad wool, um, you just (laughs) find loads of stuff slagging off UKIP's Paul Nuttall. Paul Nuttall is a bad wool, which really made me... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it it got me thinking, who are the good wools? Um, Mm. So Half Man Off Biscuit themselves, obviously. Boo Radley's are from Wallasey. Pete Burns Mm. was from Port Sunlight. Right. Paul uh, Heaton's from Bromborough. OMD are from the outskirts of Hoylake, because we're getting yeah. closer. Um, Cliff Williams from ACDC grew up in Hoylake. Um, right. On the downside, you've got that tedious sexist twat, Miles Kane. Mm. I would say the Coral are good wolves. Um, on yeah. the whole, they were a best-case scenario version of capital T-S-O-T, this sort of thing. Mm. Northern guitar-based indie rock of the noughties. At their best, they almost had an SFA thing going on, actually. Um, Dreaming of You was brilliant, I thought. Um, In the Morning has got that twinkly daytime radio feel, like Dancing in the Moonlight, but Top Loader, which I like, despite myself uh, i know i know i'm sorry i'm gonna yeah i'm never gonna it's your favorite down. track on cooking isn't it Simon? yeah yeah i'm cooking the jamie oliver compilation oh my <laughs> god yeah <laughs> and and the coral's first album that sal title one really good uh, it's got like, elements of sea shanties and hispanic folk mixed in there with mm. all the more predictable uh 60s psychedelia and and um oh by the way i sat with the coral at an award ceremony once uh Ooh. for some reason the enemy awards for some reason i was stuck on the same table as them but you know they were nice guys with they they, they kept uh, leaving a table in ones and twos and coming back with a certain chaotic energy about them uh, <laughs> and so, um there were fucking loads of them at one point i think there were seven members of the coral <laughs> um but i've i've been skating around talking about this actual song because it's very slight, I think. Mm. I was stunned mm. to learn that this is their biggest hit. I mean, yeah. why? I, I can only put it down to this certain kind of mathematical momentum of, of their rise. Because their first five singles went 180, 21, 13, 10, and 5. Mm. And, and the album, um, as you say, was you know, got to number one, um, that this is from. And it's as if the whole thing had just been decided by forces 
bigger than us you know it was yeah. just sort of all heading that way because mm-hmm. this song it's yeah it's just i i couldn't have sung it if you put a gun in my head there is a certain scousy thing to them in that james skelly is exactly the same haircut as lee mavers from the lars yeah. and i even did a compare contrast i found the lars on top of the pops and um uh you know Lee from the Lars is wearing a round neck jumper and baggy jeans exactly the same as James Skelly. Right. The only difference is one of them's got a tambourine, one of them's got a guitar. By this time, if you're the lead singer of a Lancashire band, you've got to have a tambourine with you. That's the law. Have a tambourine, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought, well, okay, maybe I'm missing something here. So I looked in the lyrics and it goes, Every day I recognise what's deceased and what's alive, but don't repeat what I just said until gold has turned to lead. Then all the tales will be told whilst you and I are in the cold. But don't think this is the end, because it's just begun, my friend. And when it's done and all this is gone, just find the feeling, mm. pass it on. So, I, I don't know, I mean, it's just a vague... I mean, there's that reverse alchemy thing mm. of gold turning to lead, but it's just a sort of vague, very vague feeling of everything going wrong. Um, somebody on... I don't know if you ever go on the website yeah. Song Meanings, but oh, yeah. somebody on there reckoned it's about STDs, which <laughs> made me laugh, yeah. pass it on. But um, I prefer I prefer to interpret it... You know, there's that child childish way of uh, whispering a rumour in school and yes. say, pass it on, you know, like... Darren Grimes had a crafty wanking yes. class. Pass it on, <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh man! The thing about that is that um, obviously there were enemy cover stars this week, yes. and I think this was a thing that the enemy did. They were always, always trying to nail down the next big songwriting guitar genius yes. and slap them on the yeah. cover as quick as they could, and go, "This is your next big song." Until people kind of cottoned to it, I think, and went, "Really." Mm. Um, but that was definitely a thing, and I think it, it, it may not have done them any favours. No. It's nice, this. It's inoffensive. It, yeah, it's pleasant it's, enough, it's, isn't it? It's kind of a... It's a bit of a nothing tune. Weirdly, I think the chorus is pleasant, and the verse really, really, like, grated on me for some reason. Mm. And and the fact that there's no bridge as well. It's like, just bung a bridge in there. Yeah. It's missing your bridge, mate. But, um, you know, they don't, have, they don't have to put a bridge in, but it just seemed a bit... Sudden. Or a tunnel, at least, you know. Yeah. It's just something. Mm. It kind of goes back to that whole sound arising from place. Yeah. And they have definitely turned towards Liverpool and kind of lent into that. Yeah. But it's not completely lazy. Obviously, there's a million bands that have come from there that have completely coasted on that. Yeah. If you come from somewhere that has such such a, a heritage, you, you kind of don't have to be good. You just have to be confident. Mm. You just have to go, yeah, and and for wait for somebody, you know, to go, yeah, that sound is is what we want on our label right now, mm. um, and they are shooting for for timelessness as well. Yeah, that's the thing is that it does sound kind of slightly out of time. It doesn't sound distinctively two thousand and three, but it isn't like a really wincy throwback either. No. Um, a Dreaming of You, which is better than this, definitely. Um, Pete Doherty claims to have written that and sold it to them for. I don't know, a bag of something. A massive breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to that cafe. It's Have really you? good. He wasn't there at the time, unfortunately. Yes, it is a nice, it is a nice gaff, and they have proper sauce. You didn't do the challenge. I though. did not. I did not undertake the Pete Doherty challenges. I guess it is now called. <laughs> Listen to a baby shambles singer without throwing up your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you what, though, I bet that was a that was a fucking cheat, though, because you know Pete Doherty has got a he's got like a, an Alaskan Malamute or a husky, right. a large dog, right? That and I'm I'm sure oh. you could just pass half the bacon under the uh, <laughs> under the table to the dog. The thing that this reminded me most of actually is Dodgy, right? Who were you know the kind of Britpop mm. adjacent dorks who were extremely uncool, but actually pretty good at songwriting. Mm. They're more like that than Cast, which is 
better. Mm. The presentation of it, it's a step down from Super Furry Animals, isn't it? They've got the video screens up again, but it's like really thin transmissions of their video for this song. You know when someone films some uh, for the news and they've got the phone cameras upward? Yeah, the orientation's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And you're just there <laughs> sat at some going, oh, you stupid cunt, turn your phone round. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the fuck is wrong with you? I do give them credit because they are, um, as I'm sure you're going to mention, they're still going. And um, yes. I was slightly surprised, but quite quite pleased to find. Um, and they were quite freaked out by how big they got, how quickly, and they, mm. d- which I'm sure is mm. the, which obviously is the experience of a lot of a lot of artists. And it's got to yeah. be a, a huge head fuck. It's going to be really difficult. And um, James Skelly yeah. said that um, what they couldn't deal with was the uh, how other people project their idea of you onto you. And then mm. that's that's who you are. And so then you have to sort of yeah. go back and reclaim who you think you are. And so they sort yeah. of did that. And their most recent album is a, a double... They just put... Fair do them. They just put out a double album about an imaginary decaying seaside resort. Mm. And it's very it's, it's very soft and very gentle psychedelia. It's, it sounds like people who used to smoke a lot of weed, yeah. but then knocked it on the head because it was making them go a bit wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I respect the fact that they are still they are still at it and they're doing it on their own terms. Well, I mean, a band like this in 2003, if they can get about, I don't know, 10,000 people to go out and buy their new single at the same time, they're in the top 10. Yeah. And, you know, if you've just been on the cover of the NME, that's going to be easy to, to get, isn't it? And then within that world, you're suddenly a big deal and you're yes. potentially a festival headliner. Yes. And then it just it can spiral. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is you've got to keep it up. I think they, they kind of just went, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do the other thing. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people would be better off for doing that. But because that you have to resist a lot of pressure, because then once other people are counting on you to make them money, yeah, then it's, it's very difficult. Yeah, but-, but luckily for them, they're an indie band on an actual indie label, so they've. Yeah, they've got the best of both worlds, aren't they're they? They're calling the shots in yeah. a way. Yeah. Good on them. They are playing uh, the, the Shine on Weekender in November, right. by the way, uh-huh. along with the likes of, um, just check this out, for see if this makes your brain twang at all, Glass Vegas, Pigeon Detective. Oh, fucking hell. Cast Republica, Dub Pistols, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, oh. Goldie Looking Chain, Bentley Rhythm Ace, Peter Hook and his amazing Peter Hook band, oh. um, Sunscream. Oh. You, what was their thing? I don't know. Anyway, Black Grape, Alison Limerick. Oh, look, a woman. Oh, no, Republica is, is two women. Um, 808 State and The Farm. I would go and watch Glass Vegas and Goldie Looking Chain out of those, but very little I, else. I would go and see 808 State and maybe The Coral. I'd go and see The Coral. Yeah. So the following week, Pass It On dropped 11 places to number 16. The follow-up, Secret Kiss, only got to number 25 in October of this year, and they'd have to wait until 2005 for their next and last top 10 hit when In The Morning got to number 6 in May of that year. But they only had one more top 40 hit in them, even though they're still going, and their most recent LP, Coral Island got to number two in May of this year. Hi, I'm Wes, and here is this week's official Top of the Pops Top 20. 20's Escalade, Fool No More 19, Delta Goodrum, Lost Without You Pump It Up's at 18, Joe Budden 17's Can't Get It Back from Mystique 21 Questions at 16 from 50 Cent 15's Madonna, Hollywood New at 14, James Addiction, Just Because New again at 13, Golden Retriever from the Super Furry Animals Ignition Remix at 12 from R. Kelly M&M's at 11, Business At 10, Flying the Wings of Love from XTM and DJ Shucky 
Nine's the fast food song from the fast food rockers. Javine's at eight, real things. New at seven, invisible from D-side. Six is feel good time from Pink featuring William Orbit. Five's a new entry, pass it on from the coral. Four's bring it to life from Evanescence. Wayne wins at three, no letting go. And the highest new entry at number two goes to Benny Badassi presents The Biz and Satisfaction. And don't forget to check out the new chart this Sunday with me on Radio 1. That was the chart. That was Top of the Pops. I'm Liz Bonin. I'm Fred Cusson. Do you know, I don't think I can remember a time when this lady wasn't at number one. I know. A big well done to the booty shaking Beyonce Knowles. See ya. Yeah. After a ridiculously fast top 20 rundown from Wes Butters, ended in a plug for his chart rundown on Sunday, Cotton and Bonnie muse upon the longevity of this week's number one, and they do some appallingly workmanlike arse-shaking as the camera zooms in on a repeat of the Top of the Pops performance of this week's number one, Crazy in Love by Beyoncé. Born in Houston in 1981, Beyoncé Knowles began her music career at the age of seven when she won a school talent contest singing Imagine by John Lennon and beating out contestants twice her age. A year later, she auditioned with her schoolmate Kelly Rowland for a spot on a local group called Girls Time and they both landed the gig, playing around the Houston talent show area and eventually being entered in Star Search, the American talent show which also broadcasts the first nationwide appearances of Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, Tiffany and Usher. Although they didn't win, they kept going, and in 1995, Beyoncé's dad packed in his job to manage the group, trimming it down to four and getting them support slots for assorted female R&B groups, and a year later, they landed a record deal with Columbia and changed their name to Destiny's Child. They made the first dent on the UK charts in 1998 when No 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 entered the chart at number 5, sparking a run of 8 top 10 hits over here, including number 1s with Independent Woman in December of 2000 and Survivor in April of 2001. Round about the same time, it was announced that Destiny's Child would have a break so the three remaining members could embark on solo careers and dabble in films and whatnot, with Knowles becoming the most successful of the trio. This is the follow-up to Work It Out, which got to number 7 in July of 2002. It's the lead-off single from her debut LP, Dangerously in Love, which came out last month, and leans hard on a sample of the 1970 Chilite single, Are You My Woman, and includes some rap from her knockoff Jay-Z, repaying the favour she did on his last single, O3 Bonnie and Clyde. It entered the chart at number one two weeks ago. This is its third week upon the summit of Mount Pop, and here's the repeat of her performance on the main stage earlier this month. That um, chart countdown from Wes Butters, um, when he goes at the start, higher, I'm Wes. I mean, I'm mm. just thinking, who the fuck? Because yeah. I'm, yeah, I didn't know who he was. Um, turns yeah. out, yeah, Wes Butters, um, who was presenting the chart on Radio 1 at that point. And um, yeah. uh, obviously, he's missing a trick by not having a jingle that goes, everyone knows it's Butters, that's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apparently, um, 
where the wife comes from and when the wife comes from, which is Croydon and the 90s. Um, Butters means ugly or disgusting. So he must have had a tough time in the public eye. I can only imagine. Um, But the thing that struck me about the countdown, because you see tiny little video clips, almost sort of GIF length clips of each song. Um, Only three of them are not Top of the Pops footage, which was Jane's Addiction... um, Something called XTM, which is a dance thing I'd never heard of as like yeah. a cartoony video, and R. Kelly, which, you know, all things considered, it's for the best yes. that he wasn't in the studio. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be talking about this episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I just thought that the fact that 17 out of 20 yeah. are from this sort of um, IKEA top of the pops footage just goes to show yeah. how well Cowie's system is working at this yes. point. It's just, it's on a roll, isn't it? They've just got this mm. constant production line of content. Yeah. So, yeah. And they're massive stars as well. You know, you've got Madonna in there and Eminem and, you know, all right, um, S Club 8. But, um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, proper big stars like 50 Cent and so on and um, and, and Pink. And, uh, yeah, yeah, clearly um, Cowie's whole thing is it's it's a machine that's sort of well-oiled by this point, I would yeah. say. But it does make it, like I said before, it does make it all quite samey and it's quite self-congratulatory yeah. as well, isn't it? It's like, look at all yes. the people we've had. It's like, yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah, they're, they're sort of trying to co-opt pop. It's like, this is the one, <laughs> your one-stop pop shop. Yeah. And, you know, just, it's 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 a bit samey. But this fucking song, Jesus. I mean, it's a, it's a toss-up between this and Hey Y'all for the best single of the century so far, I contend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's this. Um, right. And I mean, this is, it's it's an important moment as well, really, just in, in all kinds of ways, um, which, you know, for one of those, you know, you look up the, the story of it and it's one of those things that almost didn't happen. Mm. Hungover producer was instructed to just knock it out in a, a couple of hours. <laughs> and right? uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, she wasn't keen on the horns in the first instance because it didn't, no, no one else was doing it. You know, it seemed a little bit too retro. It's like, no, that was absolutely the right call. But obviously we have to mention the choreography because the thing Mm. is that since the dawn of pop culture in, I don't know, let's say 1957, um, arses had been shaken (laughs) left to right, to and fro. And as of 2003, when Beyonce dropped the video of of Crazy in Love and, and performed it about the place... The world understood that it was possible for arses to go up and down. Yes. It was the birth of arse longitude. Mm. She single-handedly ushered in the arsthropocene. <laughs> this is a, a, an announcement of, of a lot of things. This is a real watershed. And it's incredible, really, that it is pre the watershed on top of the pops this mm. is it's so far beyond any sort of stab at sexiness that has happened mm. in this episode thus far yeah. and it, it's it's yeah. an important it's a real declaration that this is gonna be the most important pop star of her generation and you can see that now yes. this is the track that we'll remember when we're old and we think yes. about these things this is it you brought us around to the subject of arses sarah so let's oh you got to get, get it you got to get it yeah let's get it out of the way there, there was a lot more gratuitous arse shots in the uh, benny bonassi thing and beyonce's got jeans on but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter she could have sackcloth on and it's still big my god look at that woman yeah fucking you're up. also getting arse shots in the star bar let's not forget yes cotton and bonin <laughs> yes. doing a bit of comedy booty shaking there with a the camera yeah. zooming on on them while they're yeah, letting us know it's been number one forever poor. yeah very poor. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a pro am tournament. This, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Oh, bless them though. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 nice to it's nice to see them getting into the spirit of the thing. 
um, but also going left to, left to right still because you know this is it takes a while were, it takes a while for the world to catch up when when something like this happens even if it's happening right you're in right they hadn't got the memo it's so magnificent it's like a whale breaching on you know and you, <laughs> yeah. oh my god just the awe you know you, you just you don't get over it yeah. <laughs> I mean there are four other women on the stage legging and co-in it mm. but it might as well be me simon taylor and neil up there doing the mud rocker because it doesn't make a blind bit of difference you're not yeah. looking at them you're looking at her they're the backing asses yeah yes <laughs> but it's important like it would look it would be too much if it was just her so you know mm. it's good that they are there as a team you know doing yeah. it doing it together and she's she sort of carried that idea through they, they've been sort of tinkering with this over the years. I don't know if you've seen the Coachella performance from, from 2018. She's got like 50 or 100 dancers and horn players. Wow. And just really messing with the format. They slow it down, they speed it up, it's thrown in samples and stuff. It's absolutely staggering. And it really shows her inventiveness and her, yeah. her desire to, to keep pushing it. But also then you can go right back to this. And it's perfect. It's just such Mm. a perfect thing. And what I was saying before about music being made to kind of evoke the video, so the video becomes more important. And this isn't like that, but there's a perfect dovetail of the imagery from the video and and the choreography and the song. The song would still be great without the video, but Mm. it's just one of the big moments in in mainstream pop culture, the whole thing. I saw Destiny's Child play a skate park in Labrick Grove once. (laughs) This was um, the Notting Hill Carnival of whatever year it was that I guess No, No, No by Destiny's Child was in the charts, which I thought was amazing, by the way. It had this real kind of almost Paisley Parkish psychedelic feel to it, No, No, No. And Mm. um, yeah, I thought a lot of Destiny's Child stuff was just lovely. Um, And they were there in this fucking skate park as part of the Notting Hill Carnival. And they were all wearing just sort of double denim outfits and doing a sort of PA on on top of one of the kind of moundy bits of a skate park. And um, at at that point, there was no real indication that this one, Beyonce, was going to go on to be this, you know, obvious sort of massive star. Um, Mm. Except, I guess, if you knew what was going on behind the scenes and you knew that her dad was basically determining their career then you could have predicted it but just just to look at they were very much a group but by this point we're seeing on top of the pops she is totally dominant she is you know a world star on top of the fucking world she's radiantly beautiful um Mm. yeah she's got those silvery jeans on and the crop top and um we are getting a bit of builder's ass crack there at times which would have been more appropriate for benny benassi it's like she's hitting back at them for stealing her ass shaking thunder yes one thing that really impressed me she's in these massive stilettos right and yeah, she she drops hell. she's in these massive stilettos dancing about and she drops to her knees for a bit of wailing and then mm. she gets up again without using hands singing at the same time and it is live i'm, I'm pretty sure it's live because her vocal yeah, yeah. it vocals a bit off at times but not too bad you know well, she um, does a lot of ad-libbing towards the end which is really thrilling yeah you know. she's singing over backing tapes the, the, yeah. there's a bit during jay-z's bit where she just does this little grin at the camera and pokes her tongue out slightly. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know I'm amazing and I'm smashing this, you know? Yes. <laughs> Some rap uh, in this case was provided by Jay-Z, who, and apparently it was written and recorded in 10 minutes. And to my mind, it sounds like he was out having a shit for at least eight of them because it's his usual tedious gibberish. <laughs> you know, he's got loads of money. He's dead good. He's a star like Ringo. He's mad. He, he's cut from a different cloth. His texture is the best fur like chinchilla. 
etc., etc. Oh, I don't know. I quite like the line, stick bony, but the pocket is fat like Tony Soprano. And I've been iller than chain smokers. I I quite like that. (laughs) He was the first big rapper that I didn't reckon. When he came out, it was around the time when hip-hop had started devouring itself. And he was just basically sampling old hip-hop tunes. Well, he was sampling fucking Annie, wasn't he? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which I quite liked. I like Hard Knock Life. But, yeah. but I mean, by this time, he's one of the few rappers who can actually afford to clear samples. So it's like, yeah, he's no good. There was a lot of kerfuffle around this time when it was announced that he name-checked David Beckham in a forthcoming tune. And, you know, cue lots of discussion in the papers about how football was really seeping into the American consciousness. But then it it turned out he only mentioned it because of the Rockefeller connection with Victoria Beckham. And he was looking for something to rhyme with, Evisu covers my rectum. (laughs) So there we go. Uh, I mean, usually you get some rapping to pep up a single and make it funky. But to my mind, this just gets in the way of everything. It's the wet tea towel of landfill rap thrown over the glorious chip pan fire of r&b i don't know it's like you're having a conversation with this brilliant woman and you you're really interested in her <laughs> and then all of a sudden a fucking boyfriend doesn't like it and he has to stick his oar in and it's like no mate i'm not trying to cop off with your girlfriend i just find her more interesting than you mm. at the very least you, you could have said oh yeah, yeah you see her there this brilliant woman i'm going out with her <laughs> yeah you know it doesn't take that long to rhyme Beyonce with soon she's going to be my fiance. <laughs> Fucking your rappers that I shit them. I, I, it's supposed to be like, I know it was a last minute edition and everything, but that's not, it's it's fucking rap, you know, isn't this the soul yeah. of spontaneity? And, you know, it's like, she's yeah. right there. She's right there. And he's not, he's not bothered to turn up, has he? <laughs> to be fair, I mean, he does do a, an excellent hype job at the start. Most incredibly, it's your girl, B. Which is obviously yes. what I want to hear when I come into mm. a room in yeah. massive heels. Yes. Um, <laughs> Next time we go out for a drink, Sarah, but I'll I'll make sure I get in the pub early Aww. and I'll shout that as soon as I see you in the windows. Excellent. And just make sure everyone is quiet as well by the time. Well, I won't have heels on. No, there will be by the time I'm finished. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but yeah, so so that's a good, you know, strong start there. But then he just kind of in the middle. It's like he just lapses into navel gazing, you know, about yeah. about his own skills. Which I am now calling into question. Yeah. You know. I'm surprised he didn't slag off D-side as well. Yeah. Get another <laughs> lick in on those poor lads. <laughs> I don't know. I think it provides a little bit of a bridge and a little bit of kind of, it builds up the anticipation for when she's going to come back in. Because you know she's coming back here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I yeah, think it, yeah, it has yeah. a function in the record, that that bit of some rap. In terms <laughs> That's of him, what it's for. In terms of him being able to clear samples because he can afford it sure um but he didn't produce this let's not forget it's rich harrison mm. who yeah. i mean i've mentioned um pharrell and timberland earlier on in this episode as being the the two guys who are really running american pop particularly uh, black american pop at this time yeah but rich harrison isn't one of those top guys he did go on to produce one thing by amory which is amazing oh that's the yeah. other great tune of this time mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but this yeah. record if he'd only done this in his career who cares because it's just phenomenal yeah. It's one of those ones. I would also put Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie and Bad Romance by Lady Gaga in this category that I can just remember mm. exactly where I was when I first heard it. And I'm like, yeah. fucking hell. Yeah. You know, what is yeah. this? And it's not just a matter of lazily whacking a, a, a well-known um, sample over the top because the little bit of brass from that Chai Lights record, it, it doesn't even dominate the Chai Lights record. If you, if you play no. that Chai Lights record, you're kind of disappointed that that yeah. bit of brass isn't happening all the way through. It's just one little bit of it. So that's a good fight. 
find from the producer. Yeah. I remember being slightly confused by the lyrics at the time because being a big Liverpool fan, <laughs> I was convinced she was singing Sammy Hoopy is Crazy right now. Um, <laughs> but she's actually going, got me hoping you'll page me right now. She's obsessed with pages because um, mm. Bugaboo, right? Bugaboo by Destiny's Child, that's 1999. Uh, you make me want to throw my pager out the window, right? Yeah. In 1999, you can imagine, yeah, pages were still a thing. 2003, yeah. she's going on about pages. I, no, it's weird. On, yeah, surely pages are gone by now. But yeah, well, this is, this is the 3G era, isn't it? Yeah. I think paramedics and stuff still, uh, doctors still had them, but, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's a doctor of pop of, and of arse shaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great, though, because um, yeah. the, the horns actually sound like Beyonce coming towards you. <laughs> yes. That's what that means now. Duh. Like, yeah. da, 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 here I fucking come in my heels. If she was a wrestler, that'd be her entrance music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really like the smashing a glass for Steve Austin. <laughs> I think it is like it is one of those kind of happy accents where everything just kind of came together in the most brilliant way. Yeah. If they'd intended that, it wouldn't have worked. But because they didn't, it's just it's just naturally, you know. But um, speaking mm. of Jay Z, I mean, I don't think much of it as itself, but I can't imagine the track without it at this point. So, right. but I wrote the guidebook for um, you know those kind of big orchestra plays pop hits events that you have a lot of these days. There was one of those at the Royal Albert Hall and I wrote yeah. the guidebook for it. Oh, yeah. So just like a little bit on each. And one of the tracks right. was um, Crazy Enough. Yeah. I didn't go to the event, in there, actually, but I uh, kind of wish I had. I didn't put this, but it really amused me to think of putting, you know, featuring her partner Jay-Z, a star in his own right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that would have been... Uh, I, yeah, I just thought, no, I'd, I'll just leave that out. Yeah. I'll, I'll, um, I'll let him off this time. And the thing is, I, I, I heard uh, Alicia Keys' um, version of Empire State of Mind that hasn't got him on it, and it's just not as good. Right. So I don't mm-hmm. know what to do with that. Right. You know, you might think he's just splurging his sort of lumpen, fairly useless rap all over things, but yeah, maybe it's just what you're used to. But when I heard the Alicia Keys track without him on it, I thought, eh, it's yeah. Not. yeah, I'm not saying there shouldn't be some rap on it, but just get a better yeah. rapper in. Imagine Q-Tip on this. What would Q-Tip have oh, done? Oh, well, there you go. Fucking hell. But Crazy in Love's just a fucking monster. It's a juggernaut, isn't it? It's just, it's one of those yes. things, it cannot be resisted. If you're in its path, you're fucked. You know, it bends yes. you to its will. I mean, I can understand, yeah. especially after all these years, I can understand someone feeling they've heard it too many times, right? No, no such but thing. But if anyone said they didn't like this record i just wouldn't trust them it doesn't compute yeah to me you could not like yeah. it yeah there's, there's something a bit off if if you don't feel any feelings for it at all not all of this stuff you know can stand up next to this in by by, by no. any means i mean the sexual politics of single ladies i mean don't even fucking start me on that you know and no. I, I know i know um uh people think very highly of her lemonade album and stuff she you know she she's done some interesting stuff since but this just towers doesn't it it really does yeah yeah i mean to my mind she's a one-hit wonder <gasps> oh my god no she is to me come on because i've never heard anything else by her i could i couldn't sing you one note of any other song that she's done uh, high court needs them yeah. <laughs> i could have another you in a minute was that her yes yeah there you go then that's the other thing i know yeah. about but that's it that's all i know so about just um, crazy in love and i could have another you in a minute <laughs> yes it doesn't matter what else she's done because she did this Fine. Um, i mean yeah she's gone on to do some very sort of some very or talking about sexual politics she's there's she's gone on to to really delve into that you know where it's uh, and it's really interesting in the kind of course of her career where it's like marriage is lovely and and men are great and then to go oh shit they uh, they fuck you over and this is what i've got to say about it mm. she's um she's very righteous she's um got to the position of power where she could like 
have 50 Black Panthers with her at the fucking Super Bowl and and pull that off. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. you know, she's very, she's very pro Black Lives Matter. And, you know, you don't have to be. When you're that big, you can... Yeah. You know, you yeah. can sort of go, well, it's not for me to say, or you can actually go, oh, fuck this. Mm. And you can stake your claim in that way. Yeah, so, you totally. Know, she's she's yeah. important in so many ways. And she's a good philanthropist. And, you know, she's done a lot of extremely interesting stuff, not all of which is, uh, yeah, you're not going to throw on lemonade to, to, you know, before you go out on a Friday night. But, you know, that's it just shows that she's got a kind of breadth and depth of, of you know, interesting stuff going mm. on. But, yeah, it always comes back to this. This is just the greatest. Yeah. She's also responsible um, inadvertently for one of my favourite bits of music writing ever when she um, headlined Glastonbury in 2011 and Clive James, of all people, wrote a review of it. I mean, I guess yeah. he was writing a review of the TV coverage rather than the gig, but, you know. And if I can yeah. just read out what he wrote. The whole deal is organised like D-Day, but without the mistakes. It's got everything, except the kind of emotion we would get from Amy Winehouse if she were organised to cross the road successfully. Beyonce and Pathos are strangers. Winehouse and Pathos are flatmates, and you should see the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I just enjoyed this so much. Like, I teared up a bit watching this because she's so... She's so blazingly brilliant and yeah. and nothing mm. else, and so beautiful and so sexy and nothing else in this episode even seems to belong to the same planet, does it? Yeah. yeah. I think Beyonce may actually be where human evolution has peaked. <laughs> I think it's all all downhill from her. So the following week, Crazy in Love dropped to number two, usurped by Never Gonna Leave Your Side by Daniel Bedingfield. <laughs> the follow-up. Baby Boy with Sean Paul got to number two in October. A year later, Destiny's Child reunited for the LP Destiny Fulfilled and then split up, leading Knowles to have 31 top 40 hits, four of which would get to number one. Will Beyonce make it four in a row? Or will Daniel Beddingfield, Triple H, or the Stereophonics be top of the pops? To find out, and for the best of the rest of the charts, don't miss Top of the Pops, Friday, 7.30, BBC One. We do our very best to give accurate critiques of what we've just seen, and that's what we're going to continue to do. We just have been slagged by the fellow who did, the fellow who did Fame Academy, who came off stage. And uh, he said that we weren't quite there, but um, we're, you know, we, are, we are on top of the pop, so what's the know? We go straight to a voiceover of Bonin and Cotton spoilering next week's episode and begging us to tune in next week. And then we go to a graphic of the word inquest and footage of Park and Grant walking out of the building, <sighs> shilling fame academy <sighs> again, and then cutting to D-side flouncing down a corridor, telling us that they've just been slagged off by Parks, but they've just been on top of the pops. So what does he know? Yeah. yeah. They've been on top of the pops more. Yeah. <laughs> so fuck off. Yeah, properly fuck off. This does remind me a little bit of um the one time that I did a comment is free for the Guardian and they the editor made me go into the comments and respond to the comments. Oh, and I could, oh. it was so difficult because you know the ones that were mean and I responded to them as, you know, and so I told them off. and then the editor told me off for telling them off. Oh. It's like but I have oh. to it I was really put in this impossible position. And I didn't want to. Mm. I wanted to just say what I wanted to say and then fuck off and I was not allowed yes. to. So it's like and comment it's, is free yeah. but you can only 
be free once, and then after that, you've got to be super diplomatic. Nah. <laughs> Comment ain't free. There's a hefty fucking fee. Um, and, you know, poor D-side having to come on again. It's like, oh, no, we'll give them a right to reply. And it's like, oh, poor lads. No. You know, because they're sort of going down the stairs. There's one of them is sort of um, doing this sort of like fake boxy boxy to the camera. Yeah. Yes. And it's like they've been told to like laugh it off in a particular way and just like, oh, but it will be people will think you're great. And it's like, but they just it's like this no. is not what they signed up for at all. No, but I do love them for the no. fact that, you know, one of chart music's catchphrases has actually been made real for once. Yeah. <laughs> They've been on top of the pops more than he has. They've, they've manifested it. Yeah. Yeah. What's the scene on? If you're looking for anyone else, it's us. <laughs> the tattoos have, but I'm holding on. What's up, Pauline? Get on up when we're down, baby. Shopping. I've got you to kiss goodnight. I've got you to understand. Horrific. Yeah, sorry, man. Find sorry, out. man, that messes with the D side. Find out where he lives. We cut back to Park and Grunt sitting on a sofa watching pre-recorded footage of randoms outside Television Centre singing very badly and making absolute arses of themselves, which has obviously been collated by the camera crew so Park and Grunt can have something to sneer at. A regular feature of shows like this, isn't it? Look at these twats who think the summer Is Top of the Pop self-esteem this low at this point? Yeah. This is so weak. Isn't it? Yeah. The show ends with Ken from D-Side throwing punches at the camera (laughs) and saying it's a sorry man that messes with the D-Side. While his bandmate, Ken from (laughs) D-Side, says, we'll find out where he lives as the camera fades down. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops and also closes the book on the reign of Chris Cowett. Because four days later, the BBC recruited Andy Peters over the head of Cowett in a last-ditch attempt to shore up the ratings, which caused Cowett to walk out and Peters to mind the shop in preparation for a massive relaunch in November. Article in The Guardian the following week... The BBC One controller, Lorraine Hegeser, even suggested yesterday that Top of the Pops' long-term future on the channel was not secure. It's on BBC One now, but BBC One has to appeal to all of the people some of the time. She conceded that a move to BBC Three was possible, but added, for the moment, it will stay on BBC One. The thing is... Are the charts as valid as they once were? Last Friday's edition attracted, get ready for this, 2.8 million viewers. Far fewer than the 4.5 million who watched the programme when it was relaunched in October 2001. The show has suffered from drastic changes in record buying habits. In the first quarter of this year, the sales of singles by number and value fell by 42%, prompting crisis meetings in the BPI. Fucking hell. Mm. That November relaunch will be covered at some point, but not for a while. because no. it, Let's go back to the distant past. Yeah, there's going to have to be some severe loin girding before we tackle that one. Fucking 18 years ago is way too recent, let's, let's be honest. Okay. I'm sorry, Al, that, that Sarah and I dragged you so close to the present. But you know. So what's on <laughs> television afterwards? Well... BBC One kicks on with East 
Defenders. Then it's the final episode of the second series of My Family, the Robert Lindsay's Zoe Wanamaker sitcom. Then it's a repeat of the final episode of the third series of Alveda's Aim Pet, the one where they reunited after 16 years to relocate a transporter bridge to Arizona. After the news, it's the chat show Patrick Kilty Almost Live, followed by Close to the Edge, the first of three comedy specials featuring Jim Davidson. 2003, everyone. Fucking hell. Then it's Boxing from the Sports Village in Norwich, the 2000 murder film Exposure, and they hand over to BBC News 24 at 5 to 3. BBC Two hits us with The Flying Gardener, where Chris Beardshaw gets in a helicopter to look at someone's garden in Herefordshire because the BBC has that much money to piss up the wall. Then they follow that up with Gardener's World, the documentary series Stalin Inside the Terror, Newsnight, Newsnight Review, then the 2000 Australian comedy film The Wog Boy, about a Greek-Australian who suddenly becomes famous, and then they hand over to BBC Learning Zone at 3am. ITV continues with Tonight with Trevor MacDonald, a repeat of A Touch of Frost, where David Jason finds out if someone with Down syndrome has done a murder, then a repeat of The Undertaker docu-soap Don't Drop the Coffin, ITV Weekend News, the 1996 comedy film Joe's Apartment, highlights from today's action in the Tour de France and all the usual nighttime rammel. Channel 4 has just started Grand Slam, the show hosted by James Richardson and Carol Vorderman, where two champions in other TV quizzes face off against each other. Then it's the first part of the grand final of the fourth Big Brother. Then it's Scrubs, then the final part of Big Brother. After V. Graham Norton, it's the last in the present series of Bo Selector, featuring Craig David turning up to have the piss taken out of him and David Snedden. Then it's Today at the Test, Big Brother's Little Brother, and a repeat of tonight's Big Brother, then some Brazilian football. So, me dears, what are we talking about in an empty playground tomorrow because it's Saturday? <laughs> if I was literally still at school, you know, if I was literally 13 or 14, I'd be talking murder dolls because exciting mm. and Benny Benassi because tits and arse. I went to a yes. boys' school, you know. As a grown up, just wanging on about the genius of super furry animals, probably. Mm. And Beyonce. Depending on what age I was, I suppose, I might be pondering the great artistry of, of Beyonce Knowles and the fact that there's nothing else that that woman was put here on this earth to do. What are we buying on Saturday? Crazy in Love. Super Furry Animals and Beyonce and maybe Benny Benassi. And what does this episode tell us about July of 2003? It's a load of arse. <laughs> um, now, now um, what, what it tells us is that some things never change um, from 1973 to 2003. If you want to stand out, either have tits and arse if you're women or wear a mad costume if you're a bunch of guys. I don't make the rules. Chris Cowie does. And what would you have done to rescue Top of the Pops or, or is it too late? It would have been good to just go kind of back to basics with in terms of like get the best people that who are going to do the most interesting stuff live and then mm. just the best videos 
you know the whole the mm. whole uh, let's not have any videos anymore thing is is death i think just like one or maybe two you know you don't even have to show the whole thing but just yeah. that's been part of it for so long and i i think it was a mistake to get rid of it so but yeah just get the best people in who not necessarily the you know the best singers or the best dancers or the people who can make their ass go a different way to how asses have always gone but although <laughs> obviously ideally that's what you want just uh, the greatest range that you can display which there you know there is some of that in evidence here but um just just really double down on that. Mm. I would scrap the star bar. Yeah. Yes, I would uh, allow more videos and just have much more of the studio audience and much more of the presenters being in amongst it so that mm. it feels like a party you've been invited to, not one that you haven't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I came to this episode pretty much stone cold, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. If this was a new BBC One music show, mm. you'd look at it and go, well... This is all right, actually. There's, some, there's been some interesting bands and singers on and everything. I, I, I'm coming away from it feeling I've got a handle on what's happening music-wise at the moment. But here's the problem. It's not a music show. It's top of the fucking pops. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, of course, is to uh, keep a bit of suspense in it. Yes. Yeah. You know, I love the whizzy, suspenseful countdown at the end. You know, there was a period kind of, you know, in the 80s where they absolutely nailed that. And it's like, I don't know yes. what, you know, stay tuned for some good stuff that you can trust us will be good. Yeah. You know, run yeah. with that. Like, yeah. you're supposed to be able to trust. There's a certain degree of like, when you turn on Top of the Pops, it's like, you're going to have, there'll be some stuff you like, some stuff you don't like, but it's all going to be yeah. worth watching. Yeah. So like, why spaff it all in the first you know, they did it a couple, multiple times as well. Is that weird? It's like, you know, when um, people started to do documentaries in that American style, where yeah. after yeah. every advert, which is like every 20 minutes or something, there's a recap mm. of everything you've just seen. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, oh, as if you're just that. coming into it for the first, it's like, don't fall for that. You know, it's all right to trust people to have an attention span. Yeah. There was a series on Bravo about the band Towers of London, which um, I'm in oh. briefly. Um, and uh, yeah, every episode of that, uh, I think an episode was like maybe 20 minutes long. I swear like 12 minutes of it was recap or throwing forward. And only about eight, if that, that's being generous, was actual program. <laughs> it took them fucking ages to get the whole series out because it, it was just inching along you know what I mean and yeah, yeah, yeah it drives me mad yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that and that pop craze youngsters is the end of this episode of Chart Music time for me to do my usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music reach us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string patreon.com slash Chart music. Ta very much, Simon Price. You're very welcome. God bless you, Sarah B. Oh, God bless me. My name's Al Needham, and I implore you to make sure you go all round your doings. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Great big I'm Mark Haynes, and for the last 32 years, I've been a fan of professional wrestling. My friend Pete Donaldson from the Football Ramble, he hasn't. But in our podcast, Wrestle Me, the two of us subject the greatest spectacle in sports entertainment, WrestleMania, to the kind of rigorous scrutiny that ruins it entirely. GQ called Wrestle Me enrapturing. Shortlist said it's beautiful, and it's a hit with common people too, with well over 400 five-star reviews on iTunes. Wrestle Me, available from all good podcast providers. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello all you teddy guys and girls out there. Oh, welcome to the Tweeny Chart Countdown. Today you're going to hear all the Tweeny's favourite songs. And first on stage is Young Milo. He's chosen this number as his favourite song because he likes to move and dance. Tease man, I'm the just tent man, so I can get my satisfaction. Man, I'm agitate man until I get my satisfaction. Satisfaction. I get very excited. Wow, naughty lady. An awful lot I'd like to say about legs and coat. I'm afraid uh, they'll probably bleep me out if I do. Jump up and shake your bits off so I can get my. Satisfaction Bed down and shove your drums off Until I get my Satisfaction 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 Here are some young ladies I've admired many times in my little armchair at home 